Hello and thank you for listening to this special Dark Knight 10th anniversary episode of the Electric Shadows podcast. This was recorded over two days, so there are some variations in sound quality. We hope this does not affect your enjoyment of the show. It's a big episode, but there's a lot to cover, and my fellow travellers on this one are well versed in Batman history, so we hope you find it interesting. Okay, Alfred, we're ready to go. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are tonight's entertainment. Where is he? People are dying. What would you have me do? Endure. You can be the outcast. You can make the choice that no one else will face. The right choice. Gotham needs you. A little fight in here. I like that. Then you're gonna love me. He's here. Who? The Batman. Gotham must be destroyed. Gotham isn't beyond saving. Just hold on! don't owe these people anymore. You've given them everything. Not everything. Not yet. Mother warned me about getting into cars with strange men. This isn't a car. And here we go. Hello and welcome to the Electric Shadows podcast with me, your host Rob Daniel, editor of electric-shadows.com. As always, I'm very happy to say I'm joined by my learned co-host, Mr. Rob Wallace. As always, it's an absolute pleasure to be here, uh, editor of all the film sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. And this is a special episode, so as we always do for these look-back episodes, we have our lovely special guest with us, Mr. Ian Bird. Hello, thank you for having me back, thank you. No, thank you for coming. And you are editor of? <laughs> no, I'm not an editor of. Uh, I'm writing an online novel at the moment called Bone Ditch, which you can find if you have that Desire at www.boneditch.wordpress.com. And it's just a collection of sort of short horror stories and podcasts. And yeah. it's well worth a look. It's well worth <laughs> and a listen. And a listen. I have to admit, because I'm a millennial, me, I listen to the podcast. I, um, <laughs> I embrace the newer technology that Ian does Bone Ditch on. And yeah, you should listen to it. It's very good. Or read it, because I'm sure that's good as well. That's <laughs> <laughs> nah, fun in. Cool. So this is... A special episode, because to make everyone here feel old, on July 18th of this year, it will be 10 years since The Dark Knight was released at the cinema. And we thought, well, that's probably something that's worth marking. To which you're saying, but Rob, Iron Man was also <laughs> released that year, and that started the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And we say, yes, but I speak for myself when I say that I like Batman more, so I want to do The Dark Knight, which I think is a much more interesting film. And I'm going to flatter Ian here. I think Ian is a bit of a bat expert. He would never admit that himself. 
<laughs> Not during the hours of daylight, no. <laughs> yeah, so I'm actually quite looking forward to hearing what Ian has to say about this because he just has spent most of your life studying the ways of the bat. <laughs> yes, I swore over the bodies of my living parents to dedicate my life to the reading of Batman comics. <laughs> Ian, what are you doing? Go to bed. <laughs> 100% successful in that. Nerds are a lonely, smelly lot. My disguise must strike fear into their hearts. So The Dark Knight was the sequel to Batman Begins, which was a reboot directed by Christopher Nolan. So Christopher Nolan kind of started that thing of indie directors suddenly having a massive film. So he directed Following, which was a film that he basically funded himself and made with friends over weekends, over about a year or so. Memento was the gig he got off the back of that, which was, which was the Guy Pearce film, which was told backwards, which started a bit of a trend for lots of things in films and telly being told backwards. There was an episode of Firefly, wasn't there, that was told in kind of like a Memento style. Heart of Gold. Which was written and directed by Joss Whedon, who we'll come on to later. Uh, he then moved on to Insomnia, which was a remake of uh, a Swedish film and that had Pacino in it and Robin Williams and I think was given to him or he won it as a gig to prove that he could handle a bigger budget and big stars and I thought it was a really impressive film. And then suddenly he was doing Batman and that seemed like this massive leap. I don't know how you thought about it at the time that he was suddenly doing, he's going to do the new Batman film. Well, wasn't Insomnia 2001, wasn't it, Insomnia? 2002. 2002. So that's quite a gap between that and then Batman in 2005. Yeah, but I saw Christopher Nolan being interviewed for Insomnia at Fright Fest which was an amazing get, really. Mm. Uh, particularly as this was Fright Fest about four, uh, three years after it had started, and it's like, well, you've got Christopher Nolan to come and do an interview about this new film with Pacino. Anyway, and he was very good, and he was talking about what was next, and he said, well, I'm working on something, and if it comes off, it could be very, very big, and it will be something much bigger than I've ever done before, and it's really quite exciting, but I can't talk about it right now. And that was Batman. That was like the early days of him getting Batman. That was... August 2002. Right. Because they started writing the script for Batman in 2003, went into production to 2004. I mean, at that point, it was still based on the, it was still the Intimidation game. Which was the working title for the film when it was being shot. When it was being edited, they changed the title to Flora's Wedding, which was, um, yes, his daughter's called Flora. Yeah, because the second one was Rory's first kiss or something, isn't it? That's right, yeah. yeah. And his son's Rory. Yeah. Um, just to go down the rabbit hole and The third one was obnoxious piece of shit, wasn't it? <laughs> I think they were out of kids at that point. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, yeah, so that's actually a... sadly, there is a third kid. <laughs> oh, is there? <laughs> I don't know. I think it was <laughs> called Zeppo's first... <laughs> first day Poochie. out or something. <laughs> Poochie. Poochie died on his way back to his home planet. Yeah, to really go down the rabbit hole immediately. So Rory's first kiss, RFK. Aaron Eckhart based... His portrayal of Harvey Dent on RFK, oh, well. <laughs> on Robert Kennedy. It's oh, that's like, really cool. It's like, well, because he said he wanted the polish and the sheen and the charisma of Kennedy and also his burning thirst <laughs> for revenge. <laughs> 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 Absolutely no morals. No bad taste involved in this whatsoever. Yes, yeah, so up until that point, so Christopher Nolan, really interesting director, suddenly he was going to be doing Batman with Christian Bale, which explains why there was one time when I was at work bumming around on IMDb and there was a picture of Christian Bale. Work hard in Bale. school, kids. Yeah. <laughs> a picture of Christian Bale on his IMDb page, and he was huge. Like, just massive. It's like, what has happened to Christian Bale? He's this massive lump. And what happened was, he'd done The Machinist. Have, mm. have you seen The Machinist? Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting film. It's not... It's the same thing you were talking about earlier. It's one of those films like, and actually... 
his best friend never existed mm. which was another kind of like trope at that time that's it? right it so really it was, was kind of like oh yeah geez. the imaginary yeah. friend who is literally an imaginary friend which is really guessable in that film because it had been done so much at that point that as soon as it starts it's like uh, he's not talking to anyone there is a lot of his matchstick men yeah um, it all came from Fight Club yeah yeah, yeah. Was, um, which secret window yeah there will be spoilers for films on this all of the Dark Knight films, obviously, and the Batman oh, films, but we'll be talking about other films Rob, as well. Don't worry about it, they can only hear you. <laughs> that was so smooth. <laughs> but The Machinist, though, is one of those films, because at the same time that Christopher Nolan was a really interesting director, and he's doing really interesting things with the form, and Christian Bale was, he's a really interesting actor. He just keeps doing things with his body that are like just absolutely bizarre, <laughs> like crashing off the £60 to be in The Machinist a film of which the balance was utterly tipped because he was too much for that film. It was like, mm. this this film is not strong enough to have you lose all that weight and look how you do. Is that Michael Ironside in that film? Yes. Uh, yes, I believe it is. Yeah, he works in... He's the... also played Batman. Is he? In the um, Dark Knight cartoon, yeah. he oh, wow. plays the Frank Miller version of Batman, I think. Not the Dark Knight Returns? No, 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 no. There's a... Sorry, this is completely off the beaten track. There's an episode of the Batman animated where, <laughs> where it's a bunch of kids uh, telling their version of what Batman's actually like, which is uh. a story that's told a couple of times in the comics. And so they do one version where it's a 1950s Dick Sprang style um, cut, uh, comic and story. Is, yeah. And then they do a version of The Dark Knight Returns and Michael Ironside is Batman. And it's, yeah, it was, that was really cool. Have they ever, ever animated whatever happened to the Cape Crusader? No, no, but it's a, uh, yeah, yeah, I quite like it's that comic as well. just a matter of time. They're going to do everything, aren't they? So then, um, yeah, so he was in The Machinist. He famously crashed off 60 pounds. And at that point, Nolan said, yeah, I want him for Batman. <laughs> I think he can play Batman. Look, look at him. <laughs> and was told that he had to beef up um, so he could then do an audition. Because he had to be auditioned for the role because they were considering lots of other actors, including Jake Gyllenhaal, who is now in the running to be Batman to replace Ben Affleck. Hasn't well, he just accepted another role? He's just been cast as Mysterio in Spider-Man Spider Oh, okay, two. right. These bold actors and all their superhero <laughs> franchises. <laughs> this, uh, moral courage. The, yes, the biggest villain here is Easy Payday. <laughs> but, you know, if he plays it like uh, his character from Nightcrawler. <laughs> yeah. So they got Bale, and Bale had to beef up, and yes, he just became this big lump of meat. And apparently when they started the shooting, he was still a big lump of meat and he had to then go into lots of rigorous exercise to tone up because the crew said, is it Batman or Fat Man we're doing it? <laughs> it's like, fat shaming. Fat shaming. But they go, yeah, you don't want on. to be in the fridge. Fat yeah. shaming. <laughs> I'll be in the fridge along with all the women. It's <laughs> <laughs> a very witty joke we'll be referring to in the second act. Yes, indeed. We are going to assume a little bit of knowledge here, I suppose, but I think we do have to give some of the context for things we're talking around, particularly things like when we get into the comics and things like that, which is really Ian's area because we're going to be talking about some of the writers and some of the artists, because a lot of Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy was, you know, obviously was taken from what had gone before, including the Burton films, even though he said that they weren't to be referenced in any of the marketing or anything like that. It was, he said that the animated really? series could be referenced because he thought that was very impressive, but he wanted this to be completely different from Burton films and from all the 90s Batman movies. Yeah, I guess if you're, if you're referencing the Burton films, then you possibly, you can't really go, yes, all those, the Tim Burton Batman films. It's a shame nobody's made any since then. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Even then, though, you're thinking there are things in Batman and Robin. Again, we will dig on to all of this. But there, there are, are certainly there, things in Batman and Robin. <laughs> there are things in Batman and Robin, including two amazing scenes with Batman, uh, with Bruce Wayne and Alfred, which are like, uh, why is this so amazing in this film? Why are there a couple of really good scenes with these two characters? Of course, surprising. the definitive take on Bane. And the, and the definitive take on Bane. <laughs> Bane! <laughs> Uh, yes, so much to talk about. <laughs> Which is why we've got to be focused and honed and we're 12 minutes in. <laughs> Correction, two minutes in. Two minutes in, right. <laughs> so much that could be plucked out. So how do we want to do this? Do we want to go through the trilogy or do we want to start off with The Dark Knight and work backwards and forwards from there? Should um, we start with Batman Begins? The beginning's always a good place to start, isn't it? Tom Not usually in a Christopher Nolan film. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so tough. <laughs> so Batman Begins. We saw that at the IMAX. And it was one of those things where Christopher Nolan clearly had an early love of IMAX. And even though Batman Begins wasn't filmed in IMAX, they found out that when they blew up the 35mm print to IMAX, it actually worked very well. So we went to see it at the IMAX. And on that night, I learned a very important lesson. Don't sit in row E of the IMAX (laughs) when watching Waterloo because it's like, I can't see it all in one go I have to turn my head but overall we walked out of that film thinking that was an impressive take on Batman oh we bounced out of it didn't we yeah. it's like I, I, I can remember the, the problems I have with it but it's like they were all kind of like distant shadows that was such a triumphant film it was a lovely at heart it told a story it was triumphant it was it was heroic it was and it was really well put together obviously it was no it was a thrill that, that film wasn't it and would you say that's the first batman film to have drawn sort of directly from the comics as well in the way that i think that's i and obviously by the time batman begins had been made people had been watching batman movies for a long time and the comics had sort of like come into it more i don't think there's necessarily a ton about the comics in batman begins it kind of like lifts notes but i think it's really telling that all of the puff that came out the publicity he's always at pains to say oh we took this from the comics and we took that from the comics and it's like you sort of did but i i think this is a it, I think it's interesting to talk about these films as being successful films or as being successful Batman stories. Because it's like, it's, it feels unfair to say, to judge it as a Batman story when actually they're incredibly well conceived and well put together trilogy. Yeah. Whether it's as successful as a Batman trilogy is, is a different question. question yeah, exactly. But then again, we live in a day, we live in times where everything is a superhero franchise. And you almost can't talk about these films as being isolated works of art. You have to talk about them as being a piece of a mosaic, the wider well, context. Say, yeah, and I would say that the reason why we have to talk, it, um, talk about these films in those terms now is because of these films. The Dark Knight was the first superhero film to make a billion Oh, right. And suddenly that yeah. just changed yeah. the rules in how much money these films could make. And also the tone they had to be as well, because The Dark Knight is not a particularly light film. I mean, watching Batman Begins, one of the things that struck me was just how kind of light and funny it is and how many nice moments of humour there are in it. The Dark Knight is much more serious. Oh, yeah. And then it's like, okay, so this is one of those things where you had this tone. It worked really, really well for this story. People really reacted to it. And I think one of the reasons they reacted to it, and we'll get on to it in a bit, is the fact that it tapped into fears of the time that I think are still there. And it made a billion. And from one film, so Warner's made a billion from a movie that year. And I think everyone was saying, yeah, let's look at this as well. We can't forget that Iron Man was also out that summer and did very well in 2008. But... You can see the tone of this film in things like The Winter Soldier, and uh, there's lots of Marvel films that are trying to ape that. It's interesting. You can kind of 
going back to 2008 chart, the two separate strands of different films, that some of which followed Iron Man, some of which spiritually, or, and some of which followed The Dark Knight. And on the whole, the films that followed Iron Man have been far more successful, mm. or there have been a lot fewer duds doing it. I think because, because Iron Man follows, follow, provides a formula that is relative, as long as you get putting, you know, getting good filmmakers, you can actually sort of follow it to an extent. Whereas The Dark Knight, you can't really... Because it's such a, as far as it goes, sort of going back to going back to the comic book, such an auteur work and such so much its own thing. You can't really just sort of copy and paste and put that into another. Well, I think that's yeah. I think that's really interesting point because you have the sense that when when Batman eighty nine came out, it was famously Batman's fiftieth anniversary, and it was like Jesus, it's been constant production for 50 years and now it's 79 years it's been, there's been Batman going on and the whole point is that these are corporate mascots that cannot be allowed to die the stories will always go on and on and on in a way that Marvel have been doing successfully in films for the last 10 years what's quite neat about the Batman trilogy is it's very it's very purposefully saying this is there is a beginning a middle and an end to Bruce Wayne's story and you get the idea that no this, this, this ends and it's finished and he's not Batman anymore and that's all gone Unless you know, yeah. obviously there are problems with that in terms of how that film's put together. But it is, it's quite ambitious to say, and this is how Batman ends. Of course, Batman, the whole thing of the 80s and The Dark Knight Returns is that for an awful lot of mythological characters, you get a final story in them, don't you? You get the, the death of King Arthur, you get the death of Robin Hood and firing the arrow in the air. Well, yeah, well, any, any mythological figure, or sort of, you know. Well, no, but that's that's the interesting thing. Is that, yeah, you're absolutely right. But in terms of like a pulp character, the adventures never end. You know, James Bond yeah. is always going to be a 35 year old going off to save the world next year as well. And that's certainly the point of Batman. What's hilarious about the Zack Snyder universe is that they cast a man who's coming to an end and it's like they're trying to well they're trying to launch something so they've given themselves a logic puzzle before they're even out the gate and yeah. that's problematic and that's again you're stepping outside what makes a film and what makes a franchise yeah indeed so sorry i just thought about another thing you have to talk about then as well as x-men of course because x-men which also marvel but was fox kind of proved you could do a more serious superhero film and also one of the ways you do that is that you cast great actors like ian mckellen and patrick stewart or Michael Caine and the lead actors in the later Gary films. Oldman, yeah. And Gary Oldman. Well, they and bring Morgan a Freeman, which they... has yeah, recently become a little bit problematic as well, which is a real shame. Go on. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I'm going to stop saying stuff, prefacing everything. We say it's interesting, but <laughs> but it is. These films have many faults, and one of them being is that they're, they're arguably they're poorly written, and they rely upon a better class of actor coming in and, and selling the, the terrible lines with panache and charm, isn't it? It's, but I think that that's X-Men as well. I think Oh, X-Men definitely X-Men, is, um, yeah. I mean, it's the Patrick it? Stewart, Ian McKellen thing. It's like, oh, this is this is so charming. <laughs> there are, there are, there are some, there well. some good yeah. lines in X-Men. I can't remember the name, the name of the guard, but uh, in X-Men 2, the, where Mystique dopes the guard with uh, the iron supplements. Yeah. And, uh, and Magneto turns out, you know, I can't remember what the name of the guard is, but, you know, Never trust an attractive woman, Mr. Da-da-da, especially when she's interested in you. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing there is... Um, but that's the thing, is that there are great lines in all these films, but it's an interesting point that you said about the writing, because your writing is... Sometimes the zingers will cover the flaws. Yeah, that's certainly plot. a Marvel thing, isn't it? It's... Yeah, it's, um, yeah, so to get back to Batman Begins... <laughs> <laughs> so I watched out Batman Begins the first time, and I thought, yeah, that was really good. I really enjoyed it. There were certain things in there I thought weren't as explored as well as they could have been. One of them was the fact that, because the whole thing, and again, we're going to presume that you've seen the Batman films, when uh, the fear toxin gets released, everyone sees Batman as this monster. 
and they see him almost as like a child. He's like a kite at one point, isn't he? When he flies above them, mm. he looks like a child's kite because it's such a strange image. Your mind would infantilise what you're seeing because it's also a bit silly. It's this big bat. And I thought that was a really interesting concept that wasn't as well explored as it could have been. But I did actually change my mind on a second viewing and thought, um, I don't think we need to see any more of that. I think that actually landed that quite well. And there were certain things around... It seemed as if Batman was easily overpowered a few times in that film, like when all the people get on top of him and it becomes like a zombie image. Mm. And then he you know, hooks onto the train and gets off. And I thought, well, that's just very good for you to get to the train for the plotting aspect of it to wrap this film up. But I just don't think that people would have swamped you like that if you looked like a demon. But on the whole, it was, it was when I saw it again. And I was saying to you yesterday, Batman Begins was a modest success. Uh, I've written down how much it made. It made 400 million worldwide. Batman, sorry, The Dark Knight made more money in its first six days in the States than Batman Begins did in its entire run. Hmm. I can't, so I can't Begins... think of any other superhero comparison that, uh, <laughs> from, from recent years where that's <laughs> yes, been the case. That's right. Sorry, that, sorry that's, uh, that is a, uh, an Avengers versus the Justice League. <laughs> yes, the Justice League was completely failed. Yeah, anyway. And it was one of those films that came out, but The Dark Knight was on at the Odeon Letter Square, and that's the only place in central London, in the West End, that you could see it. But Batman Begins, it's clear that Warner said, we think this is a good film, we think that this reboot has worked, but this is not a hugely special film to us in terms of it. Yeah, we want to put it into as many cinemas as possible to get a big return on it. So it was in Odeon Leicester Square, it was in the Warner Cinema next door, and it was also in the Cineworld at the Trocadero, as it then was, which is where I saw it, because I got a Cineworld card and didn't need to pay. But um, And watched it again and thought, that, that is great. In a way, I think that Batman Begins is the most completely successful of all the three films from that trilogy, even though I think that The Dark Knight is a much more impressive film. It might be an unfair criticism. Is the least thematically ambitious out of them? Batman Begins. Yeah, is it, it, well, is, you know, in the way, same way that we've talked about Force Awakens previously, is, it's the rescue mission. It's the thing that has to set up and say, actually, we need to make this into a franchise that can stand on its own two feet, that people want to watch again. And the fact that, you know, it's got Christopher Nolan and it's got such a talented cast and crew behind it. It's, it's a great superhero film and I think a really good Batman film in its own right. But people don't, tend to, people don't tend to talk about it in the same way that they talk about Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises because it doesn't quite operate in the same way. You know, look at Dark Knight and you can go, okay, heat. And you look at Dark Knight Rises, you can go, okay, Taylor, two cities. And as you said, we'll develop into a bit, lend some of the elements from The Tempest. Mm. But you don't necessarily look at Batman Begins and say immediately, okay, it's got the same sort of... I don't... That's, I, I, like, I like the observation. It's, it was a Batman film that concentrated on Bruce Wayne. And that was a way of telling the story that's not been told before. I watched it with a friend of mine, and she knew Batman. She'd watched all the, the Batman films, but watched them call out the corner of her eye. It's not something she's necessarily interested in. It's just you, you happen to see these films. But I went with her to see Batman Begins, and she was tearing up when uh, Bruce's parents get killed. And she sort of turned to me, I had no idea his parents. That's why he became Batman. She must have seen the Jack Nicholson one and whatnot, but it had not really sunk in. This was a film where it's like, oh, there is a human. There's actual people have human emotions in this why film. Why did she think he became Batman? But then if you think about it, that doesn't get talked. I mean, it's, but it's in the first yeah. film, in the in, in 89 Batman, it's like, well, why is he dressed like a bat? There's one line where he says, bats, they're great survivors. But it's like, it's kind of like left in that sort of dreamy logic that he wants to look scary. And that's yeah, I, I, I love I love the idea of just not knowing that story and of trying to apply a rationale to it. It's like rich guy hobby. Doesn't work. Yeah. But, he, that, but that's that's but part think, of the script for the, the original Batman film that it was supposed to be a bit of a screwball comedy about a man who gets himself into a fix. He's got so much money and so much time on his hands. 
follows these little obsessions down the rabbit hole. We've all been there. Someone's passing around a weaponized hallucinogen <laughs> and suddenly you're spending your nights dressed oh, in please make black that, rubber. Please make that the next <laughs> Batman film. Just take out the tragic origins and just lean into... Oh, that would be fantastic. But no, but then we're right back at Batman 66 That's where right, yeah, he does because... talk about his parents. If it wasn't for my parents being murdered by dastardly villains. And like I think he name checks the death of his parents twice in, in the Adam West series. Right. But it's basically, the whole idea is... Well, it's what a decent person would do is to fight for justice. And it's like, but that's, yeah, and that's heroism for its own sake. Yeah, and which is one of the things about superheroes, isn't it? It's that they all have a backstory. It's typically around the death of a loved one. But there is also a thing that they do this because I have these powers, therefore it's heroism for its own sake, which is why I think we are drawn to these stories. But I think also, I know what you mean about Batman Begins, because there's not as much the shot on location even though it is the widest of all Batman films up to that point of him actually going out of Gotham. So he goes off to you know, the Himalayas at one point to study the ways of the League of Shadows. And that seemed new and fresh when we saw it. It was like, oh, look at this. It's, it's a Batman film that's got Outside Gotham. real locations. It's mm, got yeah. frozen tundras. It's a different take on this character. As you said, it's actually focusing on this character much more than we have before in a way that we're just going to spend time with this character. It's, an, I think, an hour and three minutes on the Blu-ray before you see Batman. So the first hour of that film is just about him. And and obviously no superhero since has ever been to the Himalayas to learn a set of skills. <laughs> yes, that's right. Honestly, no, the cultural lack of vocabulary yes. is just... <laughs> no privileged white man has ever gone to the Himalayas to learn a set of skills from mystical people from the East that will make him be the best. Of, actually better than them, isn't it? Yeah, much, much, much better, better than, than them. them. We are, of course, talking about Doctor Strange. Um, which was the, and Iron Fist and Iron Fist of yeah. course yes indeed the um, incredibly memorable Iron Fist oh, they don't even show him punching the dragon <laughs> they just they bottle on well, the only interesting part of that character Zamo punched, punched the dragon but all he got was a smack on the nose <laughs> <laughs> he's the joker <laughs> oh yes um, one of the things we should say about this and I'm actually amazed that we've got to 22 and a half minutes I'm amazed we've got to 22 and a half minutes without doing a voice there is going to be some great voice work in this podcast because... so, let's rephrase there's going to be some voice work in this there's podcast there's going to be some great spirited attempts at voice work in this podcast because if the Nolan films have given us something else and they've given us lots of things it has given two good films two <laughs> It has given us lots of interesting voice work from very good actors. You wanted me. Here I am. This is a world you never understand. And you always fear. What you don't understand. You want my opinion? You need to lighten up. You see, this is how crazy Batman's made Gotham. You think I want to escape from this? There is no escape from this. Well, perhaps he's wondering why someone would shoot a man before throwing him out of a plane. Anyway, so Batman begins, but I know what you mean because The Dark Knight was shot on location and it was shot on location in IMAX. And even when you just watch it on the Blu-rays, so the aspect ratio shifts, it looks bigger. The last two films look bigger than the first film, even though mm. the first film does have a nice um, epic sweep to it. There is just something about those other two films where it's like, okay, we, this is going to be what I wanted to do for the first film. 
Nolan has said, um, no, sorry, it was it was Nathan Crowley, who was the production designer, who said, the Dark Knight was what we thought about for Batman Begins, but we thought that an audience would want to see a more gothic Gotham, which is why you get a, um, a mix of the two, because there are lots of early scenes in Gotham that look like the Dark Knight, but a lot of the latter half of the film is set in the Narrows, which is like, you know, the slum area where Arkham Asylum is. That yes. looks much more Gotham. But also, um, that the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises obviously have those two scenes in IMAX, Prologue scenes. Prologue scenes in IMAX, yeah. and that really, both I think both those films, they set out their stalls in such a mm. deliberate way in terms they're of what they're doing. Amazing prologues, aren't they? I mean, they're yeah. back to the James Bond thing, where you get a mini-movie that is, yeah, you're cold open. The cold open, yeah. yeah. And we'll get onto that. There are so many things to get onto, but we will get onto the prologues, because you're right, that's what set The Dark Knight as something. This is, this is just different. Look at how big this is. Huge, sprawling city with these people in there who are doing these things, and at the, and at the start, they're not really noticed, it's it's just a bank job and it becomes something that takes over the city by the end of it. But of course, there was going to be another realistic version that was going to be directed by Darren Aronofsky. Mm. Which is when the, the intimidation game kind of aspect came from. the. Uh... And that was going to be... I think he worked with Frank Miller on that. Yes, Frank Miller did a... Um, I don't know if he did the script, but he certainly did a story treatment where it was Bruce Wayne has no money and yeah. is raised by um, a garage mechanic, Big Al. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. there's some really good... Frank, when Frank Miller's on form and not a frothing racist, he sort of does have the. Um, he talks about how his favourite Batman is the Batman from the '40s serials on screen, on screen, because he's just like a big guy in a suit. He's clearly put together himself, and he goes out and he punishes villains. And it's like that kind of like it's absurd to say blue collar in this context, but that kind of like that sense. It's very physical immediate and it's not about the gadgets and it's not about the money it's just about going out and being a bruiser and it's kind of like apparently what that that story was going to be wasn't it that's right because he was it was it ties into the dark knight rises he was going to be the billionaire who then loses all of his money and ends up on the streets and then gets taken in by big al and it's big al who basically builds all of his gadgets for him Mm. um and they were talking about the Batmobile as being a Lincoln with a couple of bus engines in it. So they would just... <laughs> which would be quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. A big black Lincoln. And I think, well, yeah, I kind of see that as if Frank Miller's talking about because that would have been a really cool car during the 40s. I would love to have and seen that version. It's just a real shame that Frank Miller never made a film set in that... a superhero film set in that era, <laughs> drawing from the stylistic yes. pulp. Oh, yeah, you know, no one's ever watched Spirit a second time. But the fact, the way that he was... Ripped, ripped off probably he probably sold an awful lot of comics with the back of it but Robocop being the Dark Knight Returns and him getting involved in writing the script for Robocop 2 and Robocop 3 didn't he yeah although yeah. Robocop of course was Judge Dredd as well I mean the original oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, helmets of Robocop were well that's just Judge Dredd but no that's right it, it was one of those things that picked up what was good and what was popular from comics around the time as did the Dark Knight and it's interesting what you said about this isn't an adaptation of any particular comic but they were and you're right that Nolan did say yeah this was based on these comics and we drew from these comics because I think that he had to say, we are changing this. And you read the interviews, those early interviews, and they were all quite worried in a way. Because no one liked Batman after Batman and Robin. It was a flop. It was one of those things where it, it had just become the camp. that The Burton film was supposed to be a response to the 60s film, and it was going to be this dark and gritty Batman. And, and you watch it now, and it's like... It's every bit as stylized and fanciful yeah. and full of life as yep. Batman 66 in its own 80s way absolutely right. do you do you kind of need the needle though to go back and forth on that you kind of yeah. you kind of need the needle to swing between camp and dark and after the Dark Knight trilogy instead of it swinging back towards camp it just swung ever further into more dark and more self-serious it just got stuck it just yeah. got stuck well, the, yeah because Bond keeps doing that doesn't it Bond will start off as gritty and serious it becomes camp and then it has to go back and start all over again 
And the Dark Knight trilogy, I don't think ever did slip into camp, although there are campy elements of it. But yeah, those early interviews, you can see them kind of saying, well, it was so camp with that that we've decided to do something completely different. And the writer, David S. Goy, said we either had to go back to the beginning and do something new and fresh with that on film, or we had to go into the future like Batman Beyond, which was a cartoon of the time. Was it that Bruce Wayne had become the mentor figure for the new Batman? Or for Terry like McGuinness. Yeah, I love Batman Beyond. Batman Beyond's a fantastic, and the way it was put together is... It says what we're talking about telling a story with a beginning, middle and end, the animated universe. I mean, that was kickstarted off the back of Batman Returns to the fact that the, the character design for Batman animated series was very much, OK, well, this is what the penguin looks like when he's played by Danny DeVito. That's what your penguin looks like. But then it quickly developed its own sense. And yeah. only in the case of over the course of three, four years yeah, making episodes, one. they were then sort of like, well, we're not going to make any more of that Batman we want, and they're, they're, apparently the producers were told, well, we want Batman to be younger now. We want Robin in every episode. We want a younger Batman. But instead of going back and undoing all the stories that they're told with the Kevin Conroy and the Bruce Timm universe, whatever, they said, well, okay, Bruce Wayne's now an old man. So he's gone through that whole thing. Now he's living in the future in this Akira landscape and he's training an, a young person to be the new Batman. And of course, by doing that, they co-opt an awful lot of Spider-Man mythology into it. But it also tells a nice Bruce Wayne story that you've seen Bruce Wayne as a young man You've seen him grow up and now you're seeing him as a 90-year-old man. And he's still very much the same person, but having gone through an extra 40 years of life. I think that's really well done. After they did Batman Beyond, they did the Justice League cartoon. And the Justice League cartoon started off as being the the main superheroes for Justice League couple of series, wasn't it? And then they did Justice League Unlimited, which is like how they bowed out. And that's just masterful. A massive cast of characters all interacting in their own way with their own unique points of view. And no one has to be in an episode. They can pick and choose. Here's an episode with a question. Here's an episode with Power Girl. Here's an episode all about Lex Luthor. And you can tell a mosaic, ranging, vast story full of character and invention without repeating yourself. And then you do two series of that and you're out. And it's like, great storytelling. I want the next Batman movie to be a Batman Beyond adaptation. At this point, I don't want... I want the DC Universe to just say, okay, none of our films are interrelated. We will just do interesting stories that happen to take place involving Batman characters. Well, I think... And, a, and I think... Well, they've intimated that that's going to be the way they're going to move. What, with the Joker film that's coming, and yeah. And they've said that these... And I think they actually said that the next Batman film will not necessarily be based in that Justice League universe. He came back from that, wasn't it? That was... Is Matt Reeves? Is that originally, oh, really, he'd, he'd said something that had been yeah. interpreted as saying, oh, wow, so it's not going to be set the Batman universe I think what he actually said was it's going to be a different style oh, and so then he kind of like dialed it back and said no but to be honest everything about that seems so give us ugly and misshapen yeah it does you shouldn't be able to see so much behind the scenes trauma for a superhero film yeah. when they're all fundamentally identical yeah. <laughs> it shouldn't be like rocket science just, to kind of put one of these things together <laughs> just give us a Batman Beyond film with Michael Keaton George Clooney. I mean, I've said it before. George Clooney should have been given that if they were if they were going to be starting with an older Batman, give it to George Clooney. Yeah, he should have been Batman and Batman versus Superman. It still wouldn't have been very good, but it would have been very interesting. Although I thought that Ben Affleck actually was the best thing in that film. Yeah. Even like, apart from when he was um, gunning people, killing everyone, with a gun. He can't even drive his car in a straight line. He just drove right through my boat. <laughs> he just drove through a bus full of nuns. No <laughs> penguins. Nuns holding orphans. But you're an orphan. <laughs> Yeah, Penguins, sorry. <laughs> to go back to Batman Begins, so the comics that it drew from, so I thought, yes, okay, so this is year one. All the comics that I was reading around the time were the ones that Ian said, right, now you read that, now you read that, now you read that. And it was really handy to have someone I think I said, like, now you read this. Yeah, you, so now you read this one. Did you basically My Fair Lady Rob? Fine, George, you've got it. <laughs> as much as... The rain in Spain falls mainly on the Bruce Wayne. <laughs> it falls mainly on the Bane. <laughs> 
feel in charge? And He's doing Rex Harrison. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Which was handy because, as you said, like all these things, these are yeah, these things have been running for decades, and there's so much of it. And you go into Forbidden Planet, and there's a Batman comic with a pretty good cover, and you go, oh, okay, let's look at this one. This one is no- is number nine hundred eighty nine. <laughs> Fuck you, go. Fuck <laughs> How do you get into this stuff? And you said, okay, right. So this is actually this is a pretty good reading list. So I was doing that from the late nineties into the time that this film got released, and thought, yeah, this is really interesting, and. And year one is a really good take on how you would start Batman again. He would be someone who doesn't have his outfit to begin with. And these were seem like obvious things now. But when this film came out, for an audience, that was novel. That he wouldn't just have all this stuff. He would have to make it or have to order it. And he would first go out in like a ski mask. And hockey pads. Well, yeah, kind of like, you know, just <laughs> a good climbing outfit. And would kind of you know, begin like that. And then... And that's one of the nice things in the film, I think, is when he starts to get all these things from it and they're having to order in bulk and put it together themselves so as you know, no one gets a bit suspicious as to what's happening. There's a really nice line when they get the helmet and they're all... It's too brittle. Uh, that's right, yeah. It's a problem with the graphite, sir. The next 10,000 will be up to specifications. At least they gave us a discount. Right. In the uh, meantime, sir, may I suggest you try to avoid landing on your head? And he just gives that small smile. Yeah, there's um, lots of nice character touches. But that's yeah. that's it, isn't it? it? It doesn't just bring a certain logic. It brings a certain warmth for the characters and for them to be characters rather than vessels for punching. Mm. And that's that's what makes the first one in particular, I think, really quite special. Yeah. I love the relationship between Bruce and Alfred in the first film. No, it is. Yeah, it is great. And it's, you have the wide-eyed enthusiasm of someone who's about to go off on a big adventure and someone who is kind of trying to make sure he doesn't hurt himself a lot. <laughs> And that comes through. And then so Alfred, after the chase with the Batmobile, says the reason I didn't call the men in the white coats is because you said this wouldn't be about thrill-seeking. It's like, it's not. What do you call that then? Damn fine television. So good. And it is damn fine television. <laughs> that chase with the Batmobile. Again, it's like, this is great. Because Christopher Nolan can direct action a bit better than any previous Batman film director, I think. I don't think yeah. Burton and Schumacher were particularly good at... Well, it's all given over to second unit. Mm. And there was no second unit on Batman Begins. Chris Nolan said to the cinematographer... Wally Fister, okay. Um, <laughs> Once again, kids, work hard in school. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Let's shoot the entire thing ourselves. There won't be a second unit, which again for the time was unusual because you would just get the second unit to film the burning car or something mm. like that. And he was saying, no, he said, it's actually cheaper if I do it because I won't shoot all the coverage that a second unit crew will just get every single angle and shoot everything but and I then think, I'll choose from it I think that was a money saving sort of effort I think he's been quite wally tight fisted <laughs> <laughs> I thought my jokes were bad <laughs> and it was, was good that it was like we have to reinvent Batman we can't also be reinventing all the big villains you know we mm. have to present new characters in to film that most people haven't heard of or aren't completely familiar with because we can just present them and not have to say right this is the joker is not like you've seen before so raj al ghul who was um was he the 70s was he was he created in, in yeah the 70s? and that was lovely because they were doing exactly the same thing with the batman comics at that time they were getting bored of telling the same stories all over again and i can't remember it's, it's I don't remember. I would do him a disservice by getting the name wrong. He said, I've got this great name for a villain, Rachel Ghoul. It means literally the demon's head. Hmm. And so they gave that name to uh, Denny O'Neill. And 
he t- he created the character who would be like who would be a new Batman villain we've done Penguin joke all the time and it was like a, a little bit of James Bond influence a little bit of new you know just and it would be breaking out of Gotham and to create a new look and that was the character they went with and it was it, it all came from this attempt to be doing something new and so you wound up with a new era of Batman where he was globe trotting it's like um that's Grant Morrison who wrote years later described him as the, the hairy chested love god Batman and it was like yeah because <laughs> he's always having sword fights in the desert with his sh- shirt off so he was a milk tray Batman <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing wasn't it these things will react to their time and James Bond yeah was really big during the 60s and 70s and, and it's great that in, when they're trying to reinvent Batman later on they, they brought Ra's al Ghul back into it having not done it. it's like oh we haven't touched him yet and he was that Batman trying, franchise trying to reinvent itself and expand yeah. itself so it kind of works on a very much so and it is kind of I think it is interesting because it's this whole thing isn't there it's like they are stories for undemanding children about people <laughs> punching their problems away and dressing up and being the hero and it's like he's the wealthiest man in the world and it's like he just just does whatever he likes and what he wants to do is punch people and it's like these are really really boring stories on some level and yet at the same time boring stories that have been told in a universe for 80 years and you see it ebb and you flow and you can see the mechanics of a corporate mascot against individual creators building something. Some stuff sticks, some stuff gets forgotten about, something slowly creeps. It's like Harley Quinn a couple of years ago. You know, Harley Quinn's only been around for like 25 years and she was a hench wench in the animated series. Gonna call in a specialist, boss? No, no. Just an old friend who's dying to do me a favour. You know, Paul, it was created for the series rather than for the comic. Absolutely. Paul Dini had a friend who, um, Arlene Sorkin, who was an mm. actress, and he they were good friends. He liked her, um, something that she'd done where she'd been dressed up as like a, like a, like a Harlequin in a TV show she'd been. And they needed someone to be a bit of colour in the background as one of the Joker's henchmen. And there was Harley. And then that's like, that's like a throwaway thing that's just stuck to the story and carried on going throughout it. And I think it's quite nice to sort of see that act of creation over 80 years. It's kind of like, you don't yeah. see that every day. It's sort of like, are you, and it's not always just telling the same thing. You do, like you say, it, when Frank Miller was writing the Batman stories that stuck in the 80s, it was about New York on its knees. And what you were frightened of was the mugger down the alleyway. And it's like, well, that's not really what Christopher Nolan's interested in telling in Batman Begins, and certainly not in Dark Knight or Dark Knight Rises. What he's frightened about is post 9-11 world mm. where the, the the threat is from terrorists rather yeah. than street muggers and yeah. it's the same thing um you, you sort of see that or what we're frightened of what we're acting against when they start talking about batman in terms of the psychology of batman it's like how nonsensical how many angels can dance in the head of a pin but it's like yeah but it's also quite interesting to see this is how a child deals with a tragedy and that's the thing when you were saying earlier about interpret you know whether or not whether or not a film is a good film is a different question whether it's a good batman film it's all about interpret how you interpret this stuff and how you attempt to but you how you bring a reading of it yes definitely that's one of those things that suggests that there is a perfect way of doing this character and it's like is it not that this character is broad enough that it can be Definitely, but you're absolutely way of doing Hamlet. Like, you know, Denny O'Neill said that he, there's a brilliant portfolio. I got I lucked out and got this portfolio of Batman prints, um, and it was the introduction was Denny O'Neill, and it was like saying, "Batman is Hamlet. Every artist gets to do their own version of Batman. They're all equally valid, and it's they're just different views of the same character." He's like talks about how he didn't have a problem with Batman '66. He said it, it perfectly works to do Batman as a joke. It's just it's only one joke. And so for mm-hmm. him, it wasn't necessarily working. But it's think Batman 66 is more than 50 years old now. We've just had 
two animated movies with Adam West, Burt Ward and Julie Newmar. And it's like, there's absolutely life in that idea of the character. And on the plus side, the Zack Snyder films have since done Batman as all the jokes. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing that they, well, Justice League really has said, right, we're just going to try and pull together everything that you've liked about all these characters and we'll just mix it all up. The Nolan take on this character was it has to be completely real. As in, we have to be able to put this into a real-world setting and explain how you would be able to do what Batman does. So therefore, he would go to ninja school. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't get into ninja school. I, I no. tried to get into ninja school three times. Postcode lottery. It's just, it is postcode lottery, actually. And it's also... I've got uh, flat feet. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a postcode lottery. It is, it is, it is classes, basically. <laughs> and I was very, very disappointed with that. It to be so um, wide and so privileged. Yeah, so he goes to the League of Shadows, which, and is that from the Rajal Ghul? No, 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 no. It's, it's really clever the, the way they, they uh, I do think they pick out and they pull stuff together and they, they make it work incredibly well. I think the Rachel Gould character when he starts, he's just an international terrorist. He's basically the same character you see in, in Batman Begins. It's his, they describe as, these days there's an eco-terrorist. It's the Thanos thing. It's like this world can't survive on limited resources, so I'm going to have to kill most of the humans and then, you know, we'll be fine. Yeah. It's like, mm, yes, <laughs> whatever. But that's what his situation comes from. And I think in the comics he's looking for an heir. So it's like, only Batman is good enough to date my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where that story starts from. But the whole, the ninja thing is, yeah. For me, I think it's a flaw that it's it's like, oh, he just learns how to become a ninja. And it is like, it's like Harry Potter, isn't it? It's... Um, but it's he did go to Hogwarts. <laughs> he did go to Hogwarts. He goes to a particularly he goes to Hogwarts boot camp. <laughs> but I remember you saying that afterwards, saying, "Yeah, the fact that he's just a ninja though, and he's not Batman." That pissed off a lot of ninjas that day. But I think that there's like the least good ninja is still a great ninja, but the best good ninja is Batman. <laughs> and he is better than all the other ninjas. Is the least good ninja still a good ninja? Yeah, because he's a ninja. But yes, in terms of how could you be Batman, you would go to ninja school and you would emerge a great ninja. And then how would you, what would you need everything for? Like, yeah, so Chris Nolan, and I think this is going to annoy you, and it was, why does he have such big ears? Yeah, why does he need to look like a bat? What do the ears do? So, well, the ears are, of course, like, you know, the radios thing, so you can hear all the different things from all the police scanners and things like that. What does every single part of all of his equipment do in this real world? Does the scarecrow have to have a mask? Why does he have to have a mask? Because it's a gas mask that protects him from the fear toxin that he's releasing. And it's, I mean, I don't entirely agree with that. I think he has a mask because he's insane. And you can imagine him putting it on and tormenting his inmates with it. I think it's... This is the scarecrow, sorry, who runs Arkham Asylum, Jonathan Crane. Sorry, go on. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. And I think he, he I, again, it's like these are summer tentpole films where you get an awful lot of the director saying why he was doing what he was doing. And it's like... This film doesn't shouldn't need an awful lot of explanation. Your thesis as to why you're making a Batman film this way, especially since you seem to be protesting a bit too much. The whole thing about set in the real world. This is a film where you have a microwave emitter that can vaporize water and turn it into vapor, and yet doesn't affect people. It's like it's the it's yeah. so much. There is so much stuff in it that is palpable nonsense that it's like, why would you want to be realistic when you're making? A Batman film. I think it's because it's... It's verisimilitude, isn't it? You're trying to sell the illusion that this is the real world because that's how you get engagement. But fundamentally, right, no one wants to go and see a real-life Batman film. It's like, it's... Well, obviously, people did, but they weren't but seeing a real-life Batman film. They were seeing a film where... You're right, but it is the verisimilitude because what we'd had, particularly from the street market Batman films, was very, very broad pantomime that was just bizarre and just didn't work and yeah. then you sort of say okay right well let's just go the other way then and we will give what seems like a realistic batman film but of course like there's a moment 
in Batman Begins when the Scarecrow sets him on fire and he jumps out of a window and falls about six floors or something, but he's not burnt. His face doesn't get burnt. And it's like, well, this is not a realistic Batman film. This is yeah, this is all about having the illusion of looking like a realistic Batman film. Theatricality and deception, yeah. And also, question. if you take Sorry, it too far, isn't it just about a traumatised billionaire beating up the work, beating up, like, you know... Beating up poor people. people. Beating up poor people, yeah. because, you know, all the villains are fundamentally ridiculous, and therefore... But that's the thing, is that the villains in the Dark Knight trilogy are not working class. They're mm. either revolutionaries, or they are... Organised crime, yeah. Or, yeah, or they're the elite. I mean, yeah, Raj al Ghul is the elite. And that... I think was a conscious shift away from here is this Mothers, guy, yeah. yeah, yeah, here is this guy who has all the money in the world and is going to go and punish those that don't have anything. That's yeah. Sorry, you go on, you go on. No, just the um, I'm Batman. What are you? I'm Batman. Was the first time that was said in the Batman '89 movie as that being the way to introduce this character? Yeah, because it was the trailer. My understanding is Batman '89 was made in a real hurry. It wasn't like the world was clamouring to have a Batman movie, but there was, and that it had all the stuff about Michael Keaton's being Mr. Mom is Batman. How on earth? What nonsense? Comedian? Blah blah blah. And Jack Nicholson is not right for the Joker. There was well, it was the Heath Ledger thing again. But then, it, was, um, honest, it turned out the fans were always right. That's so. <laughs> exactly. Always give the fans exactly what they want. That's that's all great art comes from that. Because Jack Nicholson, <laughs> remember what he said to the cast when they first arrived on set. And it was one of those things where there was a lot of controversy around the casting. And he said, don't worry, kids. The costumes are going to do the acting in this one. Yeah, but then he gives... <laughs> but he, he gives an amazing he, performance. He gives an amazing performance. And he is also the best advert for that film. It's like, my parents were interested in watching Batman because it was a Jack Nicholson film. Yeah. And Jack Nicholson was, was talking so much... I mean, I think he was recruited via doing it with Witches of Eastwick, wasn't he? So he was on the Warners universe from Witches of Eastwick, and then they... Well, I think it's because... Um, the Warners expanded universe. Watching that, yeah, I'd, I'd watch that. <laughs> yeah. it, because John Peters and Peter Goober, who produced Batman, also did Witches of Eastwick, yeah. I think. So, yeah, so they had... So that put them in the room with him. Yeah. But it was that idea, because he's a, he's a wonderful aficionado of pop culture, isn't he, and pop art, and that whole idea that the Joker is... It's kind of like put the cart of... before the horse. So when you see the Riddler character and the Two-Face character, they're kind of aping what they think Jack Nicholson is doing in Batman. But in yeah. Batman, they all were in one film. Jack Nicholson, the Joker, knows he's in a film. He's doing the Deadpool thing. He's like, everything is just not right. His head's wired incorrectly. But he's doing it in a very literal way of this symbolic toxic mess of a character and so it is original what jack nicholson's doing we all just think now it's like well that's how supervillains act in supervillain films they're all crazy and it's like <laughs> that's not really what he's doing in that there's it's more sly and it's more sort of like and it, when you see the interviews when he's talking about it's a playing card it's like i'm a living playing card i'm a, i've literally survived nuclear waste <laughs> and this is what comes out of that and it's like that's not realistic that is like Okay, this is a bizarre way of doing a film. This is a bizarre performance. This would be the character whose core, while totally determinant of the part, was the least limiting of any I would ever encounter. You know, this is a more literary way of approaching than I might have had as a kid when I read the comics, but, you know, you have to get specific. In a way, his specifics broadened it rather than what you normally use specifics for so you don't drift. His specifics are he's not wired up the same way. This guy has survived nuclear waste immersion here. I have given a name to my pain. A mysterious figure. And it is Batman. Here and disappear. 
And in the, well, the, the whole art gallery sequence is essentially... Yes, and he's, like, the only painting he saves is the Francis Bacon okay. painting. And he, was, he talks about in interviews as well, saying, he's like, well, I'm an art guy. Going around a gallery disfacing works of art is a revolutionary act, in my yeah. perspective. And it is like... And it's also, a, it's also a music video. It's also like a pop culture artefact, yeah. that, that whole sequence in yeah, itself. Prince, yeah. yeah, Prince doing the songs, which was also controversial. But again, it was from the 80s. It's like, hey, we will have a soundtrack to tie in with, yeah. and it will be Prince because Prince is huge and we will just make this fit because uh, it didn't seem to fit but actually and at the time I thought well I just don't like Prince so therefore I don't like the fact that he's got these songs in this film and I watch it now and think actually the Prince songs are actually fine because it's the same thing it's like it's, 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 it's a unique thing. work of art it's yeah. like this is 1989 we've got Batman and Prince and Jack Nicholson and a Tim <laughs> Burton Anton first production design because we're talking about I'm Batman I'm Batman was because it was there was not a great deal of understanding or necessarily enthusiasm or faith in the movie, so they stitched together a trailer. I think it's literally it's like sixty seconds, and it's not there's no narration over it. It's just clip clip clip. Zero six for bad Gotham City. Winged freak terrorizes, <laughs> and it's like I'm Batman. I'm Batman. They put it together. They stuck it out. There were accounts from all over America about people going just to watch the Batman trailer and then leaving the cinema after that because it was like this is amazing and people were trading the trailer on video cassette at comic cons and whatnot and it's like I remember when we saw it it's like this looks incredible this mm. looks the most I've not seen a film like this before because at the end of the 80s you know we had our Star Wars and Indiana Jones it's like we were kind of like used to what an action film looked like Batman didn't look like that the car looks but, surreal his outfit is bizarre the city yeah. looks insane and it's Jack Nicholson and it's Lando Calrissian and it's like it's just an odd thing the new Batmobile because we of course grew up on the 66 Batmobile yeah. um, and the open top and this one was like this sleek missile it's a it's like, penis missile right yeah, I mean is, it's like it the first time you're looking at going missile. where have I seen that before <laughs> if they do a Batman Beyond movie with Michael Keaton they have to have Billy D. Williams in it as Two-Face mm. well but Billy yeah, D. Williams so. is Two-Face in the Lego Batman yeah, 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 that's right, yeah which is, he's finally which is got to <laughs> he finally got to do it but that was the thing these things always do react to their time so yeah, there was Star Wars and Indiana Jones, but it's like we were talking about yesterday. In the 80s, you would get one Star Wars a year, and now all the films look huge and massive, and it's like, oh, it's just not special anymore. But most of the action films were things like Schwarzenegger films or Stallone films. Well, 89 was Lethal Weapon 2, wasn't it? Yes, it was, that's right, yeah. Or Lethal Weapon or Die Hard. Yeah. And so they weren't fantasy films, but they were films in which it was killings a casual killing was one of those things that we didn't even bat an eye at now but you watch the Batman film now and it's like oh he's you know, blowing lots of people up and killing them but it doesn't seem out of character the way it does in Batman vs Superman because it's an artifact from a previous age and it, and it looks like that I th- yeah it's because we've our brains have changed the way we, we metabolise these films it's yeah. like now it has to be part of a coherent whole all the time and it's like that thing about it being set in the real world shackles us is a, there is another line that Demi O'Neill always quotes is continuity is the hobgoblin of tiny minds and it is like <laughs> the Alan Moore thing with the whatever happened to the man of tomorrow starts off by saying this is an imaginary story because that was how in the, the silver age they used to do strange what if DC stories not that the Marvel what if but it's like and of course they've done the Elseworlds series well that yeah, yeah but yeah. That can, but it, the Alan Moore thing was like saying aped that because he was definitely he was writing a capper to the silver age and he was like saying this is an imaginary story and it's like but aren't they all and it's like, yeah, of course they are. Why try and fit this into this happened on a Monday, this happened on a Tuesday? Let, so, let it be its gonna... own thing. Yeah, exactly. And that's why Batman 89, I think, is brilliant. That's why I think it's nonsense to go into Batman Returns wondering why Vicky Vale's not there. Because it's like the fan service checking that Vicky Vale actually existed. It's like, 
No, it's, it's just another weird world. Yeah, that's the thing. You also don't wander into the next Bond film going, what happened to the Bond girl from the last one? Exactly. It's like, my well, kids, I'm watching you, Bond films with my now. kids. I'm watching with my kids, and they, they're really enjoying the James Bond. They just say, well, where's the girl from the last film? Jaws is in the last film, and in this film, where's the... And it's like... Yeah. Let me tell you about commerce. <laughs> Let me tell you about sexual politics. Let me tell you about sexual politics and fan mail. Um, <laughs> and uh, the fact that this Jaws obviously was brought back because he got more fan mail than James Bond. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing about the 89 Batman, is that you watch it, and the structure of that film is, um, okay, we're going to spend more time really on the Joker and his origins than we are on Batman. And then we're just going to alternate scenes between the two of them for the rest of the film. The structure of that film is basically, so Batman or Bruce Wayne and Joker and, and Batman and Joker and Batman and Joker and they'll meet and then Batman and Joker and it's like, this is incredibly simply put together. Mm, yeah. But what's happening in these scenes is really exhilarating because there are entire scenes that play out where he's just making a collage or something and cutting around the lines and stuff like that. So all, all we're doing here is watching Jack Nicholson be mad, be an insane artist. This is not an action film as we would think of an no, action exactly, film now. Yeah. And also the action, you can see that the scene where Jack Napier, the Jack Nicholson character, gets set up in the Axis chemical plant, there's not a lot of movement of people in there, but it's movement of steam and things like that around them. So it looks like it's a comic book but he's just animating things around them because he's not very good at directing action. Yeah. So therefore, but it's a big important scene where you set up your villain. So therefore, he's going to have other things moving around them to make sure he captures what is important. Really interesting well, way to do that. I think Batman's one, a gargoyle. He's not a ninja. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see an action film that's done like that again, where it seems static, but not in a boring way. Well, that's so, the other style. You introduce, you stylize it to kind of hide the fact that there's not that much... Or the or, limitation of the film. Yeah, exactly. Mm. You sort of go, well, okay, maybe I can't shoot a really dynamic fist fight, but I can shoot it in the matter, matter of German expressionism. Therefore, mm. that my, immediately becomes interesting. My kid's favourite part of Batman 89 is Batman punching the guy who's creeping up behind him. Just yeah. by raising his arm, forearm, and just smacking the guy without even looking at him. And it's like, that always gets a laugh when I watch it with my kids. And it's like, yeah, way to make it work that your hero can't move. Yeah, it's indeed. really good. And that's the other thing, of course, is that that suit meant that he couldn't really move. But that shot was used in the trailer as well. Yeah. And it was like another great shot from the trailer. That was a great trailer. Because I remember seeing it, and it was on the news a lot. Because Batman, when it came out, you were saying yesterday, and that it came out in June in the States and August over here. Yeah. When it came out in August here, it was well into the summer holidays. So it had, it had about three weeks to do its money thinking now that would be released for well, May time, that sort yeah. of time. And the news just kept showing that Batman trailer because of the money it was making and the, and the fact that hype had really helped this film, that you, you couldn't not see this film. And Times Square, oh. the bat signal. Yeah. And, yeah, and it was just trying to get a video in to record that trailer, to watch it again. Yeah, yeah. It was like, I, I, get, I, keep, I keep missing it. <laughs> the, thing is, the trailer, as you say, is kind of a collage. And Yeah, exactly. And I think the film, 89, has more sequences that you can just pull out and you could just watch completely out of context. Yeah. Mm. Whereas, yeah, whereas the Nolan films, especially, you know, you say it's got a beginning, a middle and end, the Dark Knight trilogy, it does have a continuity to it and it does have the evolution of this character. And it's weird because Bond obviously did that with, with the Craig films. And I think now we are in an age of continuity where that really, and DC, and that's turned out to be something that DC can't do anymore and that's so strange it's like thinking about how this is a bunch of sweaty 
people sitting in an office on a Saturday afternoon <laughs> compared to the weight and might of Warner Brothers' creative department. But you would think if you're stuck in a world where people demand this product and will buy this product and all you have to do is be able to produce this product without people bad-mouthing it while it's being made... then Because they're trying to do what Marvel is and Marvel isn't about a character getting older. It's about we're going to build this up so we can introduce a big bad and a big threat but these characters are not going to evolve in any way. I mean, 10 years now of Iron Man... Yeah, changed, changed at all. No, it's no. like... I mean, it's in fact, he's now few... creepy. Infinity War is... It is creepy seeing a man in his 50s swanning around... A, swanning around with that beard, and B, <laughs> still being a sportswear-wearing, louche, everything's a quip and arch, and it's all about him, it's always about how this affects him, and it's like, even when, you know... Won't do spoilers, obviously, for Infinity War, but it's like this, it's all about how it affects him, rather yeah. than, really? Because we're talking about the fate of everything, and yet it's just about how this rich millionaire feels about. I think that's, yeah, that's a limitation of the writing in terms of we have to make this accessible and understandable to people, so therefore... To white millionaires. <laughs> to white, well, no, but, sort of, but that's the underestimating of the audience, because yes. it's like, we need to, and he's the one that everyone likes the most, so we'll show him being sad, and then everyone will know that we... Which you feel sad now. That they should be sad now. But the thing... So, sorry, yeah, just to go back to the plan for Batman. So the Nolan plan for Batman was that it would be a five-year plan. So Gotham in Batman Begins is completely corrupt. It's run by the crime families. He thinks, I will do a short, sharp shock to just make everyone aware of what the problem is. And I will fight crime in a way that is going to just eradicate this. And then we can start again, which is kind of you know, what the League of Shadows is trying to do as well. Then the idea of that is that the crime will end, but then in the Dark Knight, escalation happens because of Batman. It brings out other personality types who are on the wrong side of the law, and it begins to escalate from that, and he can't control what he's been trying to do. And then the Dark Knight Rises is all about trying to bring an end to this and bring an end to this madness that he has created, and then he can then yeah, move on and not be Batman anymore. That's the arc that they wanted to do. There are problems with that arc, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's I think it's great that you're telling us that that's a story, and it's well, like yeah, 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 it might not be the story that other Batman writers would want to tell, but it's 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 certainly a story, and it was certainly successful, and he certainly achieved what he set out to do. Yeah, and I think it was successful. I and think it's it was totally those... told with brutal grace, and there's elements to it that are fantastic. It's the whole idea that oh, I'm taking over the city, and in the third film, it's like no, oh, that's it. It's, I've, I've taken over the city. There is no normal life anymore. This is what we're doing, and we're going to be like this for three, four months or whatever. And it's like the stakes are really high, and they're made to a degree. They're realistically high. That this is what hell would be like for a control freak. <laughs> some element of responsibility. Are there any? And I might be doing it a disservice. Are there any civilians in The Dark Knight Rises? Well, hilariously, that's the thing with all Batman films, isn't it? If you go back and watch Batman 89, it's like, no one lives in this city. (laughs) This city's completely empty. And all of them, because it's all done on sound stages, there are never, there's like four or five extras ever, and the city's always deserted. And that's in Dark Knight Rises, definitely, definitely, isn't it? It's like, where is everybody? (laughs) They're all indoors. At least Batman Begins I, has a couple of scenes in it. And oh, you and can, the mob and the, the freaking out scenes in Dark Knight. You get a yeah. sense of scale there you as do, well. Yeah. yeah, I was watching the Dark Knight Rises thinking, yeah, it does need a shot of people trying to get out. Mm. Um, or like a scene of people trying to get out. People on the bridges you know, being told, we will blow these bridges if you try and come across. You have to go back to your homes. Yeah, stay indoors. We will get food to you. And I would imagine that was shot and they cut it for time. 
because yeah, it's like everyone the streets are empty. And you think, well, the streets and it kind of gets across the fact that the streets are empty, and if you're caught out, you might end up in front of the kangaroo court that is run by the scarecrow, who's back again. But it's also in the Dark Knight, isn't it? At the beginning, but uh, so there's I kind of bought it thinking, yeah, I can I can understand why people wouldn't want to go out. But you do need scenes of them trying to get off the island, and also well, you need you need, you need to have collateral the risk of collateral these people you know whose whose lives are at stake who are not directly yeah, involved in the conflict. That's right. Mm. And they, I think, would have thought, well, we've got that you know, with the orphans being evacuated from the orphanage and on, oh, God, on God, the bus yeah, with John um, Blake and the. But no, you're right. I think it did need at least another couple of scenes because the scenes where where people are going to the rich houses and pulling people out from under That's their dresses. Really well done. Yeah. It's really well done, and yeah. it's that thing. Um, there was a really good video essay by Patrick Willems that I showed in last night at about half two in the morning about why Marvel movies look ugly, why they all look like concrete. And this guy, Patrick Willems, was talking about the fact that there's no real black value in it. It's all grey. And that's why you just get that very, very muted look to all these Marvel films because nothing, there's no black for anything to pop out against. And that scene where everyone is storming the homes of all the rich people is all shot in shadow and things like that. So when that person gets pulled out from under their dresser, mm. it's all in silhouette. And it's like, but you see from the way they're moving and the way that their hands are shaking that there it's is something awful terrifying. going on here. Yeah. yeah, and it's really well done that. It's like, this is... Like when they're marching up the, the avenue and it's yeah. like, fuck, we're going to drop our That's right. I can't believe it. I thought I was going to live so well. I'm leaving so little for the rest of you. I thought that was understood. Yeah. I didn't know there was a storm coming. No one told me there was a storm coming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Literally every film has a character say that. There's a storm coming. <laughs> a storm coming, Mr. Wayne. Whatever it is at the end of Terminator. Allá, viene una tormenta. What did he just say? He said there's a storm coming in. There's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne. Storm's coming. He what says there's the... a storm coming. Extenders. <laughs> 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 But it was impressive to watch those films over the space of a couple of days and say, we start off with Batman Begins and you end with The Dark Knight Rises and you start off with this guy who's a ninja. He goes to ninja school, he comes back and, and, and then you have a film towards the end of the film where people have been pulled out from under their dresses and everything has gone to complete chaos. It's like, well, that this is a... When you graduate from ninja school, you come out, summer come quiet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Keep on going. So anyway, so I think... As that was quite a good joke in my <laughs> time to move on to The Dark Knight, which is going to be celebrating its 10th anniversary on July 18th. I always notoriously take ages to edit these big ones that we do around... JFK was the first one and Reservoir Dogs was the second one because they run quite long and they need to have lots of sound effects put in there and things like that. But I am determined this is going to be out by July 18th so I can... That's the first bit he's going to cut out when he's doing editing, you know that, don't you? No, because you know I, <laughs> you know I like to wallow in my we, own we, Yeah, we need, we, need to keep refer- we need to keep referring to it throughout. So, yeah, July 18th. So, so today is the 2nd of June, so that's more than enough time for you to do that, Rob. <laughs> yeah. I think so. <laughs> so, The Dark Knight. And... Talking about the trailer for Batman, do you remember the teaser trailer for The Dark Knight? Which was just the shot of the Bat logo with light coming from behind it. Oh! It was amazing. Some people just like to watch the world burn. It's the conversation between Bruce and Alfred where they're talking about the mob and the mob have crossed the line. You've crossed the line versa. You hammered them in their desperation. They turned to a man. They did not fully understand. I knew the mob wouldn't go down without a fight. But this is different. They've crossed the line. You crossed the line first, sir. You hammered them, and in their desperation, they turned to a man they didn't fully understand. 
some men aren't looking for anything logical. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. Starting tonight, people will die. I'm a man of my word. <laughs> really exciting that waiting for that film to come out it was wasn't it and that's the thing is that when you first heard the joker people will die starting tonight <laughs> it's like oh oh and then the logo shatters and one of the shards of it turns into a joker playing card and it's yeah. like now <laughs> i want to watch Please. that now and the excitement for it and then when you saw the first trailer and it does that cut there seems to have the shining music on it when you first see the joker and is in the cell and all of his makeups run it's like wow look at that it's a new it's, thing that you've not seen before. And everyone right. loved Jack Nicholson as the Joker, and that's the version everyone held in their heads. And now we're going to do the same character in a completely different way. We're going to make it young instead of making it old and established. He's going to be... Grungy and punk. Exactly. And all, these, all these influences. It's going to be cool but scary. Genuinely scary. Genuinely... And it's like, that is... And crucially... So well done. And also, horribly, the meta baggage comes with it. Like Heath Ledger already being dead, already to be that, yeah, that sense was, that it's like yeah, that's right. there is something. It was final. Something, yeah, something strange about this, and it was yeah, wonderfully done. And that was the hook, isn't it? That's the thing that gets the people coming back. Well, that's the reason why it made a billion. And that's um, the reason when people they, the, I think the filmmakers lost interest in Batman as a character and wanted to tell stories about the villains more again. And it's like, and it's always the trap that the filmmakers fall into. Yeah. And it's but with him, it was like that's a that's such a fantastic performance. Heath was somebody I'd met with over the years for, for different roles. Indeed, I'd, I'd met him for Batman at the same time as I met you know, every actor in town. He explained why he didn't want to do something like that. And he was very polite about it, but uh, very clear. And so I was sort of surprised to get the call because it really more came from his end uh, about wanting to get involved, wanting to talk to me about what we would be doing. And I sat down with him for a couple of hours. There was nothing for him to read, but we saw absolutely eye to eye on the bigger picture idea of who this guy was going to be. We talked about common reference points. We talked about uh, Malcolm McDowell's performance of Clockwork Orange in the film. We talked about Clockwork Orange, the book, and who Alex is in the book is kind of different. We looked at paintings by Francis Bacon for visual reference. We looked at all kinds of things, talked about all kinds of different philosophical ideas behind the Joker and anarchy and chaos and what he would represent. And Heath was just ready to do it. He was ready to do something that that big but it was also one of those things where it's like okay so, so the joker in this one is not the fact that his skin has been bleached by falling into chemical waste he puts his makeup on yeah he is choosing to do that and to put makeup on and you know, by the looks of it to sleep in his makeup and, it's to be strange and strange yeah. in a different way clothing is custom nothing in his pockets but knives and, and lint. lint one thing Heath wanted to do was to apply the makeup himself as an actor saying okay this character would put his own makeup on you know, in, in real life. And so what would that look like if it just got the, the makeup? The thing that stuck from that is he always had makeup on his fingers and under his fingernails and everything, as he would have from, from putting it on just with his hand. And it's like... The, and it's war paint and it's armour. Yeah. It's kind of well, like he the, is... The, the first shot when, he, when, he, when he's taking off the, uh, the, the clown mask... What and doesn't the first kill shot, you, only makes you stranger. It's yeah. like... That's, 
great because that's the first joke of the film. The first joke of the film is that he pulls off his clown mask and he's wearing a clown mask. Yeah. It's like, and the clown mask is the version taken from Batman 66. That's right. And it's yeah. like, but for why? Other than to say, this is a cultural phenomenon. This is a virus. This is something that's just wrong and it's always been there. And it's, and it's so, attractive yeah. and it's seductive and it hates you. Mm. And it's going to be laughing all the way. It's done so incredibly well. The yellow teeth, you know, they're constantly yeah. licking at the scars and little lizard tongue and the, the, the twitchiness of it and the offence when he gets called crazy in the first scene. And that's just yeah, wait. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, yeah, we, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Lots yeah. of things around that in terms of it seems to have come from this and this. Tom Waits, I'll put a bit of the interview on where, um, can you remember the time that was taken, that interview? No, I, 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 I think, I think it so. might have been... The early eighties. Early eighties, yeah. It if was, you just type, just interview, type in yeah. Tom Waits, Tom Waits Joker wow. okay, onto yeah. YouTube, I'll put a bit of sound on there because it is quite remarkable. There are some points where he does sound like the Joker. Let's wind the clocks back a year. These cops and lawyers wouldn't dare cross any of you. I have a growing level of popularity uh, throughout the uh, intercontinental United States, uh, <laughs> Japan, and. Uh, I travel extensively in Europe as well. You see a guy like me. I've performed in Dublin and done very well there as well. What happened? Did your, your balls drop off? Hmm? I feel like I'm at my grandmother's. Also, there was a huge amount of controversy that Jack Nicholson was cast as a Joker and Michael Keaton was cast as Batman. See, I don't remember the Jack Nicholson and Joker controversy. Yeah, I remember there was like right. one of those things where it was like, He's not the Joker. He's too fat to be the Joker, was one of them. He is a short, fat man. It needs to be Cesar Romero. And it was like, everyone had an image of the Joker from the comics. It was mm. like, you know, you need to cast... Well, Peter O'Toole, you were talking about, was one of the ones that... They was would, the, Denny O'Neill was talking about Peter O'Toole being... Would have been a fantastic Joker. And it's like, yeah, that wonderful, gaunt, angled, superior sense yeah. of humour. And yeah, it, it would have been fantastic. See, my, my memory of it is that it was like, oh yeah, it's a no-brainer. Jack Nicholson, yes, Jack Nicholson's the Joker. And it's almost what? like that was what got everyone involved. It's like, we're going to do Batman. Jack Nicholson's the Joker. It's like, oh, wonderful, take my money. Well, for me, it worked really well because when I was 14, Jack Nicholson was my favourite actor. Yeah, so you saw Cuckoo's Nest and The Shining. Yeah. And Witches of Eastwick and just everything that he was in, basically. It's like, this great. And he's going to be the Joker now. That's actually fantastic. I remember looking on the poster because I always assumed he would be the supporter because it's still Batman. Mm. So therefore, where is Jack Nicholson's name on this? Oh, it's just there. It's the first name, name you see. Exactly. It's like Nicholson and Keaton. So, like, oh, wow. So he's getting top billing for this because the Joker, there is just something about the Joker that, that the public responds to. It's, 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 there is, well, it's a really, as much as Batman is a really seductive character, the Joker, just this guy who just has... The man who doesn't care. That's Batman right, yeah. is kind of predicated on his villains. He needs, because Batman is this guy, is this, this billionaire who's got this drive. As you said, Ian, if, you know, if, he, if he wasn't fighting the Joker, he would be out there taking on muggers. And you need to present, and that's the thing, and these characters are larger than life and are eccentric and are alluring and are... In a way that you know, Batman is quite straight laced, despite all, despite the fact of what he does. Well, this is a, a hilarious thing about the problems you get into when you're telling long form stories, isn't yeah. it? Because he's like he has to be defined by his antagonists, who become protagonists. It's like, and I know I'm in a minority. I I have a lot of time for Batman v Superman entirely for the reason that it makes Batman the protagonist. Batman is is playing the villain role in a superhero film because he's out to kill Superman. And it's like, okay, well, that's motivation. <laughs> and it's like, I'll, I'll buy that. You're absolutely right. It's the whole escalation thing. But again, I think this is what takes outside of the, the realms of reality. It's as if you needed to. <laughs> but it's like, yes, Batman is a control freak. So he's 
arch enemy is a total symbol of chaos. And it's like, yeah. And then you've got Batman is incredibly handsome and looks every inch the hero. Penguin is a short, fat freak. And it's like, there's that contrast there. Batman is very sexless. So he's worse. It's a woman who's flirting with him. He has no idea what to do with that. Yeah. And the best villains get under Bat- <laughs> the best films get under Batman's skin and sort of highlight how fucked up what he is he's doing fundamentally is. Yeah, the Riddler. It's like, okay, this is a guy who's trying to match wits. He's doing him as Batman is the great detective, so you'd want to set a puzzle at the detective. And it's always kind of like, and I find that there's a symbolism, and it might be a silly symbolism, it might be a childish symbolism, but it's a very effective symbolism. A clash of symbols, if you will. Hmm. Where it's like you have, you're not trying to tell stories of psychology like a Bond villain or the Mandarin. You're telling stories about huge Jungian archetypes, Banging one another head against one another. Delivering missiles, delivering messages via Polaris missile. <laughs> oh, hell, absolutely. It also ties into, uh, I don't know, one of the reasons to come off of social media is just to get away from fans of all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. it's like, I'm sorry, but I just, you hit your 40s and I think I just haven't got time to listen to people. The 40s moaning. are a period of time, Rob. <laughs> that you will read. Oh, trust me, I'm, I'm over <laughs> oh, that <fuck>. now already. <laughs> no, sorry, I, I, no, totally, because... Social yeah, media is just—it's 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 just tribalism. It's the same. It's, it's the worst. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, yeah you're yeah. right. It is the worst kind of tribalism. It's also one of those things where um, you, you, you think, think your you think opinion all, means something. And yeah, that's right. And you think that you know better. Says so, say so the guy's recording. Oh well, God, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You break it open, and it's a—it's a discussion, and and that's it's right. not just the thing. It's the thing around the thing, and, and that's the that thing, includes the people talking about the thing. And now we're talking about the thing around the thing around the thing. <laughs> but the fact that what fandom does, I think, is. Um, or toxic fandom is that it doesn't allow for discussion because we are going to talk about the Dark Knight Rises at some point Ian does not like the Dark Knight Rises the Dark Knight Risible we are going to yeah pretty good but uh, and that's the discussion and that's what isn't being had here you just go to your own echo chamber and everyone just agrees with you and it was when he was announced when Heath Ledger was announced there was, there's a great screenshot from a forum with all the fan reaction and it's like I'm not going to see this film Dave Warner's you've just lost my money Heath Ledger is not the Joker Heath Craig Ledger. not Bond Craig not Bond yeah, yeah that kind of yeah. stuff it's like Heath Ledger is not the Joker he's not the Joker he cannot be the Joker this is, it is, this is too important to give it to the guy from 10 things I hate about you or whatever it's called this is he's not the Joker Paul Bettany is a Joker Paul Bettany is a Joker <laughs> or um, who was the other one Sean Penn was going to be the Joker at one point mm. He can be the Joker. He can be the Joker. He can be the Joker. It's like, just not him, just not him. And it's like, he didn't win a competition to be the Joker. He went in and attested for it. And it's his fucking job. It's yeah. like, his job is to pretend to be different people. You don't seem to understand how this works. And of course, he comes out and he is the definitive Joker now. He's the definitive Joker. All Jokers have been. <laughs> but it's like, you are the true villain. Well, I'm actually, I'm, I'm quite partial to Jared. Hot topic letters, Joker. <laughs> It was interesting, wasn't it? Because the Suicide Squad Joker is like, well, this is... It's... It would have worked. In a, in a film where they didn't bother having the Enchantress. Yeah, where they just had yeah. the Joker as the They had the, the Joker villain. as the villain. It's yeah. like... Or it's one of those things where you don't see the Joker in the first film. You only see Harley Quinn and, and the Joker when he's driving around in that car with them is out of focus. And there's no Joker. And then at the end of the film, he appears. Because he does appear at the end of the film and it's almost like an intro shot that is given. You're kind of thinking, this was originally, I think, supposed to be the first time you saw the Joker, wasn't it? And then... They said, no, we have to have the Joker in this. We have to put him in there because no one knows these characters, but they all know the Joker. So we have to put the Joker in there. And I think I think this film is really supposed to end with him appearing and the next film being about him. Really? Just doing the Batman Begins thing. All right. But of course that didn't happen. And it was, and I thought that Jared Leto was, I thought, well, you clearly have just been told, try and be like him. 
and also be a bit like Jack Nicholson and do your own thing but be like that. Oh, I'm not gonna kill you. I'm just gonna hurt you. Really, really bad. Yeah, absolutely right. It is like, yeah, why is it so hard to get these films right? I think it's because Marvel have done this. DC think, yes, we need to build our universe, but we're so far behind now and Marvel gave themselves time to do all these films very, very patiently, so I'm going to get to this point. DC were about four or five years behind and said we need to just do all this really, really quickly. Yeah, let's just jump straight in. So let's just jump straight in and they haven't laid any of the groundwork, which means that all the foundations are very, very wobbly and uh, and then it's like you end up with stuff that is just Forgettable. misconceived. Yeah, and, misconceived. Yeah, it shouldn't uh, be that the making of the film was more interesting than the film. No, it's insane. And it shouldn't be that you get <laughs> a million different cuts of all these films. It's like, oh, come on, these... It's not hard to tell this story. Why is it that everyone's having a go at it? So Suicide Squad, the company that made the trailers also did a cut of the film. <laughs> because everyone liked the trailers. So it's not actually good. Give them a go then. So there are three different cuts of that film. There's, there's David Ayer's cut, there's a Warner's cut, and there's the trailer people's cut. And apparently the final film has just got bits of all of them. So if the Dark Knight trilogy is auteur theory, then the subsequent <laughs> films are the oh fuck theory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so true. Suicide There's so many cooks. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. Minimal cooks. <laughs> I think it's impossible to say. I think it's been hacked to bits and you, what you get yeah. is like a music video and it's like, okay, there's nothing to hang on to really. What I'm seeing is strange but still predictable yeah. and it's just what I'm seeing is the product involving. yeah well yeah. it's a butcher product and it's not involving because there's no but these are kind of like these are quite large vistas I think you were talking about um, the Joker from the Dark Knight Returns uh, cartoon a couple of podcasts ago weren't you I can't remember the name of the guy the name of the actor Michael Emerson um, yeah and he is an amazing Joker he's absolutely magnetic in a completely different languid louche rotted out manipulative way and it's just perfect for that and it's just yeah because you can do it a million different ways these stories have been telling over well, there are years there are every writer can... is a different writer exactly yeah, what's, right. what's your take exactly yeah. well it's the tricks to god isn't it it's like Loki is, and it's it's yeah yeah it's uh you can't beat his muscle that's the best scene in Dark Knight is the interrogation yeah, scene when he can't stop himself laughing because I'm being beaten up by the strongest, most physically perfect specimen ever. And it means nothing because you're not going to kill me. You're not going to get a solution out of me. You can't do anything. All of your strength. Look at you go. Where are they? Killing is making a choice. Where are they? Choose between one life or the other. Your friend, the district attorney. Or his blushing bride to be. Nothing to do with all your strength. And it means exactly nothing. But the thing there, I think, which is brilliant about that scene is that I think he likes the fact, look what I've created. There is a man in a big back costume who is really, really angry with me and is now trying to punch me to get me to talk. This is so absurd. And it's like, look at you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's <laughs> the one rule you're going to have to break. It's fantastic, yeah. Like the original Batman film from 89, the Joker became uh, the focus point of this film. So you got the images of the Joker. You got an image of the Joker against a black background that is like mm. the shot of Kakihara, the Yakuza from Ichi the Killer. And the Joker, go and watch Ichi the Killer. It's a very violent film with lots of strong imagery in it. But the character of the Joker is based on the lead Yakuza, this insane Yakuza, who basically does what the Joker does. He goes around and just does whatever he wants and all the Yakuza don't know what to do with him because... He keeps fucking shit up and it's like, well, I just don't care about any of this. And he sees um, a superhero called Itchy, 
who is incredibly damaged and says, there, he's the guy, he's the guy that can stop me and, and can give me the ultimate pain because it's all about pain, I want to find pain. And it's weird that you never name check this film. Is it because this film is so extreme and it is a really extreme film and it's heavily cut in this country? I can't, po- I can't point people I can't, in that direction. Yeah, Warners have said, you're not fucking saying Itchy the Killer. <laughs> because people go and watch that and say, sick Batman film. <laughs> <laughs> But there are rumours going around that the Joker, because he's wearing makeup and leaves it on, it becomes infected and his face starts rotting off. And the more and the worse his face becomes, the more insane he gets. So that isn't actually what's in the film. But that's what was uh, you know, swirling around the internet at the time because mm. of the excitement from this. Like, look at this, look at this. Ah. And then you've got the prologue scene, which they filmed first. And I think it was over six days or something like that. It was filmed in... The old post office, the Chicago old post office, I think it's called, something like that. And they had to take that bus apart to get it in there and then put it back together again because it wasn't a door big enough to get it through. So the opening heist, and they had to build another wall within the post office that, they could that the bus would, because it's, it's yeah. a listed building and you can just like, yeah, smash it up. And that was released as an IMAX trailer before yeah. I Am Legend. And it was just astonishing to see that. And it was like, look at the, look at the size of that opening shot of that huge helicopter shot of Gotham and that tiny window blows out and those guys come across on a and the soundtrack yeah indeed and that just the and and apparently the two notes are DC (laughs) just that because it was going to be just one note just that they couldn't have the tonal they couldn't have the dissonance if they were just the one note oh really right so they had (laughs) another one in there they said okay well that's that's D well let's see what C sounds like all the other way around but it was like yeah I want it to be DC There are really good things in there because they're robbing a mob bank and they've electrified the vault. Mm. So when you see the guy again who's trying to crack the safe, he's, he's taking his shoes off so he, can, so he can use the rubber soles to open it up. And it's like, this is ace. The call is going out to a private number. It's not going yeah. 911. And it's yeah. like, it's all bits and pieces. You, you any idea who you're robbing here? And it's, it's, oh, it's so much great And stuff. it's all about game and theory, isn't it? The whole thing is about yeah. like, yeah, so you'll fuck up him because then we can get more. But then you'll fuck up him because you can get more. And that's the Joker's thing. It's all about, I, I want to prove the, how the, awful you are. The bank manager, played by William Fitchner. He's fantastic. He, but he's somebody you'd point to and go, oh, you'd make a good Joker. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing you think yeah. that has to be some casting because you would think of him as the Joker as well. And then after that, when it went out as like a prologue scene, you got a little montage of the film. And just seeing that as well, I was like, look at this, look at how big this is. And there's that really creepy shot of a fire engine that's just been set on fire. Yeah. Which is great. It's the scene when they've got Harvey Dent in the back of the SWAT van and they're forced underground because it's easier to get at them. And it's just the fact that a fire engine is on fire. Yeah. Everyone really likes firefighters. They're the good guys. And it's just... Yeah, to stop the fires. What is a nightmare imagery, isn't it? It's yeah, like it's Batman... Like everything has gone wrong. A good bit in Batman v Superman is the very beginning where the smoke from the fallen building and a horse walks past yeah, and it's like what is going on and it's just this yeah and Absolutely. I love that you know the Dark Knight obviously feels like a real city because obviously it was shot so much in Chicago and yeah. everything mm. and you know and everything on that lower level it was shot in Lower Wacker in central yeah. Chi- in central Chicago and I, I've been on the street where they shoot the where they shot the tank flip that's right where they shot the uh, the trailer flip yeah. and where you know the South Street yeah yeah mm. and it's fascinating because it feels because it's it's a real place and you can visit like most of the locations you know we're talking about Batman Begins being shot largely on sort of a sound studio and it does really change the atmosphere 
atmosphere. Definitely. And it fits in with the fact that the Gotham from the first film does have more of a gothic kind of nightmare feel to it. But then in the second film, because he is having an effect on organised crime, it looks like a nicer city. It's a brighter city and everything is more ordered. So the film looks more geometrically ordered. No, the, the, the penthouse. Begins. Yeah, the penthouse is different from the manor. The, yeah. the back bunker is different from the cave. It's yeah. like, yeah. And all the real buildings have a geometry to them. It's all straight lines in that film. And, the one, and then the Joker yeah. comes in and it all begins to become um, a bit more mixed up. Yeah. And the fact that the mobsters are meeting in broad daylight. Yes. Because they're Your frightened to come out. sessions. <laughs> yeah. That's right. In broad daylight. In a, in a kitchen in, rather than in a swanky nightclub. That's absolutely. right. Yeah. And it's a very, very well-lit kitchen. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. The, and we, the pencil trick. Yes. Because that ties into the fact that The Dark Knight was the most complained about film of that decade to the BBFC, to the British Film Classification Board, because it was a 12. And I think it was something like 42% of letters they got were about The Dark Knight. And most of them were, why is it a 12? It's way too violent. It has to be a 15. And there's not a lot of blood in the film, but the Joker's just has such an air of violence around him and does have the pencil trick, which was such a great intro to me, where it's like, that pencil's in that guy's head now. <laughs> Where all the complaints coming from Smiggle. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Every scene. What's this one smell like? Goon? <laughs> <laughs> Every scene that the Joker has in that film, every time he's introduced, would be a g- perfect introduction for that character. Yeah, like, you're absolutely right. They just keep on reintroducing him in brilliant ways. Like, yeah. you know, we talk about the, the prologue, and then we introduce, reintroduce him in that scene, and then we reintroduce him... When, dead, when Gamble dead, brings dead, him dead, in, Gamble, yeah. And then yeah. you reintroduce him at the penthouse. The penthouse, and definitely, like, yeah. And that's the thing, is because he has no fixed origin. It's a new start every time you see him, and it's this new, ever more increasing danger. Now I see the funny side. Now I'm always smiling. <coughs> A little fight in you. I like that. And you're gonna love me. So the Dark Knight trilogy doesn't look like a comic the same way the Batman 89 does. Or indeed um, anything him after. Or indeed, yeah. It's no surprise that Heat was one of the films that he showed to the crew. You want to make an epic crime thriller you, mm. that has superheroes and supervillains in it. That's your starting point. And that seemed really fresh and novel as well. This, yeah, yeah, this doesn't look like a comic book film. It's amazing. I, I do take, I've taken, utterly taken them for granted because you sort of like, the closer you get to something, you see the flaws or what you think are the flaws. And it's, it's a success on so many levels that it is its own beast with a beginning, a middle and an end. It's like, oh, I've done it. I don't need to do it again. I don't need to play Batman again. And it's like, and all the criticism they throw at the Marvel films of not having believable villains. And then you look at the list, you just look at the portraits of the villain characters from these three films. It's like, those are six brilliant characters. Yeah. They look striking, have got their own motivations, their own yeah. methods of behaviour, and it's like, they're all unique. They're not just, I've got daddy issues. Yeah. Let me tell you about my daddy issues. But they've got the thing where if, where if you, the, the iconic thing where if you, if you saw them in, in silhouette, you would know who they were. And that's the comic book thing, isn't it? That's yeah, what people yeah, have said right. about Batman. It's like you see Batman, you see it in silhouette. That's that's a good character. You yeah. know who it is by silhouette. Then that's a good character for a comic book. But yeah, the way these films are put together, and we were talking about it earlier, the fact that there's no slow mo in this film. It's not. This is made in a very very classical way. There's no contemporary music. It's yeah. all soundtrack. That's right. Yeah. Yes, that's right. It's a, yeah. There's all the Zimmer. Pop culture doesn't exist in this film. No irony. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not irony. There's irony. There's absolutely irony. But there's no fourth wall breaking. There's that's no right. tongue in cheek. And it's, yeah, I mean, we talked about it, didn't we? But the Joker's escape scene is so amazing. All the different elements slowly orbiting one another. Toward, yeah. and you don't know what they're moving towards. I just want my phone call. And it's like, it's a magnificent <laughs> thing. But that's, yeah, the guy comes in and says he's got a stomachache and when they open up his shirt and... 
and there's a mobile phone under him, and it's been sewn into him. And it's like, and again, this audience that I saw it with was like, "What, what is the this? hell is going on?" That guy's got, and then, then it lights up, and you can see it through his skin, and it's like, yeah. "What is going on?" And, and I just want my phone call, and of course, there's a bomb in there, blows up, which you, which is from something else, isn't it? That was, is it? Wow, oh, I, I thought I'd read that was how the Joker escaped from somewhere. Anyway, maybe not. But intercut with that is the and just the efficiency of the editing during that scene because he's goading. The good cop, isn't he? The good cop who works. From Equalizer. With good, is he? Yeah, that's um, that's Mickey Kosmeyer. <laughs> I would make Equalizer's name. Is it? Um, that's the character name. That's not. Yeah, Keith Sarabushka. Yeah. Oh, Keith okay. Sarabushka for is is the good cop, and he is also um, Edward Woodward's friend, Mickey Kosmeyer wow, in Equalizer. It's like I love Mickey Kosmeyer. Um, <laughs> he was also in a TV series called Profit. In the late nineties, oh, which was like an American psycho soap opera. Yeah, he was also in Golden Years. He was in the Stephen King. Oh yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah, I remember that. Where the Joker's trying to goad him into attacking him. The next time you see him, he's got a knife. You know, he's blasted no time at all. <laughs> it was just immediate. And he he's says, just, just shoot him. Just, just shoot him. exactly. Yeah. But there is that sense. He's like, if he gets loose, we're we're, we're fucked because yeah, <laughs> we have no like, idea what he's planning. And it's, it's like, what do you want? Uncle. <laughs> <laughs> he's great because when he's going through his pockets and he's just got a potato peeler it's like oh you're just so aggressive on every level so we have a, a big board with all the things on that we want to talk about and uh, the major crimes unit the MCU no and they're trying to escape from the MCU and that's what oh, DC's trying to do they're <laughs> trying to escape from the shadow of the MCU oh, it all, it all by, ties in by doing exactly, by doing exactly, exactly the same thing, thing. <laughs> can, look at that another billion two billion for one film oh, we love Batman we've got Superman how can we not do this <laughs> It just reminds me of Perfume and the Dustin Hoffman character of that just trying to make perfumes and just putting all these scents together. Oh, I, never <laughs> it's like, I have all the ingredients. Why can't I make? Why can't I make it? It's the Stephen. We talking. We mentioned it this morning, didn't we? It's the Stephen Fry quotation that's on the side of the British Library. It's like all we need is a brilliant new idea. We should go to the library. There's hundreds of them there. <laughs> It's the bit when he gets when he escapes and his his head is just outside the cop car yeah, yeah. like he's a dog, the, well, like a dog, exactly like a dog who's caught the car. Yeah. <laughs> exactly that, yeah, yeah. and he's just like, I can do whatever I like. That is, everyone loses their minds. It is, and the fact that that's really set, really well put together. Yeah, it is. That's right. And the fact that that's set at dusk and it's the end of the day. No, is it not dawn? I thought it was because oh, yes, it's at the end of the night. Yes, that's what yes, makes right, it yes, great. That's like, right. Yes. Now what? What shall I do today? And yes, it's indeed. Because like, night has fallen, isn't it? Yes. Mm. So, yeah, it's now the new. going out to get breakfast. <laughs> well, that's the Mark Hamill one, isn't it? Well, that was fun. Who's Chinese? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing is because with this character, you're thinking. I just get the impression that he goes and goes and goes, and then he just drops because he's exhausted, and then he wakes up and he's just doing it again, mm. and he's slept in his clothes and he's slept in his war paint, and that's just what he does. But when he goes to see the mob bosses, he's so Heath Ledger says, this has to be a good makeup job. He was talking to the guy who was like, you know, applying the makeup, saying, you have to make me look great in this one because I'm seeing all the big mop bosses. It's yeah. like, yeah, so I need to impress them with my war paint. <laughs> exactly. And the suits, you know, it's yeah. not cheap. You should know. 
And they weren't cheap, were they? Because it was like designer. That's right. You used to be able to buy that suit as well. Really? Well, it's one of those fancy dressings, and people go hog wild, and you start off with your your PVC one piece, and then you can really get it. And I was idling away on Amazon as you're wont to do when you've got no life, and you find, (laughs) oh yeah, here you go. Here's the shirt, and here's the waistcoat, and here's the tie, here's the socks, and here's the jacket, and here's the overcoat, and it's like it's a really well put together costume. I mean, famously, Jack Nicholson. Part of his deal was he got the wardrobe. Oh, wow, okay. Because the Joker's wardrobe in 89 is amazing as well. Mm, it is, it's yeah. like so much shiny orange. The, uh, so many costume changes. The tie with the Joker is uh, Turnbull and Asa, who, who do the uh, the ties for Bond. That's right. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a really nice throwaway joke when, uh, it's when Gamble says, you think you can steal from us and get away from it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> it's, oh, it's just everything about that performance is great. But... There are other good performances in this film. It is it's so easy to talk about the Joker and kind of forget that there are other characters in it in a way because it's it's what you remember. I mean it's um but Aaron Eckhart as Harvey Dent and Harvey Dent he came back in nineteen forty three, wasn't it? Forty two, yeah. Right. And um, No, that's a really arty thing for me to say. No, 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 I have no, it in no, my absolutely. head as being nineteen forty, but it's absolutely meaningless. It's it is no. very absolutely is the early forties, so he's been in <laughs> publication for a long time. I'm batsplaining. But that's the thing is that there are people who say it wasn't 43 it was 42 no, no, and, that, and that renders all of this <laughs> <laughs> so it's like and to be honest there are times that I'm one of those people <laughs> and the Joker was 1940 I believe so it was Batman Joker. 1 so yeah I right. think it must have been 1940 wasn't it was that 1940 yeah so the Joker came first and then you got Two-Face and Catwoman came out the same issue that had the Joker in it oh really yeah but oh. she wasn't the Catwoman she was the cat and she was like some of those and characters was she called Selena Kyle I don't think so. I don't yeah, think that came until a, later, but yeah, there have been a few names on there. Um, well, Two Face was originally Harvey Kent. Oh, really? Yeah, they changed it because, of course, Clark there was Kent. another yeah. famous. Uh, but no, Two Face oh. is really, really an early character. Do you think that Two Face was just a okay? We need like a Joker type character again. So here's someone who also is you know, visually very, very striking and. <gasps> I genuinely, the opposite to I genuinely don't know. I think. Well, that's the thing. When they first introduced the Joker, they didn't expect him to become. Well, this goes to the really interesting way that those comics were made. So famously, Bob Kane got the contract to create a character called Batman as kind of like, okay, we've got Superman. It's going really well. What else have you got? Batman. He was, I think he was like in his early 20s. He tells, I think there are stories where he's claiming that he was a teenager when he came up with the idea. But part of the deal was it would always be Batman by Bob Kane. So all the way through, you see all of these films, Batman created by Bob Kane. And that was the deal. But Bob Kane apparently an incredible entrepreneur and obviously had some great ideas, did not create most of what we think of as being superlative about Batman. For one thing, the costume wasn't him. He had Batman in a red outfit with a domino mask. Bill Finger. Bill Finger Finger and creator as well. So the stuff about Batman being an orphan was, I think, came from Bill Finger. And and Jerry Robinson created the Joker. But there's a whole thing about how do you prove this? Because all the contracts, these people were working for hire. And an orphan... this goes to Batman as being a corporate mascot. It's, it's like he is owned by people who used to produce porn mags. And it's like they got into comics because comics were making money. So they went from doing softcore porn to doing comics because they're not in it for the art. When they're you in it porn for the mags. Do you mean it was like glosses or do you mean yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. fiction that was erotic fiction? It was both. Yeah, right, it was okay. like yeah. it was um, it was just it was it was pulp. This is what you did. And then, of course, when World War II comes along and papers in short supply, the, the industry changes again. But even so, it's like, well, you know, you're trying to appeal to common people. <laughs> <laughs> God. 
<laughs> Sorry, he's gone. It was kind of fair. This, it's what it, happened during World War Two with the, well, the paper, paper shortage. Well, paper is in short supply, so you can't produce much comics. So they don't, um, they don't get kept. You have to recycle all the paper. So there is everything is very, very transitory. You only have it for a little while and whatnot. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff of how this stuff gets treated. So the way the co- American comics wound up in this country was because they were used as ballast on ships. Huh. So port cities would have... At the end of the here we go. This is what we brought across from America or wherever, and we just throw out the ballast. And it's comic. It's American comic books, and you get young people, working class people. What's this? And it that becomes currency. The thing spreads weirdly, and it's exactly the same with the characters. It's like no one knows who really created everything, but very early with Batman, it was it's all Bob Kane, and you see troubling interviews with Bob Kane talking about how he came up with the idea for the Joker, how he came up with the idea for Catwoman, how he came up with the idea for Penguin. Actually, it was probably nothing of the sort. It was other people who died in penury, who were overlooked and badly treated. And there are there are wonderful people who have, in recent years, petitioned. And, and so now you see... Well, that's the thing on all these films. It is created Batman by created in the Dark Knight trilogy, Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Is it with the Batman trilogy? I think it was just Bob Kane, isn't it? it in, maybe in Rises it might mention Bill Finger, but it certainly doesn't in the first two. Oh, okay, right, because it is, in Rises it does. Bill Finger is very, very recent. In At the, least the, one of them does, Yeah, probably would be Rises then. Bill Finger, I think one of his last writing jobs was on Batman 66. Yeah. He did an episode with the Clock King, and it's oh, kind right. of like, Jesus, there were people who made millions millions out of what you created as a 16 year old boy sketching a a joker playing card and it's like and that character has gone on to being people arguing talking making fortunes off the backs of young passionate people who then get swallowed up by a corporation and i think that is really it's troubling but again it kind of like gives the whole thing a bit of an odd energy it's not just a film. It's not just a Batman film. It's a what is ba- what is an eighty-year-old fictional character that's cobbled together from all of these elements and packaged by a multinational that is in this business because this is where we make money. Mm. Not necessarily because this is what we love doing. They might hire people who love what they're doing. It's lies and it's shallow and it's selling T-shirts. They make money off the T-shirts more than the stories. We can't tell a decent story because we don't care about that. What's our third act climax? And it becomes a, an odd aberration for something that's about heroism. It's like well, the, the villain. Much, yeah, the villain in The Dark Knight Rises is anti-establishment. He's ba- you know he's he's the, um, the anti-Wall Street movement. He's, I see, and he I, tries to embody he's all, all of that fed into it at least in terms of the iconography. Well, I think that's that. really interesting as well because you get that and the flip side. So it's like Invasion of the Body Snatchers movie. Is it pro-communism or anti-communism? Yeah. It's like is it's the There's some is, communism in there. It's Don Siegel is it again. McCarthyism or is it And Don Siegel with the, the Dirty Harry. What yeah. point are you making or are you making the exact opposite point that I think you're making? And it's the same thing with the Dark Knight trilogy. It's like Have in, made it, we can read this either way so we have our cake well, and we eat it too. But it's one of those things that, no it's funny that you say Dirty Harry trilogy and the, just the things that stick in your mind. So the time out review of Dirty Harry says Sometimes people just need to stop and think before they start to complain about things. And does an articulated theme necessarily constitute an ideological standpoint? And Dirty Harry, I think, ties into this because Scorpio is a precursor to this Joker. He is someone who says... Right down to how he travels. Now how does he travel? By school bus. Yes, of course he does. That's right, yes. And you see school buses in these films because it's a school bus at the end of Dark Knight Rises as well as at the beginning of Dark Knight. And for me, it's like, because they stand out. Do you remember the end of Superman? The 78 Superman, 
when he saves, when the, saves the, the school bus going off the Golden Gate Bridge and yeah. lifts it up and his one leg's pointing up and then he waves to the kids inside and flies off to do the next heroic thing. And it's like, yeah. that for me growing up, that's kind of like an image from my childhood because it gets used in the beginning sequence for Superman 2. So Desi Harry and with Scorpio when he's kidnapped the girl and he's going to get the ransom and then it's... No, 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 not yet. Not yet. Don't pass out on me yet, you rotten oinker. Do we understand each other? If you care what happened to the girl, you better answer me. All right, all right. Now listen to me carefully. I, I've changed my mind. I'm going to let her die. I just wanted you to know that. This is a great villain. This is someone who just isn't going to play by any of these rules. And, but then you get Dirty Harry has to step outside of what he is he said he's going to be and ends up with him rejecting the law and throwing away his star. And Which is exactly what Blake does at the end of... Rises. That's right, yeah. And you Except Dirty you, Harry doesn't end up dead a week later. <laughs> <laughs> and you could argue And then Dirty Harry immediately fishes the bat. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> it's the shield. What was I doing? <laughs> I can do what I like with this. What Batman does at the end of the Dark Knight as well, he kind of rejects what he has been forced to become to beat this villain that they've not really come across before. And isn't it the fact that the surgeon who operated on Two Face was called Eckhart in the comic? Eckhart is the name well, the Lieutenant in Eckhart. The yeah. But in the original comic, apparently the surgeon was called Eckhart. It's possible. I have no really idea. Kind of, I'd, I'd go to you as the entire... <laughs> he, he knows it all. He's just letting me have that one. <laughs> and then you have Aaron Eckhart. It's like, well, there's all these nice little links in, aren't there? And what I liked about this is that you've got actors who aren't normally in these sort of films. So, Company um, of Men, doesn't it? Did he do that? He did, but it was also... it was um, Friends and Neighbours. Thank You for Smoking okay, was the good. one. Oh, where, was that before yeah. or after? After. That, Are you sure? That, yeah, because it was that where Nolan watched it and said he can be Harvey Dent. Because Thank You for Smoking was 2006. Okay. Wow. But uh, Was Maggie Gyllenhaal in that? She might have been. Because, yeah, in that, it's like, I need... I need someone who looks like the all-American boy. Robert Redford. Yeah. yeah, indeed, yeah. Yeah, I need someone, yeah, who is basically Robert Redford, but also has a moral flexibility. <laughs> moral flexibility. It's um, uh, Katie Holmes, actually. Is he oh, serious? Wow, there you go, today. Oh, wow. yeah. Interchangeable women. And how for this one. Um, yeah. Although, apparently, Katie Holmes was offered the role to return as Rachel Dawes in The Dark Knight, and she turned it down to do Mad Money instead, which was a Diane Keaton film. And I like to think that's true. Scientology told her, no, you can't be away from Tom for that long because... Um, <laughs> it might break your programming. <laughs> it break your programming, yes. Because, of course, this was this was a time when Tom Cruise had gone mad and he was famously married. Tom Cruise lost his publicity team or fired his publicity team and put his sister, was it, in charge of publicity? And then he was suddenly going on saying there's no such thing as postpartum depression and yeah, Scientology couldn't... Did he seriously say that? Yeah, indeed. There's, because it was Brooke Shields when she came out saying, I've been taking some medication that's really, really helping me with this. I have suffered from this. Postpartum was... depression? He was... Wow. And he said, no, I feel really, really sorry for Brooke Shields. That, that isn't a thing. And Scientology will help you see that. This was when he was laughing a lot. <laughs> and that's why I'm always laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Cruise went so odd that Empire wrote an open letter to him saying, mate, can you stop doing this? Because we've, we've met you and we know how great you are, but, but you are actually ruining mm. what you are now. And, and also you shouldn't be doing these things without mm. knowing all the facts. And you die a hero. Empire, yeah, that's right. So that was that time. So, uh, yeah, so Katie Holmes said that she wasn't going to be in this one, apparently. Um, so they went with Maggie Gyllenhaal, who was Jake Gyllenhaal's sister. <laughs> and Samuel Titan again. So I think now's quite a good time to talk about 
Well, let's talk about Aaron Eckhart a bit more, and then we'll get on to the women. <laughs> I think we're going to be talking a lot about the women in Batman films in general, but particularly this trilogy. Yeah. So as a reading of Harvey Dent, I think that they took the Long Halloween, the Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale comic book, which actually is my favourite Batman comic, and Dark Victory, the sequel, as their starting point for Harvey Dent, and having him be, you know, as you were saying, is he's a friend of Bruce Wayne, and that was and that came about in the animated series first. That was that's my understanding that in the animated series you see Harvey pre Two Face, and he's a politician. You catch him, Harvey, I'll put him in jail for you. And then, <laughs> but he's also friends with Bruce, and then so it becomes a trauma for Bruce when Harvey is is scarred, and it's like trying to save my friend, and then everything afterwards comes like I have to rescue my friend. In the comics. Don't think they spend an awful lot of time. He's Two Face immediately. There might be a prologue and the Two Face immediately. There are, there are a couple of origin stories that are told like decades later, where they tell a cool Harvey Dent turns into Two Face story. The better one is not the the Jeff Loeb one. It's, it's one called Second Chances, which is the first time that it's intimated that Harvey was abused as a child, and it's when was that written? That was like 1990, 1991, I guess. Oh, okay, something around there. And that's amazing comic. That's incredible. That's really really well done. That he's damaged to start with and. And there's something that not quite like right. he's already kind of been yeah, fractured. But or... in a sort of a way that he's just he's troubled, but he can't seek help. He doesn't appreciate that he's in trouble. He doesn't he doesn't take care of himself. So when things go really badly, he doesn't have the defences and he just gives into it. And in some ways it's it's and I think we could put a bookmark in it, but the what the idea that Batman is a heroic story about dealing with trauma and how someone deals with trauma and uses what's gone wrong in order to make to heal yourself but also to help other people is at its heart what makes Batman an amazing story mm. it makes him an, an incredible character and so you see with Harvey Dent someone who's tested and goes the other way you know it's yeah. like it's not victim blaming it's like it's a story about it doesn't How always go right respond yeah. to yeah well, and they do that incredibly well with Aaron Eckhart because you do get that sense that no because I know you from friends and neighbours and in the company of men you do scumbag incredibly Incredibly well, but you look like Robert Redford. That's right. And so you are charming. And, and he's introduced in that wonderful scene where he's like, better buy American if you're going to threaten me with a gun. And it's, like, right, yeah. and it's like, he does it incredibly well. And the whole sequence, he's also played like a bit of a puppy dog out of his element, isn't he? he but so great ballet. Scene. And it's, like, it's just always out of his element. He's always out of his depth, isn't he? The scene well, before he goes into the courtroom with Rachel and, he's, and she's like, Oh no, because he shows up late, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. But the scene when he goes to the fundraiser that Bruce Wayne throws for him when it's like, "Well, I'm sold, Dad, and I'm going to throw you a fundraiser." That's nice of you, Bruce, but I'm not up for re-election for three years. No, you don't understand. One fundraiser with my pals, you'll never need another cent. But he's completely terrified by them all, and it's mm. like, and she says, "So Harvey Dent, the scourge of the underworld, is terrified by the trust fund brigade." And it's like, yeah, because look at this, look at this opulence. Mm. It's like everyone, and look at my suit. And everyone's nice. Everyone's and everyone's telling jokes above his head. The famous Bruce Wayne. Rachel's told me everything about you. I certainly hope not. Alfred, right? That's right, sir. Yeah. Rachel talks about you all the time. You, you've known her her whole life. Oh, not yet, sir. <laughs> Any psychotic ex-boyfriends I should be aware of? Oh, you have no idea. I get the impression you're trying to tell me something. It would save a lot of time if you told me. I'm not in on this joke. Is Bruce Batman? Oh, tip him over. But he does it yeah. incredibly well. It's this when he's sort of like, oh, put the tables together, and it's like, and oh, Christian yeah. Bale does. Yeah, he yeah. completely owns that role. I mean, he is that whole sequence. He's interviewing Harvey Dent as mm. a replacement, and he does. And but the way it's done, he doesn't let on that's what he's doing. The film doesn't even really 
overtly comment that that's what he's doing. He's, he's replacing so like, within thing. within the law. Yeah, exactly. Like, so you can operate in a way that I can't. can't. Yeah, yeah. indeed. Yeah. And the and 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 it kind of countering the idea of escalation because if I go outside the law, then the people that are already outside the law, you know, they'll always top that. But maybe you operating within that framework can actually bring about good without creating that. Which, to go back to the five-year plan, was supposed to be the the short, sharp shock to get everything onto like a level playing field again, and then you let the good people within the law take over, which is why they've put it all into Harvey Dent, because you're the best of us and you're the one that can go off and do this. But he's plainly not. That's the thing, and I, that's the thing I don't like, because it's, it's almost like the thesis comes before the film. Because he's why not. not Everyone is? loves him, and he's doing that. But you, every single scene shows that he's a bit flash more than substance. And, and why what? isn't Rachel Dawes the White Knight? Well, that's Because it's like, we're it's talking like, about yeah. someone who's Gotham-born, who's been doing this for years... And is obviously who in the previous film almost got herself killed because of her journalism five times over. It's like he's so sort of like invested in doing the right thing. It's like, well, <laughs> obviously it's going to be the guy, right? I mean, it's like even like the beginning of the tr- the beginning of Dark Knight Rises. It's like, well, for to make it properly symmetrical, we need two pictures of Harvey with two face, obviously. It's like, but perhaps. Rachel Dawes <laughs> seemed to I seem to recall she playing a role in the Joker's reign of terror. Well, that's so. the thing, isn't it? It's like kind of uh, yeah, and in, in the, <laughs> the um, Harvey Dent act. In her... Because isn't she the one who says Rico? <laughs> and it's just well, the investigation that she does in the first film. Yeah, you're right. She plays a large part in that as well. And then in the second film, it seems to be that she's still assistant DA. But it's like, well, you're assistant DA in the first film, and the DA was murdered. But Harvey came in as assistant, so you presumably went for that job, but it was the guy who got it. You, you go mad. Means, uh, it's realistic. It. <laughs> <laughs> it's not realistic. But it is ridiculous. It's, I mean, her character is treated so badly. I mean, she's literally fridged and forgotten about immediately. And the whole thing in the first film, in, 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 Dark, in um, Batman Begins, he's not hung up on Rachel, is he? He leaves her for seven years to go travelling around the world to become Batman. Comes back. Doesn't look her up immediately. Doing the whole, oh, save your life. Well, he stalks her oh, a bit in, in good Superman Returns fashion, obviously. <laughs> is uh, is um, Harvey Dent in Dark Knight, is he, uh, is he William Hurt from Broadcast News? <laughs> exactly. He's the devil! <laughs> 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 it's like, well, that's the thing, isn't it? He is the, well, in a way, yeah, he is the uh, the shining, publicly acceptable face of, of all this. Yeah. And it's like, it's yeah, shining, acceptable, public, non-female face. Of non-female face. <laughs> Is ridiculous that because in the first film she's assertive it is everything the script goes out of the way and I can guess the thinking is Rachel is challenging Bruce on everything he does yeah she is a critical friend who's helping him mature and find his way in the world and it's perfectly valid except the way she goes about it it's always well some of us have a job to do Bruce and it's like some of us living in the real world can't just sit in their mansion and go to 30 birthday parties or whatever. And the fact she slaps him twice. The film goes out of its way to make her a killjoy. I just want to fight crime and be a superhero. She's <laughs> bumming me out every time I just I want to shoot her. this guy in the chest. <laughs> exactly. I didn't take it as that. I thought it was... She keeps... Yeah, it's one of those things to go back to uh, to Batman being a cerebral comedy. She keeps seeing him at his worst. So she sees him completely soaked with models on his arms. And, it's, and he's not looked her up. And that's the first time that she sees him. And it's like, yeah, well, yes, that's how you turned out then, is it? And he thinks, oh, no, this isn't who I am. And it's like, but, oh, but, yeah. but the point is, he's, they're not a romantic couple until the end where she turns him down. And that's a really, really good scene. Mm. It's like, because it is like, now you're Batman, I get it. I'm not interested in Batman, I'm interested in the, the man who left, he never came back. And that's that's lovely. But then in the second film, he's suddenly obsessed with her. And it's like, 
Wait, I get that Batman's an obsessive character, but usually about fighting crime. And not like, if I just get this guy, Harvey Dent, to be the White Knight, then I can live happily ever after with the woman I think I now love. That instantly stops her from being a character of agency to being the receptacle of other men's affections. Yeah, which I really agree with. I think that ties into the arc that they wanted, that it was like, everything was supposed to be done by the end of Batman Begins. Well, yeah, it was supposed to be like, kind of, a short time after that, everything was going to be fine. Then escalation happens, and he had his way out, and that way out has now been denied to him, which is why it's so important to put Harvey there. And you're right, I mean, yeah, it is one of those things where she has gone from, I think, being quite an interesting character in the first film. And she is a killjoy, in a way, but it's like, well, that's what she's seeing. She's seeing her friend who doesn't seem to be... Mm. Didn't seem to have moved on. Who she had great hopes for. Yeah, and now she and now she is a receptacle of people's um, either affection or obsession in the second. Film. And the it's fact like... it's presented as a binary choice. It's either Bruce or Harvey. It's like, well, she's going to end up with one of them. It's like, well, it's obviously, she's not interested in a career because yeah, it's or, gone or, nowhere. Yeah, obviously, she couldn't say no. You know what? I that, yeah. I, I don't actually like either of you in that way. Or maybe but she does, uh, though, doesn't she? Because she is actually dating Harvey and Bruce isn't going to allow that to happen. That's it's like, incredibly <laughs> good reading because he just does not accept that it's like, well, obviously she chose me. And in fact, his, her, his friends will go out their way to stop him from realising that actually she chose the other guy because yeah. it's not important what she does or think. It's what she wrote in a letter that she gave to my butler, the Counts. It's ridiculous. It is Because I think I think both Katie Holmes and Maggie Gyllenhaal do a really lot of good stuff with what they're given. Mm. Maggie Gyllenhaal in particular, because she's always got that, she's a half smile, she sees what's going on, she calls Bruce, to see, Harvey might not know you well enough to see when you're making fun of him, but I can see it. Yeah. And she's the one who confronts the Joker in, yeah. the, in the penthouse. Harvey doesn't, they hide Harvey, but Rachel stands up for it while Batman's going off and getting dressed. It's like, she shows the heroism, then she just gets fridged to provide an and insanity. is what? Uh, well, Frigid's the Gail Simone. Frigid, yeah. Gail Simone being an amazing, an amazing writer and a really great commentator, as well as that, who came up with the idea of fridging, which is that in um, this kind of genre fiction, uh, comic books in particular, but also elsewhere, the female characters are more likely to be exterminated or depowered because they're not as respected or they're not as valued so much, and usually to provide a revenge motive for the hero in the yeah, third well, act. It comes from a particularly egregious Green Lantern comic where Green Lantern, one of the iterations of Green Lantern, has got his superpowers. Exactly. Um, comes back home to find his girlfriend has been killed and left in a fridge for him to discover. And it's like, fuck's sake. So Gail Simon, and I, I could be doing a, I could be getting my history wrong, but I think she did it on a website before she was as obviously as famous a writer as she is at the moment, but before she was, I think, before she was published, I think. Mm. I might be wrong. And it was the website saying, and these are all the characters where it happens. And it's like, yep, yep, Supergirl killed. Yep, Batgirl crippled. And it's like over and over and over again that that is the only use for Female a woman characters being killed in these kinds of narratives. And it's like, that's ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. And of course, it's like this fridging as an idea been around, you know, as a, as a trope, talked about for at least 25 years. And we're still in exactly the same spot. And I think with the Dark Knight trilogy, it's in, in, it's awful. It's just dreadful. Because it's like, even in death, she bums out the story because now Batman's sad. <laughs> and it's like, Batman... And the whole point of Batman is that the worst thing happens to the people that he loves. 
and it inspires him to be better. And it's that, that's the utter point of Batman, swearing on the bodies of his dead parents to dedicate his life to warring on criminals forever. I will stamp out crime. This will not happen to anybody else. Then his girlfriend, not even his girlfriend, and in all the criticism of it talks about it's his girlfriend who died. No, she quite pointedly said, I'm choosing the other guy. I'm not choosing you. My girlfriend. <laughs> we're not. We're not together, really. Yeah, I'm your ex and your friend. But we're meant to be. We're never an ex. I don't think that. No, exactly. They're, they're never, never together. together. They're, they're never together. They're friends. She sees it. He doesn't see it. And I don't even think the film is that well maturely well, to observant that. to see that. It's just like no, they were, they were meant to be. It's like really they're not. <laughs> she was doing ridiculously well for herself. But, but then after she dies, he decides to give up being Batman. And it's like because your whole reason. Detra is that when bad things happen, you become more heroic and you invoke, you go more into it. Maybe even to the, oh, you go to extremes, but it's still like, you don't take death as the as the final answer. But in this, no, I'm going to go off and be a sad man for eight years. But then again, <sighs> Chris, Christopher Nolan never used the death of a female character as a motivating force in any of his other films. So I, I would say that throughout the Batman films, it's only really Michelle Pfeiffer and Rachel Dawes who are the interesting characters. I think that these films don't, serve their female characters particularly well. Apart from maybe 66, I haven't seen it in years, but... Well, it's uh, the... Lee, Mer- Lee Merriweather in the, mo- the back the 66 movie, she's amazing because she's utterly evil. But when she's pretending she to be... Sorry. sorry, yes. So Julie Newmar is Catwoman in the first two series of Batman 66, but she was unavailable to make the movie, which was made about the same time as they were launching the first series overseas I think so they gave the role to Lee Merriweather who'd been who'd had a a bit role in the series before then and um, part of the deal for making the movie was that Adam West wanted more to do as Bruce Wayne so there's a romance subplot where with Miss Kitka and she's amazing (laughs) isn't she amazing in that but she's Russian she's beautiful Lee Merriweather is absolutely beautiful and she's wearing this pop art version of a Jackie Kennedy so it's this tailored suit but it's Bright orange. She's wearing bright orange lipstick, bright orange hat, bright orange dress. That, that is so 60s and so glamorous and so strange and so feminine. But she's also utterly in control of all of it. And they give her and Bruce this lovely little romance theme. And it's quite sexy as yeah, well. It's quite, yeah, yeah, it's... He quotes Edgar Allan Poe to her. And... What's the quote? Oh, God, I can't remember. Uh, it's, it's about dreams. Because it is one of those things. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it is, on to do. it's <laughs> genuinely beautiful. And he's obviously enraptured with this beautiful woman. And he winds up getting some lie about what else are dreams but blueprints for courageous action, which is like, oh, I want to live that. That's my, <laughs> that's my mantra for life. About that dream you had. Do we dare? Why not? Yes, of course, why not? Of what use is a dream if not a blueprint for courageous action? Oh, into action, comrade. It's gorgeous. And, but at the same time, Catwoman is irredeemably evil. She's just a little bit horny for Bruce Wayne. <laughs> it's just like, it's great. And, and the sitting towards the end where she gets, where Catwoman gets knocked on the floor and her mask comes off. Uh, all of a sudden, and it's like, holy heartbreak. Yeah. <laughs> it's really well done. So we were talking about this the other day. Because you think that Vicky Vale, who is the character in Batman 89, mm. Kim Bassinger, is a good character. And I was taking the issue that all she does is faint and scream. And that's, that's totally valid. That's totally valid. But I think that one of the reasons why Batman 89 works and has worked for the longer term and certainly why it got the audience is because it had that crossover thing. It didn't just do it as men being violent at one another, partly because the characters were so brock and so weird that it's like you can't really have an entry point as Bruce Wayne or the Joker, really. Their entry point to the narrative is Vicky Vale and... God, I can't remember his name. 
What's uh, the Robert Wall character? Knox. Yeah, Knox, Knox. Yeah. Give Knox a grand. Is is them investigating the Batman and Vicky Vale is the way in because she is she's the outsider. She's intrigued by Alex's flying bat story and she's also romancing Bruce Wayne. She figures out that Bruce Wayne is Batman. She yeah. Because f- it's weird because the story kind of like has Knox make fun of Vale because she said, forget about Bruce Wayne. What about the Batman? Because she starts following Bruce after he vanishes and sees him putting the roses down. It's like, there is a story to this man. In fact, there's the bit at the the the, the, uh, the records office where there is there are no records of Bruce Wayne. Mm. There is nothing here. And it's, and it's like, she's doing the investigation and she's putting it together. And it's the two stories, Batman and her romance with Bruce Wayne. Obviously the same story. I think she shows agency. Then, of course, the Joker falls for Vicky Vale. And so it ties it in. She's at the fulcrum of it. She's the one who goes through it. She gets the guy at the end. And it's like you could easily read it as being, oh, no, 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 no. She's just an attractive woman who Bruce Wayne beds because he's such a hero stud on every level. And it's like, yeah, I get that. But I think this film has a little... It is a romance. I think there's a core you can say it's a screwball romance. You know, you've got Tom Hanks and Shelley Long doing their thing. You've got... I think the thing with the romance, though, is... Um, sorry, with it being screwball, is that she's... I can't imagine Rosalind Russell or Catherine Hepburn screaming and fainting. No, and no, and you're absolutely right. At the end, when the Joker releases the... Um, the gas from the balloons from the big parade balloons and he tells her to stay in the car and she does and I thought she would mm. get and I, I remember thinking oh I always remember that she didn't do that that she got out of the car but um, and tried to help but it's one of those where it's like no you, you stay there because now you need to get kidnapped and not saying that it's a terrible film because of that I'm just saying this is a product of the time that it came out because yeah, uh, definitely. because it's flawed it's deeply years flawed, later yeah. you watch Robin Hood Prince of Thieves and Maid Marian is introduced in armour being a warrior but at the end of the film, she just sits there whilst the sheriff of Nottingham is fighting Robin Hood. And it's like, why yeah, did she get up with him on the head? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, such a good point. And at the time, that just didn't even curse me. But it's like, she has nothing to do. She's not tied up. She could just get up and hit him on the head and that would be that. Our female characters are allowed to have, allowed to be heroic and have agency insofar as it doesn't interfere with... That's very true. With, with, with the male protagonist. With alpha the, heroes. Yeah, well, yeah. with the depiction of them, yeah, yeah, in terms of what they achieve. Well, that's why it's cool, I think, when the hero, <laughs> the woman, is called of like a villain. Because she's got her own plot. I think Selina Kyle in Batman Returns is a fantastic character, like yeah. you're sort of saying, because she's also allowed to be psychologically damaged. And it's like, that's not something you see either. It's sort of like Vicky Vale, you don't really know anything about her internal life, her dreams, her hopes, or whatnot. And it's like she's got one line about her grandparents at a house on the lake or whatever. But it's like. It's also um, one of those things where she's a war photographer who's been to, is it? Cultural Maltese, which of course yeah. is in Dark Knight Returns and the comics yes. before that, because. Frank Miller is using Cortomotes as a name drop, isn't he? That's right, yeah. And it's like, so you've been to war zones and, you know, presumably you needed to be able to take care of yourself. It just doesn't sit with the character. I don't know, it's like a throwaway thing, but anyway, sort of... Um... Oh, yeah, she's definitely objectivised because I think Knox says, oh, God, get hurt doing this last stuff. It's like, well... And he, he actually... Sorry? Because he says... It's talking about when Knox shows up, he's an utter Bill Murray-esque 80s. Hello, legs. <laughs> exactly, hello, legs. He says, hi, I'm reading yourself. Well, I'm reading yours. Vicky Bell, photographer. Well, if you want me to pose new, you're going to need a long lens. No, actually, I've just come from the war in Colto Motis. Whoa, a girl get hurt doing that kind of stuff. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> God, I'm God, never told you, you are utterly fucking insufferable. Tiresome. <laughs> yes, you're the sick person today. <laughs> And then, of course, they get into this. (laughs) Then they get into the weird thing with the party when it's kind of like um, he's sparring with Bruce Wayne. Mm. It's like, oh, you got a wonderful eye. Some people think she has two. Give Knox a grand, and it's like (laughs) put him in his pocket. Oh, when give Knox a grand, give Knox a grand. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lovely scene. I love that whole scene in the armory. 
<laughs> but anyway, but yeah, go on, sorry. yeah, sorry. So Selena has her own story that just tangentially connects with the Penguin's plan. Because what she wants is revenge on Max Shrek. And it's, I think she is the core of that second film. And so I do mm. think it's interesting that the first two, the Burton Batman films, have got women front and centre in them. They have I'm their own stories. Think. You're the second man who killed me this week. But I've got seven lives left. I tried to save you. Mm, it seems like every woman you try to save ends up dead. <laughs> or deeply resentful. Maybe you should retire. Harvey may not know you well enough to understand when you're making fun of him, but I do. No, I meant every word. You know that day that you once told me about when Gotham would no longer need Batman? It's coming. You can't ask me to wait for that. Yeah, when I was watching the film, which, which one? The Dark Knight. Oh, sorry. I was watching The Dark Knight, and then you said that Kim Newman had mentioned it in his review. Wouldn't it be interesting if Rachel turned out to be Two-Face? Yeah. And that you just swap the sex, and it would be like, yeah, that's... And it would be easy to do that. It's, I mean, and I was thinking, is this one... Is it a game that they were thinking, we can't mess with this too much because we have to keep the fans on side? If it had leaked at the time that Heath Ledger was going to be the Joker and everyone hated that... At the same and, time. And at the same time, and also mm. we're going to make... Uh, Harvey Dent. A woman! <laughs> <laughs> you could introduce Harvey Dent and then fade into a fake out and then turn Rachel into Two-Face. Yes, just because well, Rachel's becoming Two-Face doesn't mean you can't have Harvey Dent in there as well. That's right, yeah, and what? I think that could have worked. It's odd, isn't it? Because you do look at it and you go, why do you need Harvey Dent? If your point is you need someone who is utterly capable, utterly charismatic, utterly dedicated to justice, who gets broken by the Joker and becomes like, well, that, why isn't Rachel yeah. doing that? But yeah. then you go and say, well, the point of Harvey's story is that he was never the white knight. He was never the bright knight. He is man with feet of clay. Or so it's animated. Anyway, he's, he's not that good. He's, he's, he's pushed over the edge remarkably quickly. Yeah. The, and just even before he's doing the thing where he's torturing Zaz is yeah. his name. No, it's not, Zaz, it's not Mr. Zaz, is it? It's uh, the guy who crops up later in Ant-Man. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Batman says, "What are you doing? If you were caught doing this, to yeah, this is hit. basically the moment when they've yeah when they've tried to kill the mayor. That's it, and, and he, he, and he grabs him from the hospital, and, and yeah, absolutely. It's like he's already demonstrated that he's not that good, and you get the impression that if Harvey had been blown to hell and Rachel had been horribly scarred, Rachel wouldn't become Two Faced because Rachel has got the actual moral core and the fiber and the the dedication." to have survived it, you know? And so yeah, you could argue yeah, that if yes. Rachel became it, then you are actually just fridging her in a different way. So I do yeah. I do get that. But it does seem like it's, yeah, it's it's well, odd. Well, you, you either die or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. It's like, exactly. they, they, because mm. I think that's... No one stays good in this world. Uh, yeah. You either die or you see yourself live long enough to be turn out to be a different character incorporated into the pre-existing canon. <laughs> yeah. Well, then that was the thing, though, because Ramirez, oh, my favourite line from the film is when um, <laughs> Harvey interrogates Eric Roberts to say, who was it who betrayed Rachel? It was Ramirez. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, Eric Roberts. And the way that he Let me clutch really loves saying is marvellous. But everyone was sort of like saying, well, why is she called Ramirez? She is Hispanic female cop. It should be Rene Montoya, who is a pre-existing character. Oh, right. And, it, and they said, well, no, there's a good reason for it. A... It's not like there can only be one Hispanic <laughs> female cop, and it has to be Montoya. It's not corrupt. Exactly, because Montoya is incorruptible. Right, well, okay. b- b- in the comics, and it's the Greg Rucker comics, Rene Montoya has such a rich life and such an interesting character history. And the way they, they use her through and, and stuff in the, in the early 2000s, the late 90s, it's brilliant. And it's like, yeah, 
Ramirez, the, the mob got to her because her mother's in the hospital and she gets flipped and corrupted. And that works. Thematically, that works yeah. incredibly well in The Dark Knight, isn't it? Does, it does, yeah. Because it's, it's always left... It's no sort of, Dent doesn't trust Gordon because Gordon's populated his department with corrupt cops and he yeah. just won't accept it. And he won't accept it because he doesn't trust IA. And he, you obviously see he's got a relationship with Ramirez that, you know, how's your mother yeah. and, and all this. And and, it, and there is a thing where he says, I didn't work with cops, she'd investigated while you were making your name at IA, I'd be working alone. Yeah. That, which, is, which is, again, it's like, that's just a really good way to land his character as someone that Dent has probably looked into, mm. but has never been able to pin anything on because, be, yeah. he, because he's not dirty. And it is good. Yeah, I mean, she says, the cops got to me. Um, the mob sorry, got, they got to me. me and uh, my mother's medical bill's so high and he won't have any of it. That's Because he, Aaron Eckhart is great when he becomes Two-Face. Mm. And not just because CGI is amazing. <laughs> CGI is amazing. That's like he the is. best. You can't imagine a better Two-Face, can you? I like, yeah. love seeing the bone underneath. So Chris Nolan doesn't like to use a lot of CGI, but he said, yeah, we had to do this because makeup will just build up, but this had to take away. You couldn't convert mm, it. Yeah, you needed less. To take his, yeah, you need to take his face away. You need to be able to see into his face. And you work that works so incredibly, the, 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 the drip feeding of the reveal of Two-Face, isn't it? Where it's like he's got him profile, but you can see it's like the nose yeah. goes that far and then there's nothing after That's it. Right, it, goes, yeah. it goes away and it's like, yeah, it's going to be amazing. Yeah, and when Gordon goes to see him, there is that great shot on Gary Oldman's face that it's is like a proper port. horror movie. Yeah, yeah. Like, and he's like, Sorry, Harvey. Sorry, yeah. Well, even when the blanket's on his, the yeah, bandage, yeah. the bandage is lower than his face. Yeah. It's like that's really clever. It's really covering a gulf. Something's yeah. been cut away from him, and the black charred flesh, as well as the angry red welts and the white bone and the, and the yeah, the, just the ligaments just showing. And when he drinks yeah, scotch, and he has to mop it up from the side of his face, he does it with his thumb, doesn't he? Yeah, <laughs> and it's always something. Yeah, he's getting used to having to do this. It's so well done. So well done. I remember seeing it for the, I think it was the third time at the cinema. And the audience was really, really into it. And it was just like a general audience. And that bit when he says, I'm sorry, Harvey. No. No, you're not. Not yet. And it's really like, oh my God, God, this is just going to explode. And just a sense of excitement, but also being played so straight. And, mm. and there was a sense at the time, this is completely different to what's come before in terms of superhero films. This is... Yeah. Um, it's the tension, isn't it? It's yeah. when Batman says, I need five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> no, I have to save Harvey. And yeah, it is like they're, yeah. they're, they're different motivations that have been building naturally and they're coming to fruition. And Batman's the one with the clear head. You give him two minutes and he's the one who quickly yeah. works out the clowns, the clowns, the clowns are hostages. And yeah. it's like, he it does it so quickly as well. It's wonderful, that sequence. That's Mask of the Phantasm bit, isn't it? When he's being chased by the police through the half-built building. You remember? He yeah, just kind of like takes from Batman yeah, year Batman. one and he's just like, yeah. he's fighting cops and a half built high building and it's like, it's a waste of his time and his energy but he has to fight cops in order to do the thing that he needs yeah. to do. Which is really good in uh, Batman Begins which I think again is taken from year one when he's in Arkham Asylum and the cops mm. have the place surrounded and he calls in all the bats. Back up! Back up! Back up! <laughs> oh! Oh God, I was just thinking about it. But it's so brilliant. It's like, yeah, that is great. This is my army. Why does he never use that again? Why don't you just call all bats again? Because they just exterminated every bat (laughs) of the city immediately (laughs) after they did it. Why do that again? (laughs) And yet in Batman Begins, what does Martha Wayne do? It's like she is something for Thomas Wayne to fall on in the alley. I don't even think she has any lines in Batman Begins. She has a couple of words. Because I watched it thinking... Does she speak in this film? Oh. And I think she... I think there are no women... Well, she... I don't think any grown adult woman speaks 
in Batman Begins until Bruce walks in and says, I'm here to see Mr. Royal or whatever it is. Bruce Wayne's here to see you. And so I think that's, I think it could conceivably be that's the first time an adult woman speaks in that film. Oh, it's, um, you know the bit. It's when Bruce is, is out of the well and Thomas Wayne is walking him back and uh, Rachel's mum says, I'm sorry, Mr. Wayne. <laughs> oh yes, absolutely. I stand corrected. <laughs> another rich, another rich character. <laughs> You're fired. <laughs> You're fired. <laughs> this wouldn't have happened if my maid was a man. Your father would be ashamed of you. There's also, um, I know that you liked it, but so the animated film adaptation, and that's you, Ian, um, <laughs> of Gotham by Gaslight. Yeah. Which. I was going to say spoilers, yeah. Yeah, this is a big spoiler. Um, but there is, but we won't say who it is, but there is a character who was revealed to be something that you would not expect that character to be. And it's changed from the comic, and I. Yeah, I don't think that worked. No, the Go- I like the Gotham by Gaslight because, again, it kind of like plays in ideas that the society is corrupt that Batman is trying to put right. And the corruption in Gotham by Gaslight animated movie, and it's not, this is not in the source material, it is in the animated, but the, the society that is corrupt is it's corrupt because it's misogynist. Yeah. And so characters who would ordinarily seem to be good are actually really corrupt because they're, they hate women. And yeah. it's like, that's a different way of doing it. And it's, I can't remember the name of the actress who plays Selena Carlin. It's Jane, Janine Carpenter, I think, is it? Yeah, she's the, she played Debs in Dexter. Yeah, Jennifer Carpenter. Yeah, Jennifer Carpenter. Yeah, and she's, I loved her in Dexter. I think she was, she was such a complicated and lovely, funny, but human character. And her as a Catwoman character is like, yeah, that's absolutely great. They even give her a musical break where she sings, doesn't she? That's yes. right, yeah. It's a really lovely film. Yeah, and Bruce Greenwood plays Batman. Bruce Greenwood's played Batman in those animated movies quite a bit. And it's, it's a great scene because we just saw him in... The Post, the Post, didn't we? Yeah, and Bob where, McNamara. Yeah, and who else did he play in? He, he plays film? Kennedy, doesn't he? He plays JFK in 13, days, 13 right, days. days. He's got such a calm, authoritative, soft bird to his voice. That's mm-hmm. like Canadian accent thing. And it's like, you're a great Batman. That's a, a great, Batman, great yeah. voice. He's a great JFK and a great Batman. Yeah. And, and, and Jennifer and, and, Carpenter, yeah. Tony Head as a... Oh, his Alfred is so yeah. good. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and it Grey is, Griffin. Oh, Grey Griffin is. You, you, you spent realize how much of your life you spent watching cartoons with Grey Griffin in. She is the most amazing voice actress. Her and like Tara, Tara Strong, who's got uh, the Justice League. Oh, the Teen. T- um, uh, yeah, she's an amazing Barbara Gordon. She was like the second one to do her. Joke. She's also she does a Harley Quinn now, and she's got Teen Titans Go movie coming out, which oh, plays yeah, she is, yeah. Raven. <laughs> Raven character in Teen Titans Go is such I mean, a great the, character. So talking about Tony Head. And uh, and Barbara Gordon. Uh, there's your leap to there's... Joss Whedon. And Barbara Gordon in The Killing Joke wasn't as bad as I thought it should be. Uh, the animated movie. Oh, yeah, it's such but a... It's, but it's poorly, wrong from the get-go. It's but poorly it conceived, like, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Yeah, it's... But yes, so... I don't know if you know this, Rob, but... Tony Head works <laughs> with Joss Whedon on Buffy. And, of course, one of the really good runs, I think, from the Batverse has been the Gail Simone Batgirl comics. Was, was it the all-new 52 or something like that? Was that... I'm a little bit shaken up. I first noticed was, is doing the Birds of Prey thing before oh. any of the new 52 or whatnot. And yeah. she was she took the Oracle character, which had already done great things with, as a way of rectifying the killing joke. Alan Moore and the powers that be cripple Batgirl as collateral damage in the killing joke story. And then John Ostrander and other creators said, well, we don't really like that. Barbara Gordon was a great character in her own right, and now we've crippled her. So they create this Oracle identity, which uses her as being an information broker, so like an online detective. So Even she's in the, the 60s, guy in the chair, isn't she? she's <laughs> literally the guy in the chair. But in the 60s series, she was a librarian. She's always been a librarian in that kind. Of, so that whole idea that she marshals knowledge and she understands things and she's incredibly smart, as well as being incredibly compassionate, mm. as well as being someone who understands people in a way that 
Bruce perhaps doesn't. And it's a smart, dedicated fighter for justice. And so she did the the Birds of Prey series using the Black Canary character and the Huntress character and the Oracle character. And then she started doing the solo Batgirl series. And then yeah. other people have also done, I think, the New 52, I think. But she was always the one that sort of like stands out. It's funny because I remember saying to you, are there any comics, are there any DC comics that are, that are in by women? <laughs> and yeah. you said... Yeah, there's a Batgirl one that's written by Gail Spone and apparently it's very good. So, and that's the reason why I read it. And it was, it was great. It's really great and it's really well plotted. It's very, very cinematic in its plotting as well because you have the tension of, yeah, Commissioner Gordon doesn't know who Batgirl is. And Batgirl does something that affects his family and therefore he's after Batgirl. And it's all this kind of stuff. You're thinking, well, these are the typical plot beats, but they're being done very well here. So then you hear that Joss Whedon is going to do a Batgirl film. And it's like, well, it just makes sense for him to do this. This is going to be very good. And We need that Barton Fink magic. Why can't you? Yeah, it? we need that Buffy magic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he then says, no, I can't do this because I can't find a way into the story to do it justice. And, and that is like, like literally what he yeah. said, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, that was literally what a guy who's absolutely famous for taking material that no everyone else would overlook and turning it into a compelling long form narrative story yes and and if that is an excuse not to do it because his wonder woman script was notoriously awful uh right i maybe only we could also say he's also been involved in some of the um he hasn't been involved in me too but there was all that stuff around his wife and apparently he having affairs with his co-stars and things like that and um, yeah maybe they kind of thought that the heat of him doing a Batgirl story rather than uh, a female director might you know bring some bad press to the film or something I mean it's because like, it just seems weird it's like well you can't find a way into the story but the story's already there the character's 50 years old Barbara Gordon was and, like since si- the early 60s yeah and if you don't want to look at all that just go and look at the Gail Simone stuff and base it off of that because it's all there for you the entire yeah. story is there because that's the wonderful thing about Gail Simone you know she was she she wrote loads of Simpsons comics so she's got no. she's got it down pat doing incredibly witty dialogue that's funny but also character led but also in service of a story and it's like this isn't this isn't amazing this is a really great writer why doesn't Gail Simone write <laughs> that girl story? Like, yeah, why doesn't she do that? And Because uh... I, I guess it's one of those things that if you wouldn't necessarily keep Whedon on as director if you were going to get someone else to because... Well, I, yeah, think but... it's like, I think it's just this weird poisoned well, isn't it? It's, it like, is. it's like, these are films that should be so utterly easy to put together. Why is there more story in how the film's fucked up? Yeah. than is actually shown on the screen. And that's the wonderful thing about the Dark Knight trilogy, isn't it? I mean, that, that, that Dark Knight in particular is marked by at least two massive tragedies that befell cast characters. You know? yeah. And yet, the film itself is still magnificent. People don't bookend every single conversation with the Dark Knight by talking about the tragedy of Heath Ledger. And that poor stuntman, I, kind of, I don't know the name of the stuntman who died while making it, but it's like an obnoxious, awful thing to happen. So the stuntman was Conway Wycliffe. Yeah, the Dark Knight is also dedicated to. Uh, I think that... The stuntman died on the third film as well when they were when they were practicing for the aeroplane stunt. And there's there is a weird sense of tragedy around the Dark Knight films around the sequels, because the Aurora shooting at the Dark Knight oh, Rises. Oh god. Um like, you know, midnight showing. Yeah. And uh yes, and a gunman walked in, opened fire on people, and it's like, what is it? I don't know, they it just seemed to touch a nerve. What are you gonna do? Are you gonna kill me, Mr. J? What? I'm not going to kill you. I'm just going to hurt you really, really bad. You think so? Well, I can take it. I mean, yeah, you look 
It's Suicide Squad and Harley Quinn. So you are basically a product of abuse and you are incredibly sexualized in the outfit that they've chosen for you mm. when that's not your original outfit. It's a Domino outfit or something like that, isn't it? The original, yeah, um, yeah, or the, like, yeah, proper, the Harley Quinn outfit. Yeah, yeah. But also that is like, when she then has her dream, her dream is domesticity and being like a stay-at-home mum with her hair in curlers. And, well, that's and aping the Mad Love yeah. sequence, isn't it? So the Mad Love comic book that Paul Dini and Bruce Tim did has a sequence where Harley is imagining her life with the Joker. And it is like this mad domestic life where the babies are destroying Batman and the Joker right. is still the Joker because in the Suicide Squad she's not just dreaming of domesticity she's dreaming of normality isn't that's she? right because yeah, yeah, yeah. the Joker is, yeah. is back yeah. as being a normal human whereas in Mad Love it's like no I'm still Harley Quinn and you're still the Joker and our kids are psychopaths and it's like there are hyenas everywhere there's a line there but then there's part of the psychology that Bruce Timm always brought to the character is that she will outgrow the Joker which is fine like, but she is a professional she's a doctor so for the film to say that her dream is to be yeah. Um, and a friend said, like, how do you know that she's a stay-at-home mum? And it's like, well, her hair's in curlers and he's going to work, so she clearly isn't going to be leaving the house It's the 50s image. It's, 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 it's totally it's, the 50s image. Which is mad, because it's a 2013 film. It's like, how is that your go-to? Absolutely, yeah, it is, isn't it? It's like, how is that your go-to? Simultaneously, though, Deadshot, who they've set up like he just wants to be there for his kids and he wants to be a good dad, his dream <laughs> is to kill the Batman all of a sudden. <laughs> no, just have him wanting to be a good dad, and yeah. that's fine. That film, is, like... that film is absolutely mad for all sorts of reasons, in that they redeem the man who murders his wife and kids in like an act of abuse what's his name Diablo Diablo Diablo. he's the hero because he's like he kills he sacrifices himself to make it right and then they have Harley end up with the Joker at the end as this like triumphant yeah we broke her out we broke her out of prison and it's put in and it's have you seen um, the Flashpoint Paradox okay Flashpoint Paradox what's that uh, in this case I'm referring to the the, the cartoon story in which Martha ends up becoming the Joker yeah because because, they do a sort of a retelling of the origin but it's, it's Bruce who's killed Martha basically just Luke completely loses it and slashes open her cheeks and goes on a rampage. And Thomas becomes Batman. Batman. Oh wow, okay. Except that's done by Jill Thompson's husband. Oh. So Jill Thompson's that amazing artist, a scary godmother and Sandman, and she's amazing. And she's married to the guy who did a hundred bullets. Ah. Oh. Who did the Joker graphic novel? Yeah, um, Brian Azzarello. Brian Azzarello, yes. His writing is kind of like leaden with puns and it's too I find it too mannered and it's and I kind of find it I kind of find it mean spirited as well an awful lot but then I don't I haven't read an awful lot of him so a bit of a disservice but it's like it seemed like the flashpoint Batman was kind of like oh this is just grim for the sake of it yeah. these are stories for children at the end of the day these are stories for children children story is the child is left alone because the parents have died the child story is not the child died and the parents what they did That's next the thing. that gets into the point here these are children's stories but they're not children's stories now though, because the readership is as much adult as kids now. Absolutely, more so. And, it's taken, and for years yeah, yeah, it's yeah, been that way. And it's, and it's taken that along. So is this one of the weird paradox we're in right now, that, this, the, that these are kids' stories because they are simplistic, but they are now having to be treated in a much more complex or complicated way or convoluted way to try and get around that and say, okay, we need to make these more palatable. They can't just be simplistic anymore because all of our readership are now adults. Partly it's that. The stories did slowly become more sophisticated. It's like in the 60s... Certainly darker. Well, the storytelling became more sophisticated. Yeah, yeah, you would get continuity. Stories would become longer. Characters would behave more. and There would be less tropes, more... Sort of like, well, Nightfall is sort of that enormous... Well, Nightfall is sort of like... That's, that's the early 90s, 90s isn't it? Yeah. But it's sort of like... 
So the, the idea of Batman, because Batman was very nearly cancelled in the early 60s because no one was interested in it because of the stuff like as the comics. Comic, it was, it as was the comics. Because of the comics code, you weren't allowed to show the Frederick Worth and thing, Seduction of the Innocent, the idea that comics were responsible for degrading youth. And a female researcher, academic researcher, a couple of years ago got the original notes and showed exactly how much Frederick Burton had manipulated and made up from scratch. It was awful, just said. But what's interesting is that the comics industry did it to themselves. It was a self-imposed code that they wouldn't do, show this or show that. Putting a lot of people out of business, the stories became more fanciful, less interesting, arguably got away from the kind of stories that they perhaps could have been telling. There was a lot of lack of interest. Well, it was like leaning into gimmicks, really, sort of. Well, the 50s, certainly, it was kind of like, Batman is is a space hero. Batman goes huh. to our space. Batman and the Talking Gorillas. It's silly. It might be might be great. It might be great for it. I mean, it, I didn't read them when I was a when I was a nine year old, but perhaps I would have absolutely loved them. But you see, it's moved away from what it was originally. And for whatever reason, subscription numbers were falling. People weren't buying them. Sorry, it was Batman sixty six. That was kind of like a real shot in the arm. The TV series made it more relevant. Right. Batmania people the, the, the famous time, whatever the quote was in the 60s there was Bond Beagles and Batman it was a big thing and also a sophisticated thing where you could tell a silly children's adventure story but also tell it simultaneously on a level where grown ups could watch it and go this is really weird what they're with, doing with a knowingness to it exactly yeah. a knowingness but without underselling the drama I watched it as a kid and you think it's absolutely it's an adventure story it's a completely straight faced adventure story it's only when you see it as a bit older that, it's, you, that the irony appeals to you and also the design and the attention to detail. Absolutely. One of the weirdest things there was that Batman 89, this is a dark, witty Batman, this is new. And I kind of grew up thinking, well, the 60s Batman is just silly nonsense. And you go back to it, it's like, no, this is, this is witty. Mm. And witty is the right word as well. It's... And it's gorgeously designed. These amazing set designers and these amazing like impression designers and costume designers and the Blu-ray of it is like, why is this mm. not held up as one of the best examples of television design at a time when telly didn't look like this? Yes, absolutely. Batman um, in colour, yeah. Yeah. And there's a great story with Matt Wagner, Kevin Smith putting down Batman 66. This is in the early 90s. And Matt Wagner, the amazing comic book writer and artist, said, don't, don't disparage. That was your Batman when you were a child. And it's that is the thing. It's like, yes, you're absolutely right. That was the Batman that sustained you. For me, I watched it as a tiny child and I had the, the mega toys. You know, I've still got the Batmobile somewhere, but I've lost the Batman and the Robin and the Batcycle. And we had like the cardboard felt bat masks but oh, I've, I've spent wow. so long looking for them but it, it got lost but then didn't think about Batman again until the TVAM strike in 1988 absolutely yeah. when um Breakfast television on ITV couldn't broadcast there was strike action so instead of doing live programming they would just show an episode of Batman every morning just before you went to school so you would watch this thing which you had not seen for 10 years but yeah for 10 years basically yeah, absolutely. and it's like this is great. I've completely forgotten how great this Batman was. That, for me, got me hooked. And next year, there's a movie. And it was... But there was... You're absolutely right. right. The whole idea in 89 was shit on Batman 66 because that's how we're going to make Batman 89. And the yeah. same thing in Dark Knight in Batman 2005. Shit on the 90s movies because <laughs> we're trying to do the new thing. My first experience of Batman was watching Batman the movie when uh, being a kid on, on VHS. And I wore out that yeah, and that was my first experience as well because it was on BBC Two one night, and and it was sold to me on. There is a bit in this film where a shark gets stuck to his leg, and I just watched the entire film just waiting for that. Hurts me, <laughs> shark repellent, bad spray, <laughs> and it lives up to it. But then I just remember the end. But it's actually quite a uh, a lovely ending where 
all the nationalities get mixed yeah. up. So Surreal ending. It is, but it's you know, 60s and civil rights. It's like, look, everyone is um, essentially the same, or they could all learn to get on with each other. And it was like, well, that was <laughs> different. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's the thing. I think out of, uh, all, all, out of all the villains in that, the only one that they haven't topped, the only one that I, can, I still think is the definitive version of the character is Frank Gorshin's Riddler. Oh, Frank Gorshin's Riddler is Indeed, amazing. Is, in fact, he's, he's homicidal and amused yeah. and he just turns on a coin you want me to find clues <laughs> and it's like it's and I, it just how, it's a perfect plan exactly and he's just twitchy <laughs> twitchy twitchy we've got to get batman before he gets us i see the way to do it we'll play each of our treacherous trumps in one hand and we'll do it right here how we shall spring them from the joker's jack in the box through that window, out over the sea, and into the waiting arms of the penguin's exploding octopus. <laughs> the trigger, one of my riddles, of course. And the bait, <laughs> you, Catwoman. <laughs> and he looks amazing as well, because that green and black suit is absolutely superb, and he's incredible at it. Have you watched interviews with him? Because he was such yeah. a raconteur. Oh he... God, and he, an amazing impersonator. Yeah. But did either show me some of the interviews? Oh, a little while ago, with the Burt Lancaster and the Kirk Douglas That's impressions right. are because amazing. Because you going, Jim Carrey, ah. <laughs> it wasn't just the Riddler, the crossover here, it's the fact that that is Jim Carrey at a time when they couldn't utilise his talents. So they went for Jerry Lewis instead. <laughs> hmm. Why is this guy not the big comedian of his time? Because look at him, look at what he can do. Look at yeah. Just how versatile this guy is. There's a wonderful story that Adam Westall let out, wasn't there, about in the height of the 60s. Mm. They wound up going to a, an orgy, Frank Gorshin and Adam West together. And Gorshin said, let's just keep in character. <laughs> that would be incredible. <laughs> On the subject, there was I did watch a porn version of Batman once. and was it, it Batman was... and Robin? Yeah, it was, uh, it was Batman XXX, I believe it was called. And it tried to be in the style of the 66 Batman. But they missed out on the obvious joke. When you reach the end of the scene, it doesn't go splat! Or blink, 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 blink. Weep uncontrollably. Yeah. Get into the shower. Cut! <laughs> anyway, so, so Batman is a very, very versatile character. <laughs> he was, he was in many, many different forms. But to go back to Rachel, it's interesting what you were saying about when someone dies, he says, yeah, he takes his grief and uses it to make him stronger and... And help people. And help people. Is that one of the issues with having a realistic Batman that he can't do that? He has to show that he has been destroyed by the death of his oldest friend, because she's his oldest friend in the trilogy. <laughs> Alfred's going, I remember when your cries rang out in this house, Mr. Bruce, and I cared <laughs> yeah. for you since then. You work for me, Alfred. Yeah. You're, You're not just... people. <laughs> She's people. Upstairs, downstairs. <laughs> but that's the thing, is that, yeah, is that, would that have not worked here? Mm. I don't think that it's right that he spends probably about a year as Batman. Yeah, and then stops being Batman. Because there's the whole, years. in Dark Knight Rises, when he has his Rage Ghoul flashback in the prison, he goes, for years you fought decadence in Gotham. It's like, well, weeks. A year. <laughs> a couple of days. Long summer. They're thinking that the events when he gets back from Batman Begins and uh, becomes Batman is probably about three weeks. Okay. Um, and The Dark Knight is, is apparently set nine months after Batman after the end of Batman Begins. Is that, is that in the script? I don't know. 
So maybe I don't think not. it is. I think that's probably one of these talking around the film, right, explaining okay. the film that you could be bothered to make. Yeah. <laughs> so, so do we think that this is years then after? No, I think it's minutes. Again. I think because you have the Joker, so. you have the Joker calling card. I'll look into it, and then he doesn't look into it. It's nine days. It was in that book. They were saying it was nine days that this was supposed to be set over. That's brilliant. Dark Knight set over nine days. Yeah. That's really, really cool. And I thought that was good because it's like escalation and you can't have this happening in a city for a long period of time. Yeah. We have to get this person and we have to it keep the It was a busy answer. week. But I don't know. Post-Brexit Britain. It's like... What a terrifying week that is. So yeah, so therefore... But let's say that the nine months is one of those things where I said, yes, that's exactly right. It was nine months. You could impregnate someone and he'll have stopped being Batman by the time the baby's born. I didn't. I didn't impregnate anybody. <laughs> He impregnated me with a love of Batman. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not something that you should be able to just talk to, like, like you know, talk to your significant other as though that was a phase you went through. <laughs> but yeah. It's, it's like, you know, your spouse goes like, no, you remember the Batman phase you went through? We said we wouldn't do <laughs> that again. No, I'm going to do it right at this time. I think it's, it's, for me, it's like the difference between making a good film, making a great trilogy. It is a great trilogy. It's just not my, it's not what I have in my head for Batman. It's like, for my mind, it's like, the point of Batman is that you pitch it Big. Of course, you don't make it realistic. You're about the most. You're talking about someone who's become the zenith of human achievement. And so, just because it's not realistic, he can build his own car and irrelevant. He spent his entire life traveling the world, learning from all the great masters, learning how to learn quickly. He knows everything because he's Batman, and that's the that is utterly the point of him. And he's doing it because he is a relentless crusader against evil. And it's I like it because. It's a franchise. It's a corporate. He's never going to end. So you embed that in the character. And the character knows that he can never end. He will never quit being Batman. He will die being Batman. Because his mission is to stamp out crime. Not in like a, I'm going to fight villains. I'm going to stop. Crime in like the abstract. The platonic ideal of crime will be erratic. That is my ambition. So if you're going to do it in a world where there is psychological resonance... Then when Rachel dies, when the Joker is finally stopped, when Harvey's been revealed to be a failure, he goes hell for leather into the mission. And the next eight years are Batman as Bat-God, where he is, controls absolutely everything and he's utterly lost in the mask and he's flown too close to the sun and he, he is run just ragged. All he is is a battered man who cannot survive unless he is fighting absolutely every kind of... Unable to trust anyone because everyone's a Harvey Dent or everyone's someone who's going to die, and it's that's returned to again and again in the comic to break him because the hubris of thinking he could control everything is the weakness that Bane exploits to bring him low, and then he comes back refreshed. And that's not a novel idea; that's done in the comics time and time and time again. I can do it myself. I don't need anybody. It's like there's a character in Batman, Jason Todd, who is the second Robin, and he's killed by the Joker. And it was a great series in the '88. Death in the family. Death in the family. And it was like we voted for him to. It was. It was done as a. It was done as a telephone ring in, and apparently it was very, very narrow margins. They decided to kill Robin, and the way the story carried it on is that he becomes utterly obsessed. He's like he goes out fighting as Batman every single night putting himself in more and more greater peril until eventually he goes too far and he has to be reined back in again. And it's like, that was the story I thought that they were going to wind up telling in Dark Knight Rises. Not, I'm now going to stop being Batman. And the, and for the most parlous of reasons. And it's just, it's weak. It's like Batman as being an everyman. And I know that's the point of the story that Nolan wanted to tell. What would a real man do in this situation? I don't want to see that. For, for my view, I want Batman. He's a paragon. He's a tulpa. You've invested your aspirations and your imagination into this paradigm of absolute perfection. And he is 
a bizarre, ridiculous, caped crusader who will not stop fighting evil for the whole of his life. Yes, he will dress up like a giant bat because that's the best way of scaring people. And it was like, he will drive a car that can drive up walls because that's what he needs for that instance. He will speak every language under the sun. He will know how to build everything. He will have an unparalleled knowledge of science and psychology. It's it's also the difficulty of trying to bring too much psychological realism to Bond or to any of those figures that they only stretch so far before you break the character. I agree. I think that would have been a better story for The Dark Knight Rises. I think it's one of those things where Batman, down to the last purse snatcher, will say, I need to stop that purse snatcher now. You start at the top, and then you work your way down. And there is an interesting thing in there that that theme is introduced that Bane, it is hubris of you to think that you can stop Bane. Look at Bane. Yeah, look at his training, look at his conviction, and you have lost that because you have exiled yourself. That exile is, I think, is just, okay, what are we going to reference now? This is an older Batman, and you can say this is actually lazy thinking. It's the Dark Knight Returns because that is the yeah, that's that what is they want the to go-to go text of like the older Batman. Right down to, oh boy, you're in for a show here, aren't That's you? right, yeah. yeah. Which is what the cop says, isn't it, comes back. And it's great when he comes back. Yeah, and I did have an issue with that. Okay, so he's just spent eight years just letting everything go to shit. He is too obsessive to do that. If it wasn't, if he's not being Batman, he wouldn't let his empire crumble because he might that's, need that empire one day. That's right. Yeah, yeah, because he would always have a backup plan. It's, it's like what you were saying. There's a scene in the Dark Knight when he's about to turn himself in, and that's a really nice moment when he and Alfred in the Bat Bunker are walking along, and all the lights are turning on. Mm. And I thought, is this is this Morecambe and Wise? <laughs> yeah. Is he referencing Morecambe and Wise? Because this just so reminds me of Morecambe and Wise. And, it's, and being English and being of that time, I'm thinking, is this like a... And obviously Michael Caine will be a peer of them. But anyway, and he's burning evidence. He's burning everything that could implicate you know, Rachel and Alfred and in him being Batman. I remember you saying, Ian, um, he wouldn't burn evidence unless he found a way to memorise what he was burning <laughs> because he might need that in his war on crime. Well, yeah. Also, um, it's like, wow, we're really rooting for the rich guy burning evidence, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And that's... like bat shredder. That's such a big bat shredder. <laughs> it's like, I need a bigger one, though. A much bigger one. But that's it's like an unfortunate... But those, those are good financial documents, Bruce. Like packing a snowball. <laughs> But that's an unfortunate byproduct of, um, well, not unfortunate, but it, it is a byproduct of this character's been around for so long. There was a time when wealth wasn't what it is now. You could imagine having yeah, that much money, but he is now a billionaire, he's not a millionaire. And it was, again, it was for kids, so therefore you would aspire to be a rich man who could afford all the best toys. But again, that's something. And now it's been corrupted because all the rich people are fucking scumbags. Well, all the rich people were always fucking scumbags, but yeah, it's like, that's, but right, that's yeah, the they thing. Were, yeah. It's like, it's. Well, it used to be the line, I think, I'm trying to remember who, who, who said it, but, you know, there are no uh, poor people in America, just temporarily embarrassed millionaires. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which, again, and that is the, the aspiration. Dream. But yeah, again, it's, it's like, that is a fault. It's a fault. It's a paucity in imagination that's written into the character. It's lampshading it, isn't it? It's like, yeah, he's white privilege. That's why Mark Bernardin, you know, the journalist and writer, he does the podcast with Kevin oh, Smith, really? right. writes really well about saying, well, you wouldn't have a black... Batman, because Batman is old money. That's mm. part of his character. He's, he's, you know, there aren't second generation black millionaires. It's like he's old money. He comes from a sense of responsibility and also entitlement. And it's like when things go wrong, that's an affront because why is this happening to me is, is, a, is a response from a particular kind of subset. White privilege is written into the Batman character for right or wrong. But So is it like, 
term? Noblesse oblige. Yeah, like, that's part of it. White it's, man's burden. Yeah, it's also. Yeah, thing. it's kind of like I so have you, um, dripped out. Yes, deferential. Yeah, it, it is. It's I kind have of like all this thing. I, Tory I, paternalism. I have. Yeah, indeed. Tory paternalism. I have to give something to the lower classes because I have so much to therefore. But dri- trickle down economics became the cliche and it became like the excuse and it has always been the excuse it's never ever worked no no but there is that sense that trickle down justice exactly well that's that who's going to hammer justice in the rich guy and it, but it is it's well trickle down justice that's a that's an interesting concept to look at batman through in my tower in my literal tower i have a sense of right and wrong mm. that i have to impose on the world i can't trust institutions to do it because there is too much of a say in that i have to be the only one i, I can only trust one. myself yeah. exactly and i think that's probably why the frank miller idea for his screenplay was that batman has no money because you sidestep that yeah and it's like yeah it makes sense but then it's a different character so do a different character and that's the thing isn't it yeah if you change it too much then it's like yeah why not just do it as somebody else it's an interesting crinkle because we were talking about earlier they are children's characters but they're done with such style over such a period of time that there is enough there are enough planes on the geometry that you can build all sorts of extra nuance to it and well, yeah people people grew up reading them and yeah imagine and, 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 and retained a connection to the character yeah. and exactly that exactly that and it is kind of like well he is the shadow he is Zorro mm. he is Sherlock Holmes he is Doc Samson is like he is the outgrowth of all of those pulp adventurers, the Victorian science adventurer guy, for good or ill. But it's like it works, and with a corporate machine behind it, you can have a Lego Batman movie at the same time as people talk fondly about the Dark Knight trilogy. At the same time that Zack Snyder is making his Batman films, multivalent. He's like, yeah, he's (laughs) yeah, absolutely, he is the Gotham TV series. It's like I love Batman. But I'm not, I've watched a couple of moments of Gotham and it's not my thing. No interest but, in watching it. But our friend Ben finds that there are really interesting things in mm, there. Sure and, he, and he talks about it and it's like, well, that does sound interesting, but I just. Too old. Stop. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm just. I'm probably invested enough interested. of my time in Batman. <laughs> 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 well, you can't Let's stop now, you're committed. I'm going to give up for eight years. <laughs> Got an unconvincing on. beard. That's right. <laughs> he wears fucking sandals in that first scene. He does, doesn't he? He's walking exactly. around Wayne Manor wearing pajamas and sandals and a robe, and there's not. That is a pathetic beard he's growing. I get if you're depressed, you don't shave. Oh, yeah, I believe that makes yeah. perfect sense. You don't artfully craft a goatee <laughs> I <laughs> wondered if that was like self-punishment because he looks because that's like don't deserve to have anything other than this ridiculous <laughs> beard no because it's the same beard that Raj Al Ghul has and it's like is he just turning himself into a villain is that like supposed to be that I don't think it is but no, it's like there has to be a reason why he's shaving because bits of you, his face yeah because if you are depressed it's like I don't, well, what I don't do I care exactly. I'm, I'm and yet he's still out. in physical shape and Alfred says earlier on says later on in the film you are waiting for things to go bad as if to imply you're waiting for an excuse to be Batman again so you're in good shape or you're not in good shape watching this film again his face fluctuates his body doesn't but when he's at the beginning he's incredibly gaunt and then when he becomes Batman he has a fuller face but then at the end of the film when he comes back to Gotham and he gets caught by Bane's men and they pull off the hood. He's gone back to Gaunt. It's like, are you just making yourself? It's like you were saying, are you, is it the will to make yourself look like you've been in that prison? <laughs> and that you have only just come out of the prison and you've not spent that, all this time getting ready again. It's like, your face changes a lot in this film in a way that well, I hadn't And we know that you before. didn't shoot it in such a way that the, you shot that, that, that the beginning along with the end. We know that you put the weight back on and then you lost it again. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. We had to close Weird down production. masochist. <laughs> we had to close down production for four months while he safely lost the weight again for that one shot. <laughs> Fucking hell. But actually, this, 
this scene was the sh- was uh, sorry this film was the shortest shoot so Dark Knight Rises was the shortest shoot of all the Batman of all the films in the trilogy and <laughs> <Got him. laughs> no don't worry if I was going to take every cheap shot the camera would be every day that's why I said that I want you to take them this is a group therapy session <laughs> And also, it was the most popular of all the films. This made... So Dark Knight Rises made more money for The Dark Knight, which mm. really surprised me, because I always thought The Dark Knight was the most successful, and Dark Knight Rises be thinking, well, it, it came off the back of it, and uh, I suppose people want to see how the story ended, because a lot of people saw this film. But in terms of The Dark Knight, there's a couple of things there about the plotting and the heroism. So the plotting of The Dark Knight is, as you said, why don't you call it like a brutal grace? There is a brutal grace to the way the story is told. It's a two-and-a-half-hour film, but it is ruthlessly efficient in terms of its editing. And that point of the scene has been made, we're now going to cut to the next thing, and we're going to cut to mm. the next thing. And watching it again, I've seen this film like a dozen times, the first hour seemed a bit superficial. I'm not getting into the characters as much as I did, but then the first hour is all just a setup for the payoff of the next hour and a half, yeah. which I thought, oh, this is where all the characters come in, and this is where... It's, so... it's from the SWAT car, basically, onwards, isn't it? Yeah, and from that, it's like, this, this is brilliant. So the things that, at the beginning, it's like... The sky hook when he goes to Hong Kong to get the guy to come back to uh, to testify against the mob. He's got all the mob's money, and all this stuff here is just to set up It'll everything go that's going to yeah everything that's going to go wrong. And we're going to do an hour doing that because we want to get into some yeah, really interesting things for the final hour and a half of the film, including the whole game theory thing about people will always fuck each other over if given the chance. There is no altruism, and that being the ferry scene, I'm thinking, well, this is a bold move mm. to do a big set piece with characters that you've not met before and have that as like the as you know, the moral climax of your film are they going to blow each other up and the first time I saw it I thought okay so now we're doing this and this is it's the theme of the Joker but it's something that is bigger and more different this is this is really interesting part of your climax is being given over to this because it's about 10 minutes of screen time is given over to those people arguing on that boat my god what a great piece of filmmaking. Yeah, definitely. Is. I mean, it starts with him, because I don't like the, the, the people dressing up like Batman to fight crime. I think that's silly, and I think it's overwritten. And in a long film, it doesn't need those kinds of like puzzly bits. But it is there, I guess, so that Bruce Wayne can say, I, this isn't what I intended when I said I wanted to inspire people. And then at the end of the film, it's that people have been sufficiently inspired that they aren't going to fuck one another over. They are going to try and... Yeah. They're not going to sink to the Joker's level. There is a nice theme there, isn't there? A lot of Nolan's films are called Cold and Distant, the same way that Kubrick's were. Kubrick and like yeah, Nolan always says he thinks that Kubrick is one of the great filmmakers. But the end of that film, when they're on the boat, and the captain says, "Well, we're still here." And it's like actually, I'm quite emotionally involved in Yeah, I know. This is actually quite nice watching that. Yeah, the people are well sketched in that. They are very really quickly. Are, they're right. very sketched. The mother with the child, and that's kind of like weird because you think actually, if your kid was there you'd probably sink to that level. But then it's hilarious because I was making notes when we were watching it the second time going, wow, obviously, this was done pre-Brexit, wasn't it? You know, they all vote for the right... And I don't know, they all vote the wrong way. They all vote to kill. It's just that none of them can do it. Yeah. And it's like, when push comes to shove, they can't do it. Yeah. When Even though they've made a vote <laughs> in their own self-interest, they recognise they can't actually bring themselves to do it in the final moment. And they step back because they believe in good. <laughs> They are well sketched, and they're well sketched because they're good actors. It's like yeah, they yeah, uh, they're good faces. The Weasley good... Warden, the the guy who's kind of like you assume has been ripped out of Dark Knight Returns, the mugger. And I don't know, he's a beggar, isn't he? I want the word beggar in quotes because he's the the scumbag yuppie in Dark Knight Returns. He keeps showing up 
throughout Dark Knight Returns comic book. Oh yes, and so he's yes. the guy saying, "Well, if none of you're going to do it, I'm going to do it. <laughs> do it tomorrow." Yeah, indeed. But that's great because he just has a really good face as well. He does. Like, yeah. it's, it's all these people that just have to convey their character through the look of worry, and then and then the point when he just has that look on his face, and it's like a look of a grimace of anguish, and it's like I just can't, can't do, do it. it. Can't There's do even it. more of that in terms of like people having their character written on their face in Rises. In, in, terms, way. in terms of like you know when you think of like um, the, the two the two actors who came immediately to mind were Ben Mendelsohn and Bern Gorman in terms of as soon as you see <laughs> There's them something about them I don't trust like, as soon as yeah, you see them you're like I know exactly who you are you're wearing a but turtleneck think, <laughs> but I think that's one of the things where they are main characters in the film these are characters that get like at the climax of the film you just have to know immediately who they are mm. and also the main criminal who takes the detonator and throws it out the window. So I always think if I did that, it would bounce off that window and it would bleep. Someone else would pick it up and do it. So that is a lucky shot there because he throws it. <laughs> Quite <laughs> offhand. It is. It's like, boom. It's like, wow, thank God that went out. And he's blinded one eye as well, so God knows That's what right. he's like. His depth perception. <laughs> I mean? It's uh, like Piskin can do it. I think he's the real hero here. <laughs> he certainly has superpowers. This city just showed you that it's full of people. Ready to believe in good. You see so much stunt casting, but in this film, they're all bringing their A-game. And so obviously there's the Christopher Nolan family of actors. So you've always got the Michael Caine, Marion Cotillard, and you, you, got, you say, yep, you got, he's, he's got a type. But then every now and again, you've got a character in that, and it's not a cameo. It's what well, it is. I don't know. It doesn't seem... Eric Roberts is obviously the go-to. That's a magnificent photograph of Eric Roberts. You've got to look to, okay, we know that you're loving this. As you're listening, or if you have to turn this off, just go to IMDb, Eric Roberts. His profile picture is glorious. I mean, it is glorious. It is glorious. just this beautiful, tanned, gaunt, but healthy face and this wonderful ocean of <laughs> slate grey hair. Way a waving like a benign yet all-encompassing wave. It is the great wave of Kanagawa. Uh, <laughs> it is. <laughs> Weathered blue denim. It's like, oh my god, he's amazing. I love Eric Roberts, and in this, he's fantastic. Well, that's the. I always dress for the occasion, (laughs) and that's a really good point about the casting because, of course, Inception. Who is the great piece of casting in that? Who? Tom Berenger. Oh my god! I've completely (laughs) forgotten. Oh my god! So he does this, and he gets these because it's like, well, these are good actors who, for some reason or another, are just straight to DVD stuff, but they're good actors. But someone asked Eric Roberts the question. They said, is it not weird for you that you're in The Dark Knight and you're also in things like... Sharktopus. Sharktopus, <laughs> yeah. And he said, let me tell you how it works. I get a call saying, do you want to be in Sharktopus? And they're going to give me a quarter million dollars and my wife and I go to the Caribbean for a couple of weeks and I do four days of filming. Hmm. So I then get a week and a half holiday and the filming's not that hard either. And I get quarter million dollars and that's a nice way to make a living mm. <laughs> so the fact that I'm in The Dark Knight and then in these other films I don't see myself as hard done by no, it's, it's like well that's a really very healthy yeah it? it is it's like a really interesting way to look at it well because it's the cameo I like though it's like he's only in there for one scene it's, it's the present United States in Dark Knight Rise and it's William Devane yeah, it's like he yeah. is like I love William Devane in the 80s when I was penniless student I've spent an awful lot of time watching him in Knott's Landing where he's this strange he's obviously a different television series to everybody else and he's kind of like this small smart still unreasonably sexy silver fox and of course he was in with in Hitchcock's last film wasn't he yes that's right in Family Plot with Bruce Dern you're right it's not stunt casting it's just 
Interesting, oh, interesting casting. casting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he did quite a lot of 24 as well. Oh, did he yeah, really? Yeah, he did, that's right, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I remember yeah. him in, yeah, I remember him in Space Cowboys. Well. Okay. And, um, and then, now isn't he, I think I've most recently seen him on TV trying to sell me gold. <laughs> so, is this the TV it's like late at night the TV screen's just a lot of snow and then suddenly William Devane walks out of the snow are you buying much gold Rob do you think you should be buying more gold from me could, right could now could you be buying more gold Rob could you be buying more gold he's in Interstellar Buy the gold. too he's in Interstellar yeah I can't remember him now. I've not seen Interstellar we may not like to admit it over here but you Brits create some pretty spiffing stuff Hi, I'm William Devane, and I'd like to share my favorite British exports. British gold coins like these stunning Britannias and sovereigns. The designs are truly beautiful with a long and captivating history. No wonder America's in love with British gold coins, and you guys can buy one vat-free from just a few hundred pounds. Find out more in this free Rosalind Guide to Buying Gold. If Sir would like a free copy of the Rosalind Guide to Buying Gold, the number to call is 0800 902 0000. It's full of the stories behind famous British coins, as well as the Bank of Canada hoard and rare shipwreck coins. I believe Mr. Devane wants me to remind you to call 0800 902 0000 with no obligation for your free Rosalind guide to buying gold. Cheers. But the thing watching Dark Knight, when I think if you were to be uncharitable to this film, you could say that it's not a Batman film because there's not a lot of heroism in it towards the end of that film. It's bleak and it's well, the fact that Batman spies on all of Gotham and there is a surveillance thing. To defeat the Joker, I need to do something that is unconscionable and I need to compromise one of my friends to do it as well. So he gets Lucius mm. Fox in. And as you said, when we're done, type in your name. So put your name to this. And it's like, well, I could have took that as being type in your name to detonate this so it won't be ever exactly. usable Exactly. And he again. doesn't know that it's gonna, that's what's going to yeah. happen, does he? But there is a thing about like, yeah, put your name to this. <laughs> We're all going to come to agreement <laughs> in this room. We're all going down together. Yeah. I have issues with this because like the time it was made, this is a very good film about just random terror. And the fact that it's a bright and sunny film and you can say that 9-11 was a terrible joke that on a beautiful day, out of nowhere, hell erupted, literally, the hellish imagery of that day. And this seems to be a film that responds to that and yeah. articulates that through these supervillains. And luckily it was the last Batman film ever to summon up the image of 9-11. <laughs> yeah, indeed. But the thing is, and then you yeah. do it even more literally and it doesn't work in Batman versus Superman or even Man of Steel. And it's like, okay, so we're doing this and to defeat this, you have to compromise yourself in some ways. But it's like what you were saying about the West Wing. You keep your principles when they are most tested. Yeah, it's otherwise really they're not principles. Otherwise yeah. it, I, it is, yeah. we talked about it slightly earlier on. It's like in, in Dark Knight, two characters comment on how well or otherwise Batman is torturing them, don't what they? Are those? Oh, obviously with the Joker, Batman starts, when the Joker is in the cell, Batman appears behind him and smashes his head on the desk. And he says, when you're torturing someone, never start with a head. It disorientates you and you can't feel what happens next. And he punches his hand and the Joker goes, see? And then later on when Eric Roberts is confronted, he goes, one professional to another, don't threaten me from this height, it won't, the drop wouldn't kill me. And it's like, Batman is torturing people. This is in a world where waterboarding was being taught, talked about. America was obviously involved in things. This country, Britain, arguments of rendition were going on and how long you could keep, you could suspend habeas corpus. Well, Batman re renditions someone. Oh, absolutely. Very, very does good he, point. Yes, yeah. he does. And he the does. whole point is that his only superpower is I'm not 
constrained by the laws. Well, and then the phone at the end is the ultimate incredible surveillance. And these are, it's not accidental. The filmmakers have chosen yeah. these things because they are talking about, in a comic book way, they're talking about issues of civil liberty and what constitutes heroism, what goes too far. And you can argue either Batman is a fascist or you can argue that, well, actually Batman comes back from it, doesn't he? And so Batman is rejecting fascism. Yeah, all right, you are literally having your cake and eating it too. And because you're not spending much time detailing your thesis, you're unable to analyse it from whichever way makes you most comfortable. And they do the same thing the Dirty Dark- Harry thing again. Exactly the Dirty Harry thing yeah, again. Yeah. And then same with Dark Knight Rises. Well, this was a world with Occupy Wall Street. You can't do what you're doing in Dark Knight Rises and not be making a point about Occupy Wall Street. Whether you're saying this is a people who are manipulating the idea of Occupy Wall Street and showing, actually, no, Occupy Wall Street might be great, but I'm perverting it. Or you're saying Occupy Wall Street is fundamentally a misshapen ideal that just doesn't work in the real world and they're all being corrupted by a fifth element anyway. You're decrying it. Which way you do it? And, it's like, and you don't have to make that argument. You don't, I'm not explaining this very well at all. No, no, but you are, because the film itself is muddled on that point. It's very muddled. When I got that thinking, I just think you needed to land a bit better that Bane is manipulating a fairness that people have because mm. Bane says it is yours and it yeah and these corrupt institutions have lied to you and they've, and they've taken on, things from voice. you <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's corrupt it's a... <laughs> of all the corrupt so brilliant but how the, would um, Inspector Cluso say it and it needed to land that more that people were being manipulated because if we've seen nothing else recently it's that people can be manipulated and yeah. their worst fears can be used for gain, mm. and they can people, vote against their own interests. Yeah, people can be voiced. Can people can be manipulated by a peculiarly voiced populace? <laughs> yeah. Who then, and of course, Trump then did Bane at, at the inauguration speech, where he's talking about you, the people. Yeah, <laughs> take it; it's yours. And it's like yeah. it's fucking Bane. <laughs> Bane is now president. <laughs> oh, I wish it was Lex Luthor was president. <laughs> I think he was a bit smarter. And I think it probably at least would get <laughs> because better energy conservation. But we are transferring power from Washington, D.C., and giving it back to you, the people. And we give it back to you, the people. So, so Bane's in charge of all the nuclear weapons now. <laughs> For real! <laughs> to go back to the Dark Knight, the end of the Dark Knight, climax in the half-built tower, was Trump Tower, the Chicago version of that. That's crazy. And it is mad. But that's the thing, is I do like that tension in Batman, in Dark Knight. Because Batman, in a way, is above, he puts himself above the law. He doesn't, he has certain things, but if you read Batman comics, it's like, well, he is invading crime scenes and he's stealing evidence and he's doing these things because I know better than everyone else. So therefore, yeah. and he says it in Dark Knight, give me five minutes before your men contaminate the crime scene. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, we contaminate the crime scene. That's great. He would not be liked by policemen or policewomen, police officers. God, here we go. <laughs> is there a fridge I can get into? <laughs> <laughs> and maybe the fact that the film can't make up its mind on it shows the central tension of that character. I th- I agree with you. I think that's absolutely right. I think they overplay it in the third film because yeah. so much is about saying everything you do, Bruce Wayne, is rubbish. You know, you show up and lead a bloated police force, a merry chase, so that Bane can escape. Yeah, that's that's exactly what happens. The huge ship, gunships and whatnot. It's like, yeah, you're right. You would achieve that much more as Bruce Wayne. You won't, though. Make a Batman film where Batman actually has those ideas of what makes an idealism and then achieves that or is the only person who can do it. Because that is the tension. That's the riddle that you have to figure out. That's the film where you jump eight years in the future and it's like, 
Oh, it just turns out Bruce fixed everything as Bruce. <laughs> Money We've been the... waiting for millionaires to save us for quite some time, yeah, and it hasn't right. happened yeah. yet, has that's it? That's right. Exactly. So moving to The Dark Knight Rises, it's one of those things where you read the interviews and Nolan says, I wasn't sure I was going to do a third one because what good third move is Bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> And he also said that this was never planned as a trilogy from Batman Begins. We realised we could do a trilogy. Never occurred to us. I'm not entirely sure about that. <laughs> but the thing is, I think at the end of The Dark Knight, he was saying, well, it wasn't, it wasn't a case that we agreed to do a film and then tried to find a story. We had to find the story first and then agreed to do the film. Oh, I'm just leaving these faces for you. <laughs> And one of the fears that he had was the third film is always the weakest. Mm. And yeah, give me an example where the third film was the best film. And coming off the high of The Dark Knight, how can we do that again? So then when the picture of Bane first, that was the first thing that was released. There He's was the a, white, chalky, enormous figure in a black mask sitting in a black shadow, isn't he? Yeah, that's right. Kind of, um, it's terrifying, yeah. In profile, looking over his shoulder. Yeah. Right? It's, <laughs> yeah. Like, it's like his... Like, no, no, it's, it's, it's like that. It's yeah, like it's of, a uh, naked back and yeah, yeah it's... Huge. Such a white bag. Tom Hardy is not, is shorter than Christian Bale. Yeah, I could take him. Yeah, indeed. But it's one of those things where he... He's so imposing in that film. Yeah, and he knows how to beef himself up because on Bronson, and if you want to get into bronze, into voices, Bronson, the <laughs> uh, violent criminal Bronson, just his voice, yeah, listening to him in an interview is actually quite difficult because it's the voice of someone who doesn't speak very often mm. and it has like a bit of a metallic rasp to it and just it's the voice of someone who is just saying how their head sounds because <laughs> he doesn't because no one speaks to him and he was talking about be about meeting Tom Hardy and he said Tom Hardy came in and it's like and I said you can't be me <laughs> you can't because you're not big enough and he says that's fine just give me some time and he came back Six weeks later, and I couldn't believe it. And it's like, God, it's hard to listen to you. And he said he had muscles on top of muscles. And uh... when he came back and seen me, like two months later, he was bigger than me. I couldn't believe it. He had muscle where muscle shouldn't be. I felt his shoulders and his arms. He looked good. I said to him, I'll fucking love you too. And it's, that's the thing, is that he can make himself huge. Mm. And that was the exciting thing for me for The Dark Knight Rises, was that it's Bronson versus American Psycho. <laughs> yes, yeah, you've you got said that. It's a really, really good point. Really memorable screen psychos. And it's the working class psycho who is someone who just made himself big because the world is always going to be crushing him. Mm. And it's the lean, handsome psycho who's saying, like, yeah, I am utterly privileged. Anything I want, I can just take. And you're going to smash them together. Yeah. That's really exciting. And they are great in it. And, they, and I think they deliver that in the film. It's um, obviously, you know, Batman is not portrayed as a complete psychopath, but he is being portrayed as someone who's very, very driven. But the thing there was that then we got the prologue and the prologue, of course, was infamous at the time. It was before Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. It was the opening with the, yeah, the plane hijacking by the bigger plane. And you couldn't understand what Bane was saying. And it was one of those things you could not understand the word he was saying to the point where I was like, are you, you, know, are you the good guy? <laughs> you don't act like a good guy, but I literally... Sorry, can, can you say that again, please? Because I'm just, I'm, I'm just not getting it. <laughs> 
<laughs> and everyone sat there and everyone was really really up for it and everyone was like I um, can't understand a word he's saying what's going on in this scene because there seems to be lots of things going on and Dr. Pavel who was you know of course has turned the fusion reactor into a nuclear bomb so I'm saying I didn't tell him anything I didn't tell him anything it's like well but he's not telling anything either <laughs> so you, you have this really really amazing scene that was but you were left utterly distant from because I, I couldn't quite say what I saw in that yeah. and then you got the montage bit and it's like okay well that was really good let's all still be excited for this <laughs> and then it came out and it was like and I have to admit, the first time I saw it, I thought, phew, phew, I'm really glad, mm. I'm really glad that they made the landing on this trilogy. And then I got a text from Ian, <laughs> <laughs> a week later. <laughs> I was out with a friend having a drink, and I got a text saying, just another episode three. <laughs> it's like, no, he didn't like that, my writers. <laughs> For reasons that are valid, I mean, Christopher Nolan is clearly a very intelligent man, and I would love to ask him, why did you have the scene at the end in the cafe with Bruce Wayne when you said twice in Batman Begins you go a thousand miles and people still know who you are? And there you are sitting being Brucey Waynesy. That's yeah, right. Yeah. And it's like, why did you think that would be a good ending? Or that anyone, why did you contradict that? What was the thing that made people you know, not realise that's Bruce Wayne? The fact that he died, you'd be like, look at that, he looks a lot like Bruce Wayne. <laughs> Are you Bruce Wayne? <laughs> no. Wink. No. That's right. <laughs> Are you Batman? <laughs> no. <laughs> Wink. <laughs> but the, um... Also, there is the thing, you know, you see him flying off into the distance with, with you know, the, yeah, with, with the bomb. And even if you plausibly buy, he managed to get outside the blast radius of that thing. Six miles, remember. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's still gonna be, In five seconds. There's still going to be... I think Superman saved <laughs> There's still going to be me, Superman. a lot of fallout. Like, he's looking really yeah. healthy in that. Yeah, there'll yeah. be a lot of hair fallout. <laughs> Just it's trying to give everyone the happy ending, isn't it? And it's the it's, fact that it also is like, oh, he died. And then he painstakingly leaves clues for each one of them to realise he survived. It's like, oh, can't believe I let down my friend Batman. Oh, that's a nice new bat signal. That's right. Yeah. Can't believe I let down my mental Batman. I can't oh, believe... Someone's giving me directions to the Batcave. I can't believe that I didn't fix the autopilot. Bruce Wayne oh, fixed the autopilot. fixed <laughs> And it's... Um, so much is we so... We are just assuming that you've seen the film so that we don't have to explain <laughs> every single thing we're talking about. The, did, um, he, did he just bail out at sea? We're just meant to bail out at sea. sea. <laughs> <laughs> And if you Christian bail out, it means that you are <laughs> in a lead-lined skin suit or you just fly away. But the whole thing is such a cheap thing. If he had an escape route, if he had an escape route, why does he go, Oh, God, there's no autopilot. It's like, well, what are you talking about autopilots for? Just don't, I do, what? And it's like, the fact he even says it is like, I'm going to die now because I'm Sajiro. And bye. I think, they, I, think, I think I fooled them. <laughs> <laughs> we can all still see you. <laughs> They so bought it. Why are you putting that mannequin into the bad pot? That's right. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> <laughs> Look. The biggest drone in the world. For me, it's like on a character level, it's it's one of those things that makes Bruce Wayne petty. Because it's like, well, don't you want to tell me who you are so that, you know, I can thank you properly? Oh, never. I don't need your thanks. You don't need to know who I am. Um, the, the goodness is its own reward. But I might remind you of someone, yeah, <laughs> Bruce, Bruce Wayne, a bit like him, aren't I? Chisel but I will never say, I would never tell you that. I would never. It's, I'm no. not Bruce Wayne. It is not who I am. It's what I do that defines me. Like that thing you said to Bruce Wayne that time. <laughs> right. How did I know about that? Powerful friend. I'm a powerful friend. I've got a powerful friend. Here's my cake and I I'm powerful. <laughs> exactly. I'm having my cake. I was, I was hanging about Bruce Wayne at that time. <laughs> <laughs> it or, is petty. It's am I Bruce Wayne? I'm not Bruce Wayne. But am I Bruce Wayne? The end of the Dark Knight Rises is like, you have... 
resisted calling her Catwoman, then at the end of the Dark Knight Rises, it's fan service all over the place. Just to sort of like, yeah, we <laughs> yeah. just get it all out of the way now. And then, blah, blah, blah. It's also, well, Ben Gordon didn't have a very interesting career, if you remember that. <laughs> you also was pretty stingy with his coats. He only gave away one in his whole 20-year career. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So like, myself, I'll give away two coats this week. <laughs> it was pretty lucky that he only had to comfort one kid. <laughs> yeah, he just career. didn't care about the other. He, he right, only yeah. comforted the really rich kids. Uh, yeah, that's right, yeah. He, yeah. he remembers this. <laughs> I'll be all right. You look happy though, won't you? Hey, hey, hey. hey. Yeah, so shit. There we the go. Agreed. <laughs> Moving back from the beginning of the, uh, from the end of the film, sorry, to the beginning. So Nolan has always said that he likes James Bond films. And Inception, the end of that, in the snowy base, is like, well, this is on Her Majesty's Secret Service, right? Mm. And this one, it opens up when you think, okay, so the, so the bigger plane getting the smaller plane is like, you only live twice. You know, the big spaceship eating the small spaceship, or which was then ripped off in The Spy Who Loved Me with the big ship getting the submarine. This is really good, and yeah, yeah Bond films, there are great ideas in those films. And Thunderball has a skyhook in it at the end. They get lifted off in a skyhook. Oh, really? Yeah, and it was actually something that the CIA did. It was like a real thing, and they and yeah, apparently it wasn't actually that bad to be lifted up by a plane. <laughs> it's apparently not as much of a of a shock to the system as when you open up a parachute. Oh, right. Yeah, it's kind of, it's, oh, okay, that's interesting. Can I have a go on that then? I don't want to go on that. I want to stay here. But the... And, that's unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> And the Dark Knight Rises, of course, is very similar to The World Is Not Enough, where you have the big villain. Which one's The World Is Not Enough? Oh. That's right. the word is not enough. Is the one the guy can't feel pain, and the villain is actually the woman. Yes, of course it is. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, and then it turns out, yeah, that the woman, uh, the, the the woman that James Bond has been attracted to the whole time, and seems to be some salvation for him, is actually the one who's behind the whole thing. Yeah, and she's been using this huge guy as deception. Okay, but and it's, in and the Dark Knight Rises, who's Christmas Jones? Catwoman. <laughs> Christmas Jones is such a great. <laughs> it's so bad. We'll fix it in draft two. But oh, there's, ooh, will we? Well, we did have Holly Goodhead, so do we need to fix anything? Oh, God. <laughs> I've always wanted to have Christmas in Turkey. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I thought Christmas only go once a year. Yeah, honestly. Oh, oh, God. Yeah. I, I think there was a script that said, it's certainly going to be a white Christmas. <laughs> no, out of 12? No, that's a 15. All right. Well, we'll lose that one then. Um, that's a sock to the feminists. But there's also a, um, a shot in The World Is Not Enough where James Bond uh, rappels out of a window that is exactly the same shot as in The Dark Knight Rises. Mm, you're when right. He rappels out and right at the beginning into, he was in Switzerland, yeah. That's right, yeah. And he goes into Jim Gordon's hospital room. I think The World Is Not Enough is one of the lesser Bond films, but it's interesting that you are lifting from that quite a lot. It's, and Skyfall, of course, I mean, is just a Chris Nolan film. I mean, mm. Sam Mendes did say, yes, I was inspired by what Chris Nolan had done with Batman when I was doing this. And it's like, yeah, and... And your cinematographer, I think, was pretty inspired by it as well. And everyone was inspired by it because this looks very, very Chris Nolan. And the score's very, very Chris Nolan as well. Oh, right. Or very Hans Zimmer doing a Chris Nolan film. But again, the opening 40 minutes, isn't it? About 45 minutes before Batman shows up in The Dark Knight Rises. But I love the opening to that film. I love you know, Gordon going and investigating the sewer system and finding all these people living underground, like, in Death Line. <laughs> mm, yeah. uh, an old British horror film. Mind this is great. And everything, and the, and the fact that everything's been buried in the second film and it's just been festering and now it's become explosively toxic and it's, like, you're rising back up again. Yeah, yeah. You know, when he's shot and he goes out um, and he escapes through the sewers and then Blake turns up, uh, so Blake being the cop played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, 
turns up and gets him. And there's just like a real speed to the way that it sets it up. And then you go into the Catwoman stuff and that handover in that bar. And she's got... She's um, fantastic in it, by yeah, the way. That yeah, whole, everything she does is incredibly well-mannered. All the way through to having the escape route to get away from hideous burn dude and mm. yeah mm. the bursting into shrieks of tears to pretend to be scared when she's absolutely in control of the situation yeah and having plans within plans within plans she does it incredibly well and then the story loses interest in her <laughs> and doesn't give her anything else to do well it's the thing isn't it because there is always the tension in the comics of is she a goodie or is she a baddie and they try to do that in this film and she betrays batman into bane so she can get away but what about but the clean slate? But immediately, yeah, <laughs> what's, the clean, what's the clean slate? I'm glad you asked The clean slate is a computer program that completely wipes you off every single grid and expunges your record from everything. And uh, everyone wants it. And it's just... <laughs> that raises another question. What's the clean slate? The clean slate? Where you type in someone's name, date of birth, in a few minutes they're gone from every database on Earth. I'm glad you asked The clean slate is... <laughs> For such a simple thing, it basically is the thing that just removes your entire history so you can start again. It gets said a lot in this film. <laughs> <laughs> the... I know this is all about privacy. I mean, can't you just like get that. a right to forget court order now? <laughs> exactly. Just yeah. write to Google. <laughs> GDPR will save us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the clean slate, wasn't it? <laughs> all those emails I never opened. <laughs> but, uh, but then... Get an email from Batman. <laughs> yeah. And I don't want your records. Please, please. And then he gets into Batman and there's a really good opening because you have the scene set in the stock exchange. And I think that's... The stock exchange is magnificent because they're all scum. Yeah, so There's no money here. Really? Then why are you here? <laughs> <laughs> and also the way that when his guy is, is doing the thing to upload the virus program into the stock exchange to show that Bruce has made some bad investments and which makes no sense. It's like, well, wouldn't everything there just be locked down to be investigated because everything <laughs> was ultimately obviously compromised? Anyway, yeah, easy, easy. But when it's, it's weird that uh, Bruce Wayne, who's proven quite a savvy businessman up to this point, made a series of very bad investments at exactly the point that he was investing in Blockbuster. Uh, yeah. I like the idea of this Blockbuster having HMV and Blockbuster. That's, that's the future of Wayne Enterprises. <laughs> how did that? How did that whole Betamax thing play out? <laughs> but they have landed that earlier, haven't they? That he has been reckless with the fortune in terms of back in the clean energy thing. Mm. And then he sunk half his fortune into it. It turned out to be a bust because it could be weaponized. And then... Are we meant to read that in like, we shouldn't invest in clean energy. It could, move, could be a weapon. Let's just, let's just write it <laughs> off as like a... <laughs> Whoa. Fossil fuels or something. Dodge that bullet. <laughs> but there's a really nice moment when Bane just nods at someone when he's waiting for the program to be uploaded and sort of like goes... Clean nods at someone who's just staring at him. <laughs> but it's like, well, that's just a nice on-the-day touch. It's like, yeah, but he's so moving. violent as well. Because that's mm. when he he hits the woman with the crash helmet. And it's like yeah. violence against the woman. It's like, okay. And then he grabs the other yuppie and smashes his head against it. He's like, every scene he's in, he's like, okay, you're physically intimidating. And in a way that's in really, really kind of like unnerving to see. It yeah. is... Well, yeah, because with the yuppie, he kind of grabs him with both his massive arms, so he gets a, a proper grip on his head and slams his head into yeah. both his hands. It's like, well, one of your hands could do that, but the fact that you put all of your weight into that, yeah, you are a formidable baddie. And I think it's great, and I, I do think that is a great character there. Oh, it does um, it really, really well, yeah. And the, Until the story loses interest in him. <laughs> it's one of those things where, with Catwoman... Everything in this film has to become a part of setting up the ending. Mm. So therefore Catwoman just has to be someone who is going to ride the Batpod and do her heroics there. And 
I think that's one of the flaws of having a third film is that you have all the interesting characters but they need to have a definitive ending which means that they have to put their characteristics on hold a bit um, I don't know I don't think it has to be done that way though does it because yeah. you're the writer the writer can yeah. put yeah, them make yeah, it work yeah. any which way they like I mean Indiana Jones trilogy for God's sake and it's like there's these great yeah, ways of true, yeah. bringing characters to fruition the but second it, and the third film and to the lesser against the first film is that they are way overplotted and there is detail in there that serves no purpose whatsoever and is there just to be tricksy and it just makes it clumsy and ugly. The whole end sequence of Rises with we've got to put a block so that the trigger is not going to set the bomb off and it's like why when every time I see the thing it's only got 15 minutes left on the counter. Hmm. It's like what cocking difference does it make? It makes none difference and it's yet the film wastes time with I'm on the wrong bus oh no I'm on the right one but I can't get the block on the thing well I've got the block on the thing and now and it's like cut to the chase literally cut to the chase it makes no sense and then at the very end it's like you've got 10 minutes and I'm unclear to this day it's like is it a suicide mission are they intending to die or is Talia going why is Talia going again it's like the bomb is over there why on, are you all going to die? Was it your plan to die, or does Bane think he's going to survive? It was Bane's plan, I think, to die. I think he was. But then, why is he staying there? You're going to have to imagine the fire. It's like so. You're supposed to die in the explosion. I thought the point was he Batman sees his city destroyed, and then he has his permission to die. So also, you're Talia's not going to see the city destroyed, are you? Unless you're outside the blast. Well, six. I mean, it doesn't set its terms well, well enough. It's a blast range of six miles. It's like well, conceivably. That's fair enough. I don't know. If, it, if the thing is blowing up at Liverpool Street, am I safe in Paddington? Who you, knows? There's websites where you can type in your postcode, see, or type in a place and see if you would survive if you lived here. So if you type in like your W1A, we would be all right here. <laughs> but the shockwave would hit us. And it's one of those things where you just type in lots of places. And I'm like, oh, so, so I wouldn't swipe there, but I would swipe there. I swipe there. Oh, school oh, library had a book like that. Oh, really? In the 80s, it was a book. It was about like, where the targets would be in Britain for a nuclear attack. Huh. And it was like, because I was, I was living in a garrison town. It was like, just, it was like, yeah, that would be a target. It was interesting. It was kind of like, because this was the we, 80s, oh, where we thought about this shit a lot. Yeah. And yeah, well, I, I definitely, we had like an RAF base nearby, and it was like, yeah, that would be taken out. Yeah. So I live in quite close proximity to Westminster, so... <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah, that's because uh, you're one of the 1%. <laughs> and this gives you power over me? Yes, indeed. That's right. <laughs> It's weird that The Dark Knight Rises ends with a plot beat that's taken from the 66 version of Batman. Yeah. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. They must have been aware that that was happening. I thought of it. When I was seeing it, I thought, oh my God, it is. For years you couldn't see the um, the 60 series. You only saw the movie because that was the only one that had the rights to release on DVD. So that was kind of like, there was an awful lot of knowledge about the movie. And so him running around with a giant spherical bomb above his head sometimes. fuse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, job, yeah. Surrounded by nuns and baby ducks and young lovers is, is really kind kind of like it's, it's a famous Batman image. So it does seem like it's aping it. And it does seem like that, in a weird way, does that undercut the drama? Or is it a nice, is it a nice nod? Is it a whisper there if you happen to be prone to it, but it doesn't change your enjoyment of it one way or another? But it, do we think that Christopher Nolan did that as a conscious, like, oh yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's, but, that's my inspiration in this scene. But nothing else in the trilogy shows yeah. that kind of appreciation for the character or yeah. the aesthetic of filmmaking, does it? I think it's that one of those, those be, sorry, Yeah, because that is quite a meta reading of it. I, don't think. <laughs> I think it's one of those things where they wrote themselves almost into a corner where it's like, we have to have a big explosive finish to this and it needs to be something where we can kill off Bruce Wayne as well so he can escape and have his life. And it needs to be a massive threat that means that no one can come near it, so therefore we end up with a nuclear bomb. And then we try and get rid of the bomb at the end. And it's a big bomb. It's a big spherical mobile bomb. 
those things can be terribly difficult to get rid of. That's right. Yes. And some days it's even more difficult than on other days. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think. And um, so therefore, that's how we end up with this. And I would, I mean, yeah, it would be interesting to say yes, we are completely aware that that is something that happens in the '66 film. It doesn't take away from the drama of this. <laughs> I love the idea of you know he's up in there and he's he's preparing to activate the autopilot and sort of you know bail out. Um, but then he looks down and just sees this in this this line of duckling stretching onto the horizon. <laughs> exactly. Damn it! Yes. I've yes. done this before. Ditch off all over again. I didn't want to happen. <laughs> but you can see how they've got to this point in terms of. Everything blows up in a Batman film. So in the first film, that's you, really good. You blow up the um, the train. So the, so the tower doesn't blow up, does it? But the train blows. The up. bridge blows up. The bridge blows up. And yes, then the indeed. train goes crashing in through to the car park, doesn't it? And then the and microwave the, emitter then explodes. Yeah, and it, yeah, I always think that's a weird trope in Batman films. Anyway, I know you can say it's, it's, but you remember the animated series? It was like the third act always has whatever it is, it blows up. Yes. And it was like you remember all the criticism of all the Burton films was like, well, the Batwing always blows up. And then the Batmobile will always blow up. And the Batboat will always blow up. And it's like these vehicles always explode, don't which, they? Yeah, which happens in The Dark Knight as well. That the Batmobile blows up and a hospital blows up and Rachel blows up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. That's an incredibly, incredibly good point. Because it is. Those are things and they blow up Rachel because as far as the story is concerned, she's just a, a way of moving the plot along. I think that's really, really telling. They blow up the mayor as well, don't they? Oh, yeah. God, that's the weird thing. I, do you remember in um, Dark Knight, it's like, well, we found your DNA. It's like, how did they get my DNA? That's a very good question. I'm not sure you know how DNA works. <laughs> no. It's like, we found your DNA on this. It's like, how did you find my DNA on that? <laughs> do you remember? It's like the same thing with the judge, isn't it? It's like the Joker's name is his next target. He's covered it in your DNA. It's like, that sounds awful thing yes. <laughs> yes. It's like, now, how, uh, did, how did he get my DNA and more importantly how did you, you know my this DNA? is my yeah. DNA <laughs> <laughs> now I think about it does DNA mean something different that nurse did wear a lot of makeup that day when <laughs> she, I was having that exam she did an awful lot of swabbing <laughs> and one thing about this that I will say is that Nolan does good explosion because the mayor blinks doesn't he when it um, yeah. when it gets really bright and he blinks and then it all blows up and when and Rachel like, blows up that's right, it yeah, is incredibly you, well done because she's you get the hair blowing just before the end. and she's trying to she's she's cut off in mid-sentence it yeah. is really or I think I really like the Rachel character I think she's absolutely necessary yeah I think it treats her incredibly poorly. I don't think it's a decision that people would make now. I hope they wouldn't make that decision now. Her final word is someone, which I always thought was quite... Way. Is she saying that? Is she saying, it's like, it's okay, isn't it? Is she saying... Yeah, she says, she says, it's okay, it's okay. Now listen. Yeah. Someone, and then it goes off. It's all right, listen. Someone... And then... When it is done, and Gotham is ashes, then you have my permission to die. So much of the Bane scenes are just great in terms of him being imposing. So you have the Ben Mendelsohn character who thinks he's in control because he has all the money and he's hired Bane. But Bane is burning through all of his resources and it's he doesn't know what exactly is happening. And Bane just rests the back of his hand on him. It's beautiful. It's <laughs> really says, well done. Do you feel in control? It's just that yeah. thing, I'm just going to touch you. And you know that if you try to take my hand off, something bad's going to happen. But right <laughs> now, it's just this. But that's the most simple intimidation, isn't it? And it's just a hand placed a certain way on his shoulder. And it's like, there you go, intimidation in just a gesture. So why do the nonsense with the bomb and the timer and the trigger and the... Oh, it's a drug of 
it's like it's irrelevant who the trigger person is it's going off in 11 minutes why are you even going to fight Bane why aren't you finding the bomb and getting the bomb out the bomb is going to explode plus the fact if it's a degrading radioactive core you can predict the second yeah, six can. months ago when it's going to explode yeah you can and you can make because that calcul- Batman. <laughs> I think that works in terms of that I think it's like, idiotic because it's got a it, fucking counter on it I, 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 <laughs> I guess flip, I guess that's the, that's the, oh I guess I got my maths wrong and that, it blew up three weeks earlier <laughs> that doesn't, the well, that, is, that doesn't work with the real element. That doesn't work the, when you're trying to play. And a lot of it doesn't work with the real element. None because... of the trees do. It's like that's the. I, I love that the Joker plan actually works because it's insane and it's predicated on the person that the Joker is fighting being a control freak. In the first film, it's like a microwave emitter that's. I've been pumping poison into the water, so when I make the water vanish, all that's left is the vapor that will drive us mad. It's like no, that doesn't work on any level. That's in. That's, you're just that's, going to cook people. That's deranged. I get it. It's like you don't care so much about it. You're just trying to make it seem apocalyptic and new. And fine, yeah. okay. But it doesn't work. So don't talk about being set in the real world. It's just silly. You can do it any other way. Yeah, but just don't do it that way. The Joker's plan, and the bit that I find utterly overwritten, is the bit with the bullet in the in the crime scene that Batman yeah. liberates. It's like Gotham, yeah. And it's his whole idea that I'm going to build a machine that enables me to examine the wreckage of the shrapnel of a bullet in a brick to put it back together on a computer model on the off chance the villain touched the bullet instead of the bullet case which you think they would actually be the bit they would touch they touch the actual bullet nub and from that I'll work out who the villain is and yep I've got an address I show up just at the second that the wind the curtains go up and it's like that's demented. If that happened to Batman, Batman, I've been, I'm a rat in a maze here and I don't stand a chance. I've wasted my resources and time figuring this out. And the Joker's plan was that I would figure this out at hmm. such a time when the curtains go up and suddenly everyone's shooting. Well, actually, that would have been a really interesting way to do that. And Dark Knight needed a phone call between Batman and the Joker. There wasn't an interrogation. In the same way that In the Line of Fire hmm. has John Malkovich phoned up Clint Eastwood and just needles him. And for him to say, yeah, just think, I did all that because I know exactly how you think. Everything you try to do to stop me, I've already thought of it. And just having that thing, you know, what do you think about that? I'll be thinking about that when I'm pissing on your grave. There's <laughs> <laughs> elements of it, isn't there? I like the fact that it's not massively explicit, but at the same time, it's like, that's deranged. And that just killed like 10 minutes of film time, which you could have spent like 10 minutes doing anything else. Or if you did decide to do it, then spend another couple of minutes and put like that into some kind of context. Showing us what would have been cl- the clearly amazing montage from the Alfred Let's Go Shopping. Well, I love yeah. exactly like that. The- In Batman 89, Bruce Wayne is reading Jack Napier's file. And he's just seen the Smilex thing on, he's like, oh my God, the Joker's poisoning people to death. Aptitudes include science, chemistry, and art. And all that it's going, Chemistry is a science. But anyway, nevertheless, <laughs> science, chemistry, and art. And he goes, chemistry. Let's go shopping. And because he's incredibly wealthy, he can buy absolutely everything and go down into his bat basement and figure out the component elements that what the Joker's plot is. And he's like, that's insane that you figured that out. And then he does figure it out and it gets put on television and it drives the Joker insane. It's like, how did he figure that out? <laughs> they even say that in Batman 89 when he's going, no, the poison only works when the components are mixed. Hairspray won't do it alone, but hairspray mixed with lipstick and perfume will be toxic. And untraceable. And Vicky Vale says, how did you figure this out? And actually what Vicky Vale would say is, how the fuck did you figure that out? Yeah, it's, like, <laughs> it's like, that's insane. It's like, a lot of people say you're as crazy as this. <laughs> He's psychotic. And it's kind of, <laughs> everything about it. The dialogue in Batman 89 is magnificent. Okay, one of the things about these films is that the world's greatest detective, he doesn't do a lot of detecting. Mm-hmm. Um, the I do like in the first film that he does 
figure out that all this means here that you're going to set off this device and it's going to vaporize the water supply and then it's going to uh, yeah, release a toxin. Covering Gotham in this poison. <laughs> and that's, but then the Dark Knight, it seems to be the world's greatest detective is just that scene with the bullet. Mm. And, and the first time it was like, what? <laughs> what just happened there? Because it seems to be that he's got this machine that fires different calibrations and you'll get the one that matches the exact way that the bullet went in so he can find out. <laughs> so there's some big logic leaps here. I know that you've got all the money in the world and you're incredibly intelligent, but... It's just a neater way to set that up. There is a far... There is like... A, there are a million different ways that mm, you could... That's right, yeah. And if... Yeah, and it's like... Maybe he got the ammo from a specific place and then Batman turns up and goes, who did you sell this to? And the guy goes, ah, I've got these details. Like, there are so many other ways. It's that the thing don't... that drives me mad with screenwriters try to write intelligent people and they always come down. It's always done. The mud on his shoe has rust that only comes from this industrial plant. <laughs> or it's, it's something along those lines, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, it is, the yeah. body had these insects living in it and they come from a moth that's only found from this part. <laughs> and it's like, oh God, it's always the same trope. We've been writing detective stories since Edgar Allan Poe. It's like, we've got some of the best writers to tell incredible detective stories. This isn't outside the wit of man that you could draft a detective component into one of these stories. But no, they just want Batman to be a bruiser. It's like, that's that's a weakness. That's a weakness. Yeah, it is. One of the interesting things about this is that Crane, again, he's a doctor, he's incredibly intelligent, but he's duped again in The Dark Knight Rises into thinking the city's been held for ransom. And, because uh, he will get blown up as well, because he's the head of the kangaroo court, isn't he? Yeah. And it's like, but he thinks, because Bane is saying that the city is being held for ransom, and Bane, um, and Crane thinks that's what's happening. It's like, oh, that's, so you haven't really moved on since the first one when you were duped by the other people, by, again, League of Shadows. Whenever the League of Shadows say they are holding the city to ransom, it's a lie. They're going to fuck it yeah. What do you think he's ransoming it for? Like, what do you, what do you think is like, Money like we're, we're going to be rich. To... <laughs> I like the idea of, well, yeah, that's the thing. I think it is one of those where it's like, criminals are not complicated. Yeah, he just wants true. to get money. Like, superstitious all the like. cops are underground, but Gotham is full of banks. How much money are, is the government going to give you that, that isn't just lying around yeah. but I think it's one of those things where money it's, he wants to show that money is worthless in his new model Yeah, this is it's yours you can take it he's going to prove that this works as a model is what everyone thinks yeah, but what is really happening is he's just going to blow the whole place up and that's the thing that's the reason why I think this is a deeply flawed film and some of it doesn't add up but I still really really enjoy it and I really and, I, and I'm really impressed with lots of it that whole bit when he goes to prison yeah, I love that bit. It's, it's just so good because, and I'm going to get this wrong, so you need to correct me, but there was the Lazarus pit and was it that Raj al Ghul was hundreds of years old and we're going to the Lazarus pit Sustained and just be re immortality, reborn yeah. or something? Yeah, it, it, it regenerates him and he brings him right. back to life, but he comes out insane, but then he settles down and it's kind of like he's been doing this for centuries. And right. Yeah. And there you take it that it is a pit of rebirth, so therefore you are... Yeah. Yeah, you are reborn because you have to crawl your way out of it. But then he is immortal in the fact that he still lives on in Bruce Wayne within this pit when he comes back to him. And there is a really nice kind of continuity across the films with people coming back. And it's like, yeah, there is, you have created a world here yeah. of these people. And tying to the flashback of Thomas Wayne rescuing Bruce from the, well, the beginning. It's yeah. like, it's done, yeah, it's, I love the end of... Batman Begins. The bit I really, really love is when, at the very, very end, he's in the ruins of Wayne Manor and he finds his father's stethoscope and there's just that silent flashback to his father listening to his heart. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, actually, I get yeah, a little bit croaky at it. Because it it's, like, it's just this beautiful sense that like, yeah. I lost my dad. I lost my dad. Part, yeah. And it's like, yeah, don't get me wrong, I think you lost someone else at the same time. 
can't remember her name. Martha, why did you say that name? But it is like... I like Tasha Williams as a woman. She was just some serving staff or something. Probably. Someone else died. Yeah, fathers and sons. With his mum, it's at the beginning of, of Rose, it's like, stealing the pearls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it is, you're absolutely right. And it's... But it, yeah, that bit like, at the end is with the, 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 the stethoscope is really touching and it is like you're doing it for human reasons it's like yeah with yeah. the stethoscope it's like I'm remembering a moment I had with my father with the pulse like I'm remembering this thing my mother used to wear <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, yeah, one of the so. things that the mugger saw and thought ooh I want those just like that she was asking for it absolutely it's another Catwoman moment Anne Hathaway has a great southpaw that bit when she punches that guy out, when she asks the policeman to hold her hat, and then she punches yeah. him out, it's like, I had to wear that back again, thinking, that is such a well-handed <laughs> There's all the stories that she completely threw herself into the role, thinking, I, I need to prove that I can do this, because uh, lots of women were being considered for it. It was it. brilliant, like, isn't it? I need to do, I, I need to prove that I can do all the physical stuff, and that I'm not going to be weak. But, but isn't it great that we talked about Jack Nicholson and Heath Ledger being two completely different jokers, but still demonstrably the same character, and then you exactly the same you've got Michelle Pfeiffer and mm. Anne Hathaway and there's no overlap but they're obviously they're both completely different ways of doing the same Catwoman character it's great that there's that that span um, Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman is outrageously well done yeah, it is so fun. sympathetic and human but also bizarre and strange and frightening and absolutely beautiful but not sexualized this sexualized but not but not it's weird not it's tawdry of... it's not no, no, gaudy right, yeah. and cheap it's like that is strange what I'm seeing now. I'm seeing flesh because she is unravelling before my eyes. What? Sexy but weird and sad but well, liberating. Yeah, this is someone who has liberated themselves in a cracked mind sort of way. Yeah, so and they, they're finding a way to turn trauma into something that enables them to thrive. That's yeah. right. Sergio Romano should learn. I am. I'm only burning my half. All you care about is money. This town deserves a better class of criminal. And I'm going to give it to them. Because this was a definitive take for a certain time and in a certain medium for this character. And it made a ton of money. Which meant that you know, Warner's clearly thought this is the way to do our superheroes, mm. including Superman. Well, they so wanted Aff Affleck, they wanted Bale for Batman v Superman, didn't they? They offered him a ton yes, of money to right. do it they and he did, turned it down. Yeah, that's right. And it's like, mm, yeah, great. Yeah, good for you because you don't need that money because you made so much money off these. <laughs> yeah. And also that would shit all over this. It's like, this can't be the same universe and you can't be the same Batman. It's a misunderstanding to think that Superman can fit into this sort of mould as well. Well, you just make, like you say, you make different stories, different styles of telling stories. I love the fact that it's a trilogy, that it is like, okay, I've got a beginning, middle and end. I don't buy for a second that, well, I'm, he's big enough and ugly enough to pick his projects. But someone behind said, okay, he's going to do it and we're going to get him to do another one and another one afterwards. And it's, I don't understand why a trilogy is the format. I've got a feeling it's simply because of Star Wars. But it is like, it's... It, it? It's a story that is the beginning of the minute, whereas Marvel, shit out of luck at figuring out how they do it because their stories don't escalate and the characters go on forever. Yeah. Isn't it that it's a three-act structure, though? You no. have your beginning, you middle, have your middle, middle and, and then But you that have seems your... arbitrary, and it's like... It does, yeah, yeah. We all, I was, right. You also have a five-act structure. So it's that's like, right, yeah. But it's old now. Tension spans. And you could just do the one. Which is what's happening right now. And sort of like, yeah, so short form is the way 
that you know, lots of content is being consumed. Yeah, I think the one-out structures are going to evolve in a way that we can just do something that is just in and of itself. Well, arguably, someone could make that, that trilogy in one film. Mm. Wouldn't be impossible. You know, oh, yes, no worries, I can get this. Yeah, you, hubris, close to the sun, fails. <laughs> the most annoying trope in these kinds of films is the goody fights the baddie and the baddie wins. Oh my God! So the goody goes away, gets better, comes back and beats the baddie and this time the goody wins. And it's like, fuck's sake. <laughs> it's like, why? Why? Why did he, why was he suddenly better? He was, he's not because he got younger, is it? And it's like, I imagine the baddie was also doing some fucking well, good because, stuff after he'd beaten the goody the first time. It's because he found his death drive, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I said it just to get that way. I was like, oh god, my bones ache. But it's like all those '80s films where it's like the boyfriend and the girlfriend falls in love, and it's marvelous. And then they break up, but then they just spend a little bit of time apart, and then they get back together again at the end. It's like, why? Why did you get back together again? You broke up. Why are you back together again? Well, because it's the end of the story. We've got to be together at the end of the story. It's irrelevant. It's stupid. It's like, why does Selena Kyle set for Bruce Wayne? It's like this crippled man-child. And she's got clean slate, which I believe is the thing we computer program, where you write your name in and it instantly oh, it? erases your I name. I don't forget the date Clean slate, where you type in someone's name, date of birth, and in a few minutes, they're gone from every database on Earth. And you don't have birth, of course. Okay. And all pictures <laughs> of you. Well, okay. Excellent. But it's like, why are they together? Why are they together? You've established painfully over the last <laughs> film and a half that you're obsessed with Rachel until another brunette comes along who betrays you and the fact that she comes back to fight means that now you're, she's your happily ever after. But you're forgetting about the other brunette, Miranda Tate, who, of course, he has a sexual relationship with and then, yeah, when it turns out that... Uh, she's a wrong one. She's, she's a wrong one. There's always a good one and a bad one. He's going the to go a bad one and looks like a good one and the good one looks like a good one is actually a bad one. That's yeah. right. It, it is Women are so complicated. Women are very complicated. Like criminals. That's right. Well, I mean, I think that's a synonym. It was... <laughs> you don't need to say that to Like some kind of female, female criminal. That's right. Yeah. I, think it's, I think it's just criminal. <laughs> yeah, it's so ridiculous. And also, it just is it me or is it weird that you would fetishise your dead mother in the form of these pearls, which you would then insist your girlfriend wears? It's like, it's like the least healthy pearl necklace that could come out of this. It really is. It's like, I look at what you look my mum. I love my mum. Why did you say that name? Martha! <laughs> like, well, why would she put up with it? She's the world's greatest thief. Never mind, never mind. Because the story's ended, and um, yeah, they are making a mainstream story, and you want to send him off thinking, like, yeah, if you're sitting there alone, the wonderful it isn't a satisfying resolution. It has to be there with somebody else. Batman Returns has got such a great thing. I would love to run away and live with you in a castle, Bruce, just like in a fairy tale. I just couldn't live with myself. And it's mm. like, that's such a good line. That is such a good line. For a film with split personalities and fairy tales and psychological weirdness, I just couldn't live with myself. Maybe Bruce used the clean slate on himself as well and everybody forgot about him. <laughs> what happens if you write everybody's name and date of birth into clean slate? Yeah. I would do that for an evening. I would just write Rob Daniel. Yeah, just erase everybody from the universe. Where's my bank account gone? <laughs> so snap your fingers and they're all gone. It's the capture. I think, I think you've hit on it, Rob. I think you've hit on what they would say is the... Uh, it's like, yes, well, he put himself into the clean slate as well, so all the images disappeared. Yeah, but if George Clooney's images disappeared and I saw George Clooney, I'd go, well, look at that. George, George Clooney. George Clooney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then, I haven't then, seen any new pictures of him in ages. Yeah, then I'd Google him and be like, why are there no photos uh, of him? George Clooney. <laughs> Syndrome of George Clooney. But That's if cool. I put this on my blog, I'm going to get all the hits on the internet now because I've got the one image of Clooney. <laughs> yeah, but then the Daily Mail would tweet you saying, can you DM me so I can uh, link to your image, please? Yes. <laughs> no. Say, no. I'm going to link to your image. <laughs> then I'll just steal it. <laughs> uh, I don't get it. 
I just think it's silly. Well, I think I, it, the more I think about it, the sillier I get. I got so cross because uh, Rob forced me to watch Dark Knight Rises, even though I didn't want to. And it is such a bad film. And the ending is so... The Ire Rises. <laughs> the Ire Rises, absolutely. Well, <laughs> but it is the whole thing. It's like the second film has such pains to point out that these people aren't Batman just because they're wearing hockey pads. And yet in the third film, the point was anyone could be Batman under the mask. Anyone could be Batman. You could be Batman. Oh, okay, I'll be Batman. <laughs> really? You're Batman now, aren't you? <laughs> then why the fuck did you have to go to ninja school? Exactly. I, it's, it's standards are so I low at ninja school. It's a, it's a low... But yeah, I'd, I, if I'd realised that being Batman was such a low bar... We'd all be Batman. Yeah. Uh, I took that as Bat the... people. <laughs> I took that as the, the... He had... It doesn't work. But that he saw in Blake someone who would train himself that way. That's why he leaves in the keys to the back case saying this is how you this is an instruction manual to become Batman. This is how you become Batman. <laughs> but and you can train going yourself. Forward, though, well that's the thing, yeah, but going forward though, in terms of yeah, so Bruce Wayne lost his parents. That was the psychological scarring that he needed to do something as mad as dress up as a bat and dedicate his entire life. And dedicate not, three weeks. Yeah, indeed. To becoming Batman. But the other... What I did on my summer vacation. <laughs> yeah. But the Batman beyond Batman, does he... What's what's his backstory? Is is there one of pain there as well? Or well, he... it's quite cool. I really like it. He's a delinquent kid. Parents have split up and his father is killed by uh, gangsters. And the gangsters chase after him and he gets rescued by an old man who is Bruce Wayne. And he figures out that the, man, the old man who saved him is actually Batman and steals a bat suit so he can get revenge. And then Bruce, inspired by the young man's thirst for justice, agrees to train begrudgingly him. agrees to train him. Right. And in it, Bruce is redeemed because he's become this horrible recluse into becoming invested in life again. And uh, Terry McGuinness, Batman Beyond Batman, becomes a better person and becomes the superhero. It's all the way because in Batman Beyond, it's all about the technology. That Bat- Bruce Wayne has built this technological suit because he's getting old and he can't do it anymore. But even with the suit that gives him augmented strength and whatnot, the strain on his heart's too much and he just can't do it. Yeah. But Terry McGuinness doesn't have that. So they get around the fact that Terry McGuinness is just a, an ordinary person because he's wearing a Spider-Man suit, basically. He's Spider-Man, Iron Man, it, but he's being guided by Bruce Wayne. And it's done really, really well. Later on, the, chronologically, after Batman Beyond was finished... They made the Justice League and then the Justice League Unlimited. And they did an episode of Justice League Unlimited that was set after the end of Batman Beyond, where it's revealed that that the Terry McGuinness thing was all a ruse. And actually, it's a stole Bruce Wayne's DNA. (laughs) Artificially inseminated Terry's father with it, which would overwrite Terry's dad's DNA with Bruce's DNA. So actually, even though they didn't realise it, Terry was always Bruce's son. And the idea was that then they would kill uh, Terry's parents to inspire someone with the same genetic material as Bruce Wayne to become the new Batman. So the boys from Brazil, basically. But yeah, exactly. The boys. Good, exactly. Right. And it's wonderful because it's... I can't remember the name of the character. Who is the woman in Suicide Squad? Amanda uh, Waller. Amanda Waller. Played by CCH Pounder yeah. in, the, in the cartoon series. Oh, right. She's Brilliant. amazing. And she, and she plays as the old woman telling Terry that this is what she did years before. And it's done so wonderfully because uh, CCH Pounder hires the Phantasm, who is the, the villain who's Bruce's old love in Mask of the Phantasm, to assassinate Terry's parents. She can't do it because she knows what it means to be Batman. So you start to get it all tied together that Terry is literally Bruce's son and that Terry is literally saving Bruce from the, the terrible decay. Across the whole animated oh. series, Bruce 
darkens. So it's like you would think that he's become Batman and that's his liberation and that's he becomes better and he becomes his best person. But in the cartoons, he actually gets worse. So he alienates Dick Grayson. He recruits someone who's younger as a new Robin. He becomes more brutal. In the, in the early cartoons, he's wearing a loose suit as Bruce Wayne. He speaks in a completely different voice. In the later cartoons, he wears a dark suit and he talks like Batman as Bruce Wayne and as Batman. And it's never really made a point of, but it's like he gets worse. He becomes more obsessive it's like it's well, corrupted uh, by what not corrupt it's like, okay he becomes that he's just a Hardened. tool to achieve that that is what it would do to you always fighting makes you this thing yeah. and so at the end when his body fails him and he literally can't be batman anymore he just goes and lives alone because alfred's dead lives in wayne manor and just waiting to die until he saves terry and then he goes right so there's all sorts of wonderful little nuances to it there's a wonderful episode of batman beyond terry's been batman for some time and terry takes bruce to the opera and what they're seeing is the musical version. Have you seen this episode? Yes. Seeing the Batman musical. <laughs> and it's so great. Because they're doing this camp silly musical about Batman. And Bruce is you hate me, don't you? Why are we watching this? It's like, that's great! Batman! I am Gotham's darkest night. The villain's darkest fright. Turn on the signal light. For Batman! Batman. You hate me, don't you? Lighten up, it's your birthday. Don't remind me. <laughs> and if they and I think it's I don't know if it's written by Paul Dini, I'm doing it to service to get it wrong, but it's like they actually have lyrics to the Batman song. And Kevin Conroy is playing the actor who's singing the song. Because Kevin Conroy is a Juilliard trained actor who does all sorts of brilliant stuff. Oh, wow. He's also openly gay. And it's like he? he's such a he's such a wonderful person. If you watch him on Twitter, he's always engaging intelligently and it's like with compassion and warmth, and he's had this really Sad life, his biography is like one of incredible achievement with really hard things happening to him. Yeah. And what was a job, I'm just doing voiceover on a Batman cartoon, has become like a bit of his life, the quarter of a century. And yet he carries that with pride and grace. And it's like, that's really inspirational. I find that, I genuinely think it's really inspirational what he does. And the way he does it is, is really great. I mean, it's beside the point that he's gay. It's just that it's like, and I'm, it's just that it's, a part of his character which you see and it's a dimension to who he is yeah. and it's not just like I have no idea what Val Kilmer's is doing and he's like I have no idea what Michael Keaton is really like but there seems to be a humanity to Kevin Conroy and an honesty in Kevin Conroy which I think is really affecting but anyway so he's also the singer in this musical thing and it's brilliant <laughs> and it kind of like it bums Bruce out that he's become this uh, caricature but anyway then he gets visited in the Batcave by uh, Talia Rachel Gould's daughter yeah. And she's still looking stunning. And she's saying, Bruce, what are we going to do? Because, and hilariously, she comes into the Batcave just as Bruce Wayne is looking through photographs of his old girlfriend in the Batcave. So there's young Selina Kyle. There's young Barbara Gordon. Because, of course, in the Batman Beyond universe, Batman has an affair with Barbara. And it's like... Like it's, in the Kid and Joke film. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's like, it's like, so there's all this stuff. Like, he's literally sitting in his cave looking at all the pretty women he used to be with when he was young and pretty. And then Tyler says, look, I've got a Lazarus pit. Just... Have a dip in the Lazarus pit. Tomorrow you can be young, for God's sake. It would be wrong. It's like, it's too easy. It's like, I've, my life is my worth because it's my life. It's a natural life. This will be unnatural. But Talia convinces him. And he, he goes into the pit and he actually starts to get young. And it's this interesting thing. So Terry's like saying, well, who am I then? I'm not dressing up like Robin. If you're going to become <laughs> Batman again, that's it. But then, wonderfully, Bruce starts to suspect that there's more going on and that Talia is actually still in cahoots with Raish and Raish hasn't died years before after all. And they're creeping around the 
Talia's palace and they can hear Talia talking to Raish behind a closed door. They burst open the door and there's Talia just there on her own. Because it's not Talia. Because Raish al Ghul implanted himself into Talia's body. And suddenly Raish al Ghul's voice is coming out of Talia's mouth. It's like days of our lives. <laughs> it's tough, but it is like it's also kind of like Twin Peaks. Yeah, you've got David you. Warner from Twin Peaks as well. Of course, is the voice of Rachel Gould in the oh, cartoons, wow, and so it's David Warner coming out of this sexy cartoon oh, wow. mix. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> but the whole I don't like, know how to feel about this. I know, and it's already established <laughs> okay. that Talia and Bruce are having a sexual relationship as well, and it's like mm. your arch enemy crawled into the body of his own daughter. So fuck knows what happened to Talia. Yeah. And now he's walking around as Talia to corrupt you and to become a younger person again. It's like, it's really satanic in like the best possible. This is profane and corrupt. This 20 minute cartoon for kids is doing some really weird stuff. And even though it resets at the end and it's like Bruce is starting to get old again. That was a weird couple of days, wasn't it? The people who banned the comics were right. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, what was this one? Was this Batman Beyond? This is an episode of Batman Beyond. I think it's called Out of the Past. Right, it's... okay. You always were the perfect specimen, Detective. Even old age has not softened you as much as I had feared. I should have known you'd cheat death again, Raish. I don't cheat death, I master it. Though I assure you, this time my longevity comes at a price most dear. Talia. There okay, is some great episodes. Yeah. That's a good one when we looked at. So, so looking at these, the other things I was thinking about, so it's interesting how the previous Christopher Nolan film influences the next Batman film. So I think Insomnia was one of those, a bigger budget, it was location shooting, it was one of those things. He was handling big movie stars. He then goes on to Batman and that seemed to be the thing that he proved he could do that, so he got the gig. The Prestige, they were talking about the blue of, of the Prestige, that cobalt blue, the cooler feeling of it, is something that they wanted to bring into the Dark Knight. Well, there's a the reason dark... for that as well, partly. Go on. Because of uh, Christopher Nolan's colour blindness. Oh, yes. His red-green yeah, colour blindness. Oh, my God, really? <laughs> but it's one of those things that... Um, because, of, because you think of Batman Begins and you think, this is an orange film. This is a, an earthy tone film. Yeah. And then The Dark Knight, you think of as a very, very cool and very blue film. And then The Dark Knight Rises is one of those... It, tries to mix the two but The Dark Knight Rises Inception was the film before that and it just seems to be this thing where it is everything seems to be slightly odd and off kilter in The Dark Knight Rises and the bat seems to be something spat out of a dream from Inception it's such a weird looking insect helicopter thing yeah and it's like yeah this is it's interesting the way that your previous film just seems to be feeding into what you're doing with Batman for the next movie but then it ends and it makes all this money and then they seem to not know what to do with Batman on a big screen anymore. So you have yeah. Batman versus Superman. I don't think it well, I don't think you can kill people like you do it. That they gave it. Is, to the, I thought was a real trail of that character. The fact that he was killing people. They gave it to the wrong person. I'm sorry, just Zach, visionary director Zack Snyder. And I know that we have re, we've talked about this endlessly on the podcast. You know, <laughs> it's a film that we do love to hate. Somebody who's writing Batman. Just taking, you know, taking the influence from, you know, the Ubermensch and Ayn Rand is yeah, like, yeah. you are, that is n- never going to result in anything good. <laughs> there is, or inspiring. There, there is a story that's saying, if you're making Batman films for 20 years, don't make the same Batman film for 20 years mm. and make a film where Batman is a completely different character and see what happens. I'm aware that my argument for against Man of Steel is exactly the opposite of that. But then I think Batman has, because I think Man of Steel, Superman is is a silly, compromised, joyless 
creation where actually Superman by his definition is the zenith of human aspiration and, and love and hope and but I think Batman has a variety to him that you can do an Adam West Batman and you can do a Michael Caine eh, Michael Caine Michael Keaton crazy Batman or you can do a Clint Eastwood Batman or you can do all sorts of Batmans I mean a Paul Weller Peter Weller Paul Weller I can't Peter, Peter, Peter Weller don't do a Paul Weller Batman do a <laughs> Peter Weller Batman and it's like there's wonderful nuance and so there is room to do a Batman film where Batman is the enemy and Batman is and it's like you could do that and you fail because Batman v Superman I think is a stupendously stupid and ugly film but there is also and Batman just wouldn't kill and also wouldn't be careless about how he kills that's it's, right. like, it's like and the way he careers around is idiotic but there is a lot in Batman v Superman that's very very good Batman writing I think because he's like well this is a Batman who said okay I've been fighting crime for 20 years and now the world has gone to hell because now we've got aliens who can level a city. What am I going to do about that? I'm probably going to have to kill that alien. And I don't kill humans. I, he's an alien. Men are brave. You're not a man. You're not brave. And it's like there is a logic. As, as tortured as it is, there is a logic to it. And the idea that he would go to such lengths to destroy an alien. And that the only person who could kill Superman is Batman. It's like, okay, it's a, you, know, you do it once and then you never, ever, ever have to do it again. But it is there is an argument that says... That is a new way of doing him. Batman is a supporting character as the villain in a superhero film. But the way they're there, though, is that there was the perfect example of that, I think, is The Dark Knight Rise, um, is The Dark Knight Returns, where you have the Batman versus Superman standoff, but you don't betray the character of Batman. You don't turn mm. him into his killer. No, but the um, argument is then that in Dark Knight Returns, that's Batman's story. So in that, right, yeah. Superman's so character is... You suddenly he's a lackey, running dog lackey to a corrupt government. It's like, well, that's not Superman. A Superman writer wouldn't write Superman the way that Superman is written by a Batman writer in Dark Knight Returns. Yeah, that's and I think that's partly it. Yeah, I, I think Sorry, it's partly... I don't, I'm, I'm assuming Zack Snyder's a genuine fan. I'm assuming he's done his reading. Mm. But yeah, the, the scripts that you got, they, they took the fundamentals or they took elements of so many different stories and... But without seeming to have an understanding mm. of what makes them good. Mm. That's right, yeah. It was one of those. But it, it, it does have one of the great Batman moments where Bruce Wayne runs towards the collapsing building. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's like, that. that is why we love this character. He runs... And he saves the girl immediately, snatches her out the way of the falling wall, rescues the guy who's trapped under there. Not as Batman, but as Bruce Wayne. That is that character. He runs towards the danger. My favourite moment Um, in that film, and I've... is 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 when Bruce gives Alfred a cup of tea... <laughs> it's the most human moment yeah. in that entire like small acts of kindness. It's just like <laughs> I've made a cup of like tea or coffee, and I've made you one too, and it just goes completely unspoken. Mm. They're looking at the ship, they're looking at the uh, the white Portuguese, whatever it's called, and it's like, oh, that was nice. That's like we're just gonna let that pass uncommented. It's like, yeah, more of that, more of just Batman. No, well, I think there are mel- there are moments of that in Batman. You see, but in a in a weird, horrible way, because it is so tainted by the ugliness of Batman being a mass murderer. Mm. It's like, it, you can throw and it Superman out. Superman being yeah, someone who says no one can say good in this world. <laughs> <laughs> Not even me. God incarnate. Jeez, yes, that's right. <laughs> but it's so at the same time, it's like there's Bat. And when you see Bruce Wayne um, at the fist fight, you know, he's at, yeah. the, at the fight club, and he gives the guy, that's how you beat him. And he doesn't make a point of it. He just whispers in the guy's ear, and then the guy goes off and beats him. Because it's like Batman can win any fight, even if he's not in the fight. Yeah. It's great. Batman, Bruce Wayne clones the phone while dropping in stuff about the ballerina and he's loose and he's silly but he gets the number he's like he's doing detective work he sneaks in there and he gets the thing hey love those shoes and it's like little bits of it are dropped in there as being this is a guy who's doing a very good job in the character it's all in service of a mass murdering lunatic but it's still 
there's still stuff in there that's kind of like, that's pretty that's pretty good that's good character work in there and I think as I get older I'm getting more into the production design of these films more than anything else there is an awful lot of like it's interesting that the design of the Batcave or the design of Wayne Manor in these films the fact that there is a carcass of Wayne Manor because something awful happened there mm. but you're still Batman even after it and now you live in this glass box where you can see people coming from any direction and you live in your Batcave where your Batcave is a shrunken concrete it is a bunker yeah you could just one way in and one way out and it's like and it's like i keep costumes from my dead partners lying around it is a there is an intelligence in the design of that film and in the characterization that it's like okay that's that's actually done well done justice league is rubbish but it's like there is there is stuff in <laughs> if you see my mind, it is like yeah this this is there is stuff here that works the Dark Knight Returns comic book that obviously is the source for so much of this stuff took the time out and you knew that Frank Miller was like on the side of a cool Batman who would... So there are three working ways to disarm a man from this position. Three of them kill, three of them disarm with minimal contact and the other one hurts. And he cripples him and it's like, it's like he's young, he'll probably walk again. And it's like Frank Miller obviously loves that in a mm. Batman character. But then The Dark Knight Returns also takes time to do talking heads where you'll get characters saying what about due process what happens next and it's like you can step back because the the conversation is mature the conversation is rich enough that you can step back and talk about what that means mm. in a society gone to hell but what but do you we... need the talking heads in the film when you're doing that well maybe or whatever the equivalent is and it is the fact that he go I, I know it's so easy to make fun of the Martha ending of Batman v Superman Martha but it is just like you did it for your parents and he's got the same mother as you it's like that is only a comic book can pull yeah. that off and this isn't yeah. a comic book this is an ugly movie but still it's like that is a character choice it's a storytelling choice That's just, that is peculiar to say the least it's just lampshading the fact that right is back it's like writing a female character what are we going to call her Martha ah. didn't, we, didn't we call the other one Martha yeah they can all be called Martha my wife's called Martha my wife's called Martha excellent let's do that the thing there though is it's like kind of yes they're both called Martha and that's just such plagiarizing in order and women always but we've just proven that they could be called Rachel and still be <laughs> underserved by by the film because I love that Rachel Dawes because a door is something you walk through on your way somewhere else yeah <laughs> it's like it's just, I love nameplay because that was the thing I was watching it's Miranda in Dark Knight Rises it's Miranda from The Tempest so looking at what we've got on this board, because we've got a big board. A big board. Picture of it, but onto the website as well. What, what's Batman's favourite drink again? <laughs> a Dark Knight Riesling. <laughs> <laughs> so Heat is written down there. So yeah, so there were some films that, that Nolan showed the crew before they started filming. And Heat was one of them. And I think that comes across. You can just see that there is a Heat influence the film. But also there were like other films that were really interesting. And I have them written down, so let's have a look and see if I can find it. So Nolan showed the crew eight films, so two a day for four days. Heat, Cat People, the mm-hmm. original. Oh, wow. Citizen Kane. Yeah. King Kong. Oh, wow. Batman Begins. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I think I said it best, when I? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, can, I can see why you do that. Black Sunday, really interesting. I don't know. Okay. That's the Robert Shaw terrorist one about... That's Thomas uh, Harris novel. It is, yeah. that's right, yeah. A, yeah. About a blimp and a terrorist attack on a football game. Oh, wow. Um, but this was for The Dark Knight. Um, a Clockwork Orange and Stalag 17. <laughs> yeah, I think that's like a prison movie, so again for The Dark Knight Rises. But anyway, an interesting collection of films. And also really interesting that they're all pretty much old films as well. It's yeah. Like Heat is the most recent film apart from his first Batman film. He was more than 20 years ago. 
Yeah, indeed. He was, <laughs> he was 22 years ago. Yeah. Whoa. But that must mean it was 22 years since we graduated university. That makes no sense. That can't be possible. <laughs> no. I also see on... 20 on years board. being a graduate. How many stay good? That's A Tale of Two Cities and The Tempest. Mm. What does that mean? Hey? <laughs> <laughs> Anyone? Bueller. Anyone? Bueller. So Miranda is the name of the daughter in The Tempest. Prospero's daughter. Prospero's the wizard. And so it's like, oh, right, yeah, okay, that's the hint. And it's like, obviously, the tempest is the storm. The storm is coming, Mr. Wayne. And it's it's set on an island, and the story is about um, giving up a vendetta of revenge. And it's like, that's, okay, that's quite cool. And, of course, Caliban is Calabane. It's like there's a connection there. And in that structure, you wind up, the other magical character is Ariel. So are they sort of like saying that Batman is this Ariel figure? Because, of course, the story ends with Ariel being given his, her freedom, to live her life away from the shackles of the the vendetta, and it's yeah. like, okay, it doesn't add anything to the film, but it's like a but nice. Who's Prospero? Ra's al Ghul, Raish is Prospero, the wizard. Okay, but it's the father of. Uh, it's Prospero who gives Miranda. up the revenge. Yeah, because okay, it's, okay, it's, yeah. it's it's like it's it doesn't serve any purpose. You get the impression it was only there because what are we going to call her? And it's right, Miranda, because Martha's taken, obviously. Martha. There's so much stuff in the naming that it's just... It's <laughs> that or Rachel 2. <laughs> it's Rachel 2. Oh, technically, Maggie Gyllenhaal was Rachel 2. Yes, so she would be Rachel 3. <laughs> no, Maggie Gyllenhaal was Rachel 1.5. Oh, yes, of course. Rachel, absolutely. It, it doesn't necessarily add anything, but it's just kind of like an awareness of these things have a life outside of the Batman universe, which I think is really... Which you, I think is quite pleasant. Yeah, you can't read yeah. too much into it, in, in, as allegory. You can't like. No, exactly. It's, it's just, just not one for one mapped. But it's just it's the, it's, it's just accidental symbolism. It. It's just yeah, accidental symbolism, right, which yeah. I think is quite nice. It's like the fact that he's called Blake. So that's the line, the merest Robin in a cage sets all of heaven in a rage. And it's yeah. and again, which of course is quoted in, in Simon's line. Uh, uh, Hannibal. Hannibal. Yeah. So. Again, we're back to Thomas Harris. So you could argue, obviously, we're talking about a very very small gene pool of influence. But it is still nice to sort of see that Absolutely. stuff echoing out there. And the Tale of Two Cities is, I don't, to be honest, I don't know a Tale of Two Cities in any kind of detail no, to be talking about. But you always say, like, yeah. so how is Dark Knight Rises inspired by a Tale of Two Cities? Oh, um, okay, I, I, should have, I should have prepared for this. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, because uh, you're in the court of public opinion, aren't you? <laughs> But it's revolution, isn't it? Yeah, the time the of revolution idea, and a man who sacrifices himself. And they, they quoted at the very end. It was... It was it's in, this in, the, in the eulogy. It was the best of times. It was the blurst of times. <laughs> but it is that. I do like that resonance. Even if it is so like... It's, it's sort of... Because we talked about it when we did the JFK conversation. This is Cliff Notes literacy. Yeah, everything that um, Kevin Costner says is what an A-level student would say. But it is still like... I, I quite like that it dances outside. So there was a criticism yeah, of Batman it. Returns when they said um, that wonderful... There's the scene between Bruce and Selina in there. And it says, um, so was Vicky right about your trouble with duality? It says, well, if I say yes, you're thinking of me as some Norman Bates, Ted Bundy type, and then you might not let me kiss you. And... Then she turns the table and well, nice guys, don't worry me, it's crazy people are committed. Uh, but there was a criticism saying, you don't want to talk about Norman Bates and Ted Bundy in a Batman film. Okay, because it's a real life tragedy, you don't evoke it. And it's just, it's kind of like it's this odd thing that Batman has been around for so long, it influences culture, culture influences it. Yeah, indeed, And it's a dialogue, it's a conversation that goes on. It's why I, I love Alan Moore. Alan Moore, I don't think, I don't agree with his opinion on Batman. He's earned his right to his opinion on Batman. He's written one of the best Batman stories ever but it's like his view of it they're just corporate mascots they have no resonance they're there to entertain 
unimaginative children. And he's, I think he's even said something like, if you like Batman, I don't see how you can like my work. And it's like, okay, you do make it hard, but you yeah. are, you yeah. are Alan Moore. That's why you're Alan Moore. That's right. And yeah. I love Alan Moore. He's an, I think he's genuinely one of the greatest writers. Grant Morrison, the sort of like the anti-Alan Moore, who's also an incredibly talented writer and magician, would take the opposite view and say that when you, you talk about Batman, you're talking about a character who is no less true for not being real because everyone's been imagining him for decades everyone's been telling stories and watching stories and creating stories he does actually exist he's just not real how they have a mythic power to them it's the idea of the tulpa that Mm. you evoke it through your concentration and your will and it's and it's there's a beauty to that grant morrison tells the wonderful batman stories where every single batman story happened to the same person so he starts off he's young he's serious and then you know he gets a young sidekick and suddenly it's a bit more of an adventure then he gets into the 60s and it's all about drugs things get a bit crazy and then the kid grows up and leaves home and you get to be a little bit more and he's like goes all the way through his life as being this happened to one guy one amazing miraculous guy and i think that's a really wonderful way of looking at it there is massive invention but it is these are cultural artifacts that move yeah. on you you can go anywhere in the world show them a bat symbol and they'll know what it is so what's next then for the franchise ian you were obviously warners are going to make batman films forever and it's like it's like remember we were, whether they like it or not well it was but batman when it came out batman forever sounded like a threat didn't it uh-huh. and it was like it exploded <laughs> immediately afterwards but it, you've got to think there's a way of telling given you're always going to be making batman films always don't make the same one over and over again don't keep rebooting it tell a longer form story or find a way of telling a longer form story over a number of films and is it continuity you're embracing are you telling like a an 18 hour movie is that what you're making now it's like well that's that sounds new that sounds different we're watching twin peaks series three at the moment and it's like that's david lynch described it as an 18 hour movie and it is wonderful also because it denies fan service every step of the way it's like his agent cooper he's back after 25 years he's not how you remember him is is audrey it's not how you remember her yeah, like, he might never be how we're in twin peaks not, but we're not in twin peaks yeah it's telling the story that you need, not the story that you deserve. And it's like, that's that's original and that's clever and that's interesting. Not every five years, it's a new actor playing Batman, having his first adventure against the Joker, falling in love with Catwoman, but not quite and almost in a little bit and then never to be spoken of again. And it's like, and then endlessly replaying the killing joke in The Dark Knight Returns forever. And I think also not seeing his parents get shot because at the beginning of Batman vs Superman, it's like, oh, we have to see this again. Everyone knows how he became Batman now. I'm sorry, but this... That has landed. And also, the only thing that it added in Batman vs Superman was that Thomas Wake kind of brings it on himself by lunging at him. It's all like just having that... It's like, well... That whole point is it's like, no, no, that's fine. That's fine. Just take the money. And then he... Oh, Zack Snyder. But then, isn't that interesting? Because... Well, I remember like, when Thomas Wayne can't go out like a pussy. That's, that's exactly that, what they're Jeff doing. Morgan. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's like, but there's that um, great thing where it's like, I remember, a, I remember a criticism of Batman Returns when it came out saying, the whole thing about Batman was his parents died and he doesn't even mention his parents in the second film. And it's like, the reading of Batman Returns, there's such a lot of subtle character work in Batman Returns. It's like, everyone has a relationship with their parents apart from Bruce because Bruce has no parents. So Selina takes a telephone call from her mum and she's a nagging shrew. The Penguin is obviously, his parents try to kill him and it's implied he kills his parents in revenge Max Schreck has such a close relationship with his son. with his son and they have this weird relationship with his wife women you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> except your late mother 
Bruce is just a lonely man. And the first time he sees the penguin is when the penguin is on TV. Do you remember? And he just gets this look of compassion because he says his parents, I hope he finds them. And it's like he absolutely empathizes with an orphan and he wants the orphan to find his parents. And it's like, that's beautiful. And in the very next second, Max Shrek stands behind the penguin on TV. And Batman is the detective who goes, if you know him, he's dirty. Therefore, you're dirty. Therefore, something else is going on. And the next time you see him, Bruce is in the Batcave studiously looking through aquatic bird boys and circuses and he's su- he's a detective and he's suspicious but it's connected to that sense of family without ever having to say my parents were murdered by dastardly crooks when i was a yeah. child yeah, and it's yeah. like it's there in the story it's there as character work it's there as it drives the narrative it's like it's subtle it might be underwritten it might be simple but it's like it's it's a different yeah. way of doing it yeah. and it's quite lovely why can't, why, why can't we hugely overstate the fact? Why can't we, yeah. Exactly. If, if less is more, then... Yeah. Think how much more more would be. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Fraser. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you were talking about just having the Batman story from beginning to end. So you would, again, have the origins, but it would then go through and be like an epic... I think that's just, something you haven't seen. So do the MCU have a big 18-film arc, but just for one character... Yeah, take, I mean, that would be quite amazing. I mean, there's <laughs> and, and different actors. I mean, it's like you know, and you imagine could... if you did that over seven films. Imagine what the cast of characters you could have. Yeah. You could marshal. It's like you would have. Obviously, you'd have your family, your, your close family. But then it would go off in different directions, and um, you would get or Batman Beyond for the final film. You'd have you know, yeah, or, or absolutely, absolutely, just tell a different story. And because if it's a given that you're going to have always be making Batman films then do them in a different way. Yeah. Do them to make a different point. And, yeah. and, and you know, you do, you do the thing, you do the MCU, you know, Batman film, okay, this one, we're, we're introducing Batgirl, and then we're going to, yeah. and if that works, we'll give her her own film. You remember the Gotham yeah. Central comic? Yeah. When it's like Batman is only there as, like, a shadow, as a cameo, as someone who says one line, and the whole story is actually about the cops, mm. and they're telling crime stories featuring a cast of interesting police characters who are only tangentially connected to Batman. And it's like, it's just a different way of telling stories about what heroism means, what significance of actions enough, means. Yeah, yeah. yeah, indeed. Yeah, all these things don't just have to be for this one character. You, they can be for the characters around them as well. I think that's quite interesting. You can't put all of your characters into a single film without it being a mess. So therefore, just do this and just focus on your most popular character and do something that has never been tried before. Marvel is telling the same story over and yeah. over and over again with different characters who are the same character. Yeah. It is astonishing that you can have a, a Doctor Strange and a Tony Stark to they're, they're ide- down to the facial hair they're, they're identical. Yeah. And the character beats are identical. It just seems wasteful. It just it seems it seems also self-defeating over the longer run. It seems like okay, you've got amazing 10 years. Are these things going to be remembered in 20 years? Well, that's there the are other worlds than these. Yeah. yeah the interesting thing there, though, is that there was... Because I was, I was thinking that, and I thought, well, but, yeah, you do have to remind yourself, well, these are not primarily aimed at us. No. Even though I try not to grow up. <laughs> <laughs> it just happens by accident. Because when Rob and I saw Thor Ragnarok, there's a moment, and I can't even remember it because I'm just so uninvested in these films, but someone says something about being related to someone, and there's, there's, yeah, there's some kind of revelation that... And it could even be, she's my sister or something like that. And that could be the thing, like, yeah, the, the Kate Blanchett character. It could have been that. Anyway, there was um, a family next to us. And the kid went, oh, and looked at his dad. And it was like, Aww. you clearly are more invested in this and know more about these characters yeah. than I yeah, do. Yeah, fair and enough, absolutely. Like, so, th- so this is working, then. This is working for you, then. And that's fine. It's like, 
I don't know, maybe the emotion of these films, because it is different to the emotion of the films that we had when we were growing up during the 80s, but this just works. It's just like yeah, it's absolutely. Register now, absolutely, but. absolutely. I mean, you know, the irony of it being a bunch of sweaty old men saying, what the multi-million com- million million dollar <laughs> company should be doing? Like, Come on! <laughs> but if there's one thing... If anyone from Warner's listened to this, just do the 18 film Batman thing. Just do, just do something that's never been done before. Because yeah. you try and do something that hasn't been done before, <laughs> yeah, the results are mixed. Um, you don't get it, son. <laughs> yes. This isn't a movie theater. It's <laughs> Yeah, I just think it's, like, it's a funny thing. It's like, it is obviously that the... That everyone's heart was in the right place for these films. You don't come out the those were cookie cutter movies. It, I think uh, you were talking earlier, um, Ian, about the difference between you know whether it's a good Batman film and whether and a good film. Mm. I think it's both. I think. Yeah, yeah. On on, the, on, a, on a basic level, and this is this is the most basic we've said you can say about anything. I'm glad it exists. Definitely. Oh God, yeah. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Even, I, yeah, I think you know DC would probably track. You know, DC might ultimately prove to have been victims of its success. success mm. Yeah, um, because they went, oh yeah, you know, we had one great author make a, a fantastic trilogy of Batman films that not only hugely commercially successful but critically adored. Yeah. Um, so we'll go to this guy. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. So so now we have the formula, and it's like no, you don't no. Have the formula. Yeah, the, like, the formula is invention. The right. formula yeah. is yes, invention. The thing, like, yeah. yeah, this is. Yeah, he did not look back at the typical areas to make a Batman film. He was doing different things with this. I never said thank you. <laughs> thank you Ian for being oh, thank you very guest. much for having me thank it's you. always always fantastic and we'll have to think about what the next one is we do mm, yeah, um, nice. it's the 30 year anniversary of Batman next year <laughs> <laughs> and Rob thank you very much again as always Pleasure, as always <laughs> thank you for listening and we will speak to you soon okay and Batman um, a huge success very dark very dystopian um Obviously, you, you know, you collaborate on these films. They're not entirely your vision, but is, is there some sense of that's how you see the way we are now, or is that reading too much into a movie? Well, I think it's more a question of saying the opportunity you get with working in a particular genre, like the, the, the action movie genre, the superhero genre. Working within a genre, it, it allows you, affords you the opportunity to explore things you're interested in or afraid of, uh, neurosis you have, worries you have about the way the world is, it allows you to explore them in a very sort of exaggerated manner in a way that you can really tap into the, the collective fears that we have as a society. And particularly in the case of Batman, um, you have the opportunity through his environment, through Gotham, to really offer a very dark reflection of the society we live in. And, with my collaborators, uh, David Goya, my brother Jonah, um, at the script writing stage, we certainly were very careful not to be self-conscious in those aspects. So we tried to just write a great story first and foremost, but we also tried to be open to what are we really worried about? How does the world feel to us? What would you, what would you be most concerned about? And in the case of The Dark Knight, it becomes very much about 
chaos and anarchy and a breakdown of society and so forth. That way, going through that process, you, you hope to come with something that will resonate with the audience, that will touch something in them. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>